Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome back to another episode of 605, the super podcast. The only podcast on Turner time. The mothership. The best wrestling podcast on the planet. The only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? And I am very happy today to once again be joined by one of the all-time most popular guests in the history of the show. One of the most popular co-hosts in the history of the show. And a man who brightens any room that he enters. Your friend and mine, you know him as Rockin' Jerry Brown. Many names that I'm not going to remember here at the top, but Vandal Drummond is the one that's most important. Your friend and mine, Kurt Brown. Welcome back to the show, Kurt. Yeah, I'm telling you, I got to tell you, yes, welcome back to the Church of Joe Bryas, where great artists like Frida Kahlo, Leonardo da Vinci, Salvador Dali, and most importantly, Benny Hill never die. They live on and on. You can even make love to them if you want. And I am sitting here <laughs> above the ideal, ideal dinner I'm having, scrambled eggs and red wine. There is nothing better. Live on it, ladies and gentlemen, please. Maybe the first time Joe Bryath and Benny Hill have been mentioned in the same sentence ever. Can't you just picture Jabriath <laughs> being chased by Benny Hill through a grassy knoll to the tune of Yakety Sax? I don't know. Maybe it's Benny Hill being chased by Joe Bryath. No, 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 no. It's Benny Hill chasing Joe Bryath, and Klaus Nomi is chasing Benny Hill. Wow, Klaus Nomi. Well, you're, you're taking all these references out today. Oh, it's so great. Well, that's what the afterlife is going to be like. I got to tell you that, you know? <sighs> I haven't been registered as a minister in the Universal <laughs> Church yet, but I got to do that one of, one of these days, so all, these, all this bullshit I'm saying is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Real quick, before we get to wrestling and everything else, on the topic of Joe Bryath, a fascinating character in music history, did you ever see the documentary, I want to say it was about the Chelsea Hotel, where they had Joe Bryath in there because after his music career had flamed out, he was, I want to say, the piano player in the Chelsea Hotel. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Actually, as from what I recall, he was actually playing in some piano bars, and it's funny, before the documentary in... Uh was it 2014? I can't remember exactly what year it came out. You know, people had always talked about him like, oh, he flamed out, no pun intended. And he was playing for like dollar tips at some dingy piano bar where apparently he uh, actually kind of reinvented himself under another name and actually was cranking out some great tunes. Chelsea Hotel is actually where he lived, and he lived in the coolest room in that whole hotel, the one that was like a pyramid and shit. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I, I, you know, as tragic a life as he had, I envied him just for being able to live and die in the Chelsea Hotel in that particular room. But, um, yeah, from what I understand, uh, and the sad sad part about him kind of getting a, a second wave as a, an entertainer, apparently he, his... Uh, you know, he'd do a lot of uh, what you'd call like uh, what do you call the tunes like Sinatra tunes, the old jazz tunes. Standards. Standards. That's the term I was looking for. Uh, he was doing those and apparently they were getting over and uh, apparently they stopped using him because of the AIDS crisis. They said, well, we think you have AIDS, so don't come around this bar no more. 
And apparently there are more upscale places he was playing. They weren't dingy bars like right. the media was trying to portray. Right. No, I mean, you watch that documentary and you see him, and it's certain that he's playing upscale places. Yeah. I, I suggest to anybody, and this might sound kind of outrageous, but if you ever felt like you were one of those people from another planet or you just didn't fit in in the right place, a good documentary is The Jabriah. So you, you'll have a lot of empathy for him. And I got to say, I don't think it was as tragic as they made out to be. He was a fascinating person who did things the way he wanted to. Well, you know, Kurt, here at the top of the show, before we get to some wrestling stuff, real quick, I just want to send out something to all the listeners of the 605 Super Podcast and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. With everything happening in the world right now, everything happening in the United States with the coronavirus, so many people at home, a lot of people losing their jobs, a lot of people getting sick. I just want to say that I hope everyone is safe, everyone is healthy, everyone is doing okay. If you've lost your job, I really, really feel bad about that. I feel bad about how many people in just the last month have lost their jobs. It's really devastating. And hopefully everyone is healthy. Hopefully everyone, everyone's family is healthy. I know some people actually where I live who have lost family members to the coronavirus. It's really such a scary time. Hopefully we could cheer you up a little bit with this episode of the Super Podcast, but it is in my thoughts right now just what is happening, and I certainly hope that all of the listeners out there are okay. It's crazy here in the Northeast. What's it like out there on the West Coast, Kurt? Oh, geez. You know, I was really jazzed about how well California is doing, but people are getting antsy, and it's not an issue of, oh, I need to go back to work. It's just, I want to go to the beach and have a good time. And that really bums me out because, you know, I, I know there's it's pretty divisive these days and there's people claiming that there's a lot of hopes in this and that people are overreacting. But please, uh, if you're going to do something for me, if you ever did me a favor, overreact, people. Stay home. Be safe. If you go out, you know, follow the social distancing rules. You know, people aren't trying to shut you down. We just want you to be healthy. And I really feel for the people who are in that tricky situation where they need to work and the work can be compromising as far as your health. And I wish I could give a good answer to you, but just once you know, we're thinking of you. We love you. Has the coronavirus affected anyone you know? Sadly, uh, and this is wrestling related, first coronavirus death that of somebody I personally knew was... Uh, uh, Cosmos. I'll call him Cosmos because that's how I always knew him. I didn't know his name was Rafael de la Torre until he friended me on Facebook a few years ago. And this is a pretty rough one for me because uh, Cosmos was one of the, he wasn't like the very first decade's worth of uh, local luchadores here in Los Angeles, you know, or part of a really, really uh, big community here. And when I say community, I mean community. Um, Cosmos was a very talented wrestler here in the Southland. I first saw him in 1981, and if you go onto my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of him bleeding like crazy. And that was a picture I took in 1981 of him. And even though I had not yet trained to be a wrestler, you know, there are certain things I'd observe, and what I noticed about him even before training was here was a guy who was a really good worker and took really good care of his, his opponents. But as far as himself, he loved to bump hard. He loved to bump hard and he loved to do crazy topes. Crazy topes for the day, which are probably outdone today. But what's really, uh, 
I, I, this is going to sound like a kind of a made up story, but the first night I actually met Cosmos was July 23rd, 1983, because that was the night of my very first match in Bell, California. And uh, he was in the main event <clears throat> versus one of the KKK. And uh, it was cool meeting him just because I had seen him at Hadco Plaza and several of the other places that had the local indie boys. And he was handing out cigars commemorating the birth of his daughter. And uh, nine years later, believe it or not, in that very same building, the Azteca Gym, Fisico uh, Nuclear was having his second match with me, his second professional match ever. And Cosmos just happened to be in the main event. Uh, he's dropping his hair. I can't remember who he dropped his hair to, but that same daughter, they did an angle where the daughter came into the ring after he got his hair cut and put a hat over his head. And then this last week, I called uh, Superboy uh, to ask if it's true that Cosmos had passed because I saw it on Facebook, but I only saw one mention. So I was hoping, hoping it was just a rumor. And Superboy told me, yeah, both Cosmos and his daughter both had the virus. And uh, thankfully, very thankfully, the daughter's okay. She's healed. It looked like he was going to make it. His kidneys were infected, but... Um, apparently, uh, the rest of his, uh, his system was just shutting down and, uh, uh, this is a rough one for me and it is for all the local boys. He was, uh, it's so funny. Uh, <laughs> um, I saw him a lot when I started working Lucha shows in the early nineties and then I didn't see him for years. He, he, you know, eventually retired because of all those bumps, you know, even when I was wrestling in the early 90s, I could tell how bad he was hurting. And he was only like maybe five years older than me. And then about four years ago, there was uh, a show that was honoring uh, Falcon de Oro, Gilariano, who was like the granddaddy of uh, pro wrestling in Los Angeles, as far as Lucha Libre scene goes. And I saw Cosmos there and it dawned on the both of us. We had not seen each other in over 20 years. And he looked at me and said, last time I saw you, and I, and I told him, like, yeah, when was the last time? It's been a long time. He says, last time was when you and I worked with that crazy promoter. <laughs> and I stared at him and said, Cosmos, that crazy promoter is probably like three quarters of the promoters that we've wrestled for. That could be anybody. And he goes, oh, you know that funny white boy with a mustache uh, who thought he was a punk? And I go, Handsome Harry, yes, that's the last time we saw each other. <laughs> Wait, ha Harry Hell was a promoter? Yes, and that first show he promoted went over gangbusters, but he flamed out shortly after that. Well, there's a lot of flaming out on this episode so far. <laughs> oh, sugar, if I can only get started. Oh, how far can I take how far can I take these listeners? Mm, is every gonna be everybody's gonna be in my Facebook feed tonight. And when I say feed, I do mean feed. Ooh. Well, Kurt, I'm real sorry to hear about Cosmos. I, I know. No, thank you. He, he, no, seriously, he was a wonderful guy, and he was a very humble guy too. He wasn't full of shit, you know. He wasn't. He didn't try to make himself out to be anything bigger than a local boy, and very talented worker too. And just, you know, feel bad and just thinking about all the, uh, the local boys who were affected by his passing. Well, it's good to hear that his daughter's okay. Or I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Yes. 
Let's uh, let's change gears a little bit here, Kurt. I have in my hand right now a copy of the City of Calgary Boxing and Wrestling Commission Bylaws 14M86 Rules and Regulations Governing Professional Boxing and Wrestling from 1987. Brian, before we went out of the air, you promised me you would have no works of fiction <laughs> in this episode. Well... It's boxing and wrestling. I mean, we'll see what this says. Did you ever get a rule book when you, uh, were you licensed? I mean, did you actually, actually have to get a yeah, license? I had to get a license. Here's the freakiest thing. And I hope this doesn't take us too out of left field, but getting a wrestling license was really easy. I got my first wrestling license in 1983, got a renewed in 84. Uh, it was a, the, first time I got the license was a joke because the Reverend Dr. Bernhard Schwartz uh, did my physical. Uh, he was psychic. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Well, I knew that when I, when I met him because he had all my stats already filled out except for my height and my weight. <laughs> my blood pressure was perfect. I had no, am, no abnormalities. I didn't suffer from venereal disease. I didn't have hemorrhoids, thank God. Um, but it was already filled out before, you know, I just gave him my 20 bucks. Uh, next year, the doctor uh, examined me very carefully. But when I went to get a referee's license in 1988, man, I had to jump through some, some hoops. It was harder getting a referee's license in California than a wrestler's license. I had to get fingerprinted. I had to give photos. Well, it's always those referees that are causing the problems. Yeah, you got to be careful. I hear that Red Shoes Dugan was quite the <laughs> crack fiend and loved to, like, uh, traffic children and shit like that you oh, know don't say that jesus Christ. i can see it in his eyes i can see it in his eyes when he was lambasting the heel he was really saying how much you want for 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 nine-year-old what when you see the new japan referee that they call red shoes are you okay with that or do you think no he's not red shoes <laughs> i saw red shoes at the olympic auditorium 40 years ago you know what? Red Shoes Dugan was the referee. He was the greatest referee I've ever seen, along with Hank Matheny. They were the perfect referee couple. Like, there's a photo of the 1974 Battle Royal right before it's about to take place, and the two of them are standing next to each other. That's the perfect, like, old-school referees. But you know what? Something I have learned. Who was Strangler Lewis? Was he Robert or Evan? Well, Evan Strangler Lewis was the original Strangler Lewis. And then, based on that, the wrestler who was to become Ed Strangler Lewis took the name. Pro wrestling is all about thievery. So who did Vandal Drummond steal from? You know what? I stole from <laughs> several sources. As, if, <laughs> if I was going to gauge who I got over best with... I was uh, kind of channeling a weird combination of Negro Casas, Terry Funk, and Jim Cornette. That's where I got the best pops from crowd, was from doing those three at the same time. And the lesson is, wrestling has always been about thievery. Wrestlers have stolen gimmicks. And this Red Shoes in New Japan, I think is pretty cool. I have no problem with him being Red Shoes. And... He didn't steal it nearly as bad as some wrestlers have stolen from other wrestlers. As far as I'm concerned, Evan Strangler-Lewis was thieved a lot more ruthlessly by Robert Friedrich 
than Red Shoes Dugan was by this Red Shoes. This Red Shoes is pretty talented. I mean, let's be honest. Look at the footage that's available there of Strangler Lewis, the second Strangler Lewis. Was he really all that? Well, you know, this is an interesting question, Kurt, and surprise, on the line right now, Steve Yohe to confront you over this blasphemy. Steve Yohe, I've wanted to talk to you about this for quite a while now. <laughs> no. And if you don't just bow to what I say, I will say that you have committed the three incestuous sins committed or decried by Dr. Jerry Graham. Although Dr. Jerry Graham might have indulged in those sins too, but what can I say? Yeah! Yeah! Sick your mother's pussy! You know. Well, let's get to this Calgary rule book before okay. we... Okay. Oh, yeah, Calgary! This has gone from the Calgary rule That's book That's a long ways away magazine. from what we were talking about. What are you doing to me, Brian? Well, here are the permit fees. The permit fee payable to the commission by the promoter for a permit for a regulated sports event shall be the greater of 3% of the gross ticket sales for the regulated sports event and the $100. The commission may, for regulated sports event, waive a portion of all the permit fee provided in Section 10. And then here are the uh, different fees. Promoter has to mm-hmm. pay 20 bucks. Wrestler, 20 bucks. Manager, other than wrestling manager. I don't know what, I guess a real manager, actually. 20 bucks. <laughs> Everyone down the board is 20 bucks. Does it have something for wrestling manager? No. Here's a section on promoters. Here's an interesting one. This is mm-hmm. the section on wrestling. At all professional wrestling regulated sports events, there shall be a timekeeper who shall A, sit outside the ring close to a bell or gong. I don't know, a gong. Can you imagine? <laughs> At the end of a match, you hit the gong. That would be amazing. <laughs> B. How about a whistle? Can I have a whistle instead? <laughs> be equipped with a stopwatch. C. Indicate the beginning and end of a match by ringing the bell or striking the gong. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Chuck Barris would be proud. All right. <laughs> oh gosh. If only I could be a tall man. I miss my calling. If I could be a timekeeper in Calgary, I could have gonged the wrestlers when they sucked in the ring. Here's your timekeeper at the bell, J.P. Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) And who's that guy with that sack over his head over there? (laughs) And D, when the match ends before the time limit, advise the master of ceremonies of the time of the match. Hmm. Professional wrestlers shall confine their activities to the ring and shall not participate in any manner or fashion in those areas normally occupied by spectators. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to picture somebody describing that to a wrestler, a, a young indie wrestler today. Well, if I have to do it all in the ring, how do I get over? Wrestling outside the ring is strictly prohibited. How about brawling though? Brawling is totally different. I always wanted to have a good wrestling contest outside of the ring. Wrestling, I mind you. Contestants must be properly clothed for public appearance and wear protective gear. Oh, that takes all the fun out of it. No wrestler shall A, use profanity in the ring or in any public area. (laughs) So that's why Dr. Jerry Graham didn't last long in Calgary. (laughs) B, spit into the crowd. 
That's okay. I had my I had my wrestler when I was managing craze. I had him spit up in the air and I caught his spit in my mouth. So oh. I did. Oh, I had to. <laughs> what do you mean you had to? Well, okay. Moondog Moretti said that he, you know, Moondog Moretti's thing was when he was younger, he would spit in the air and catch it in his mouth. But one night when he was teaming with this guy, Terry Adonis in Vancouver, he spit up into the air and Adonis shoved him out of the way and caught it in his mouth. So I said, I got to do a tribute to somebody. And I said, what better tribute? And so when Rob Courtney, now when you use the full name Rob Courtney, that's his real name, folks. Look him up on Facebook and, and tell him that I caught his spit in my mouth. He'll be very happy to hear that. Okay, that's R-O-B-B. Okay. <laughs> Last name is C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. That was the reason I said spit up in the air, and I would shove him out of the way, and i catch it in my mouth, and I, I would swallow it. And I, I, people were so grossed out about it. I said, it's no different if we French kissed. What's the big deal? No. So that spitting thing is, is Calgary. Okay, so Calgary sucks. All right, you can't well, spit. No wrestler shall see, strike, or apply pressure to, or in the region of, an opponent's scrotum. <laughs> I can't believe Incredibly this. strange wrestling ain't come to Calgary anytime soon, I guess. D, have in his possession or use any sharp or pointed object. E, strike, grab, or push a spectator. And F, do any act not in keeping with decency and good taste. God, Calgary. No wonder Lance Storm is such a boring guy. Who wrote this book? Ed Whalen? Uh, Lance Storm wrote it. <laughs> I don't care if he wasn't born yet. He fucking wrote that book. That book sounds like as about exciting as he sounds. Well, he was born. This is from 1987. When a referee is injured during a match and incapable of continuing to officiate, the wrestlers shall retire to their corners until a substitute referee <laughs> enters the ring and directs the match to continue. <laughs> I'm picturing Abdul the Butcher in a match like that. I shall retire to my corner. You know, it's crazy because, like, you see, like, in various old programs and stuff, like, you know, the official NWA rules of 1974, that's, like, written by the promotion in a... Yeah promotional material and a promotional program but the most profound thing being you can't throw an opponent over the rope thus thou she be disqualified this is actually put out by the city of calgary these are like if someone sat down and wrote out rules for wrestling if any part of the ring becomes loosened or unfastened the referee shall direct wrestlers into neutral areas until the problem is rectified <laughs> the match will not be allowed to resume until the referee indicates that wrestlers may do so <laughs> the I love may, this. The commission may order a medical examination of a wrestler or referee at any time for the purpose of determining whether the referee or wrestler is fit to engage in matches <laughs> or exhibitions. <laughs> Abdullah just put a fork in my forehead, but I think I am fit to engage, sir. A raised barrier... Surrounding the ring on all sides shall be placed between the ring and spectators. The barrier may be rope or similar material. The barrier must be a minimum of five feet from the edge of the ring. They say the barrier must be raised? It must Is be that raised. what they're saying? That's what they How saying. do you raise a barrier? Let me ask you that. How do you raise a barrier? <laughs> it's a raised barrier. Oh, no, I thought raise a barrier. What, do you just kind of stroke it softly till it's the height you want it? 
A clear aisle of an absolute minimum of five feet must lead to each of the four corners of the ring. An entrance aisle to the ring may be left open and remaining and the, excuse me, and the remaining three corners may have a barrier running through them. What I would give, what I would give, oh God, oh God, Brian, Brian, think about this. What I would give, if you went to the commission, says we have this thing called a Texas death match, but you need to write the rules because, let's face it, you've seen all those old wrestling programs. Complete morons wrote those. Wouldn't it have been great if the commission, this Calgary commission, California commission, whatever, wrote the rules to a Texas death match. Now, Barry Rose told me the rules to a Texas death match once. I thought it was a pretty complex thing, but there was a Texas death match at Atlanta between Baron Van Raschke and, and Tony Atlas. And Barry Rose proudly stated, yes, the rules basically state that this match does not end until one man is dead. And while everybody around me was telling him to shut up and let them enjoy the matches, I was like, hey, right on, Barry Rose. Was this the same Atlanta show with the cage match? Yes, it was. Wow, what a night. Oh, it was one of the greatest nights of my life. I almost ran a car off the road because I didn't understand what power steering was. <laughs> you never even told me about that. I'm not joking even. I'm not, this ain't like a joke or anything. What it was, uh, an awesome guy named Dave Ruth was hanging with us. Um, he's a guy who's been a referee on the Southern scene since beginning of time, essentially. And uh, we were driving somewhere in his dad's car, and we kept getting lost. And uh, I can't remember. I think he was getting tired or something. So let me take the wheel. And see, I was raised on cars, on old, old cars, like a Travelall International, where you – had to have pretty good muscles in your arms to steer those motherfuckers. Um, that was the only part of my body that had any strength was from driving my dad's cars. So I get in this car, and we're driving down the highway somewhere in Georgia, which I knew nothing about, and I tried to change lanes. And so I steer, and I pretty much almost drove us off the road, and everybody who was half asleep was then all so awake. Because I almost wrecked the car because I didn't understand power steering, but it was quite, you know, when you're 18 and you don't understand power steering and you discover it, it's, you know, it's something you write about when you get older. <laughs> or speak about it on a podcast. Yeah, the podcast, exactly. In early matches, all wrestlers and managers will be escorted to and from the ring by a minimum of two security staff. <laughs> During the matches... A security staff member will be assigned to stand immediately outside the ring in the corner diagonally across from the entrance area. For the final three matches on the card, all wrestlers and managers will be escorted to and from the ring by a minimum of four security staff, and two security staff members will be assigned to be immediately outside the ring in any two corners other than the entrance corner. And any two wrestlers who have a match that's less than two and a half discard, uh, two and a half stars are automatically disqualified for not having a five-star match. All security staff members must be dressed in identical jackets or sweaters or be clearly identified as security staff. Security staff shall ensure that all spectators are prevented from interference in the wrestling event. No animals! except seeing-eye dogs are allowed on the premises where a wrestling-regulated sports event takes place, unless the commission otherwise directs. 
Okay, Brian, is there an asterisk next to any of that in that last thing you just said? Uh, no, unfortunately. And, and finally. Oh, shit. No, no, no. That's it. No, this is this is important. The seeing eye dog. The wrestling bear. Oh, I guess. How do you handle the wrestling bear? I guess. Is he an, is he an honorary human? I guess he wasn't allowed in Calgary. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Was this mid-70s when these were written? Well, this edition was... Because I was thinking that's when that's when Ed Asner was working on the movie The Wrestler. Maybe he, like, was the wrestling bear for a few years? I don't know about that. Just a thought! <laughs> and finally, when the majority of wrestlers taking part in a regulated sports event belong to or are under contract to an organization or person who does not hold a City of Calgary promoter's permit, a promoter's permit must be applied for before the regulated sports event takes place. The sections on boxing, karate, and kickboxing are like one word each. <laughs> That's funny. And actual, actual competitive sports get a simple explanation where a work sport is treated like chess. Yeah, for instance, karate. The World Karate Association rules, as amended from time to time, are hereby adopted as regulations and shall, where applicable, apply to all karate-regulated sports events. Same thing here. The World Karate Association rules are hereby amended, applying to all kickboxing-regulated sporting events. It's wrestling that appears to be the problem here. Because <laughs> wrestling is complex, man. It's complex, baddie. You know? Stay away from the scrotum, I guess is one of the big takeaways. <laughs> Avoid the scrotum. Well, moving along with the show, real quick here, want to send out a congratulations. Happy anniversary to Dan Farron. Yes, Dan and Mary Lou, God bless you guys. Those were adorable pictures you put on Facebook with your uh, COVID-19 masks. Nothing says love. Okay, COVID yeah, God bless you guys. Seriously, Dan Farron has been my friend for 31 years now. I met him, Mary Lou, Danny Wolf, Johnny Legend, Greg Regalado, the Hanna Brothers, and several other people. Danny Wolf at San Bernardino Arena in 1989, all on the same day. And we are all friends today. Also, congratulations, John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. Stick to wrestling right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. About to hit episode 100. Right on. And want to send our best wishes. Get well soon. Jeff Baldrin, host of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry a longtime friend of the show, great guest, great co-host here on the show. He has been battling cancer, uh, lymphoma, in fact, and uh, he's so far kicking its ass. I know he's had several treatments for chemotherapy. Way to go. Can I just say I am a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, and uh, just reading about his treatments, I can tell that mine was a cakewalk compared to his. And I just want to say power to you, and uh, we have not met face-to-face, -face, but I love you, and keep fighting it. I mean, it's worth the fight. It really is. And uh, he's going to keep fighting, and I'm pretty confident Jeff's going to do all right here. He's a tough guy, and uh, he's got a lot of people pulling for him. But uh, get well soon, Baldrin the Booker. We all love you. Also want to make a few other notes here. Frank the Collector, a friend of the show who I've mentioned in the past, and you'll probably be hearing him on the show uh, in one of the upcoming episodes, he has always sent some very interesting stuff, some very cool stuff that I add to my collection. I mean. He's the one who sent me a Lord James Bleer's monocle in the original package. I mean, just really. Holy shit, no way. 
Yeah, way. That's cool. <laughs> I feel like it's Wayne's World all of a sudden here. Oh, fuck. Every time I find a newspaper article on uh, Lord Blair's and send it to you, I'm thinking, oh, that's cool. He'll like this story I found on Lord Blair's. But, oh, man, that pales comparison to what a monocle. Frank the Collector, you rock. You rock. Well, Seriously. Frank the Collector just sent something else in. He sent several autographed photos, 8 by 10s I believe the majority of the wrestlers in here have passed on since they signed these, but he verifies the authenticity of these. I have no reason to doubt him. He is a serious collector. Anyone who knows him or has dealt with him knows this. We're going to be doing a giveaway for these. We're going to figure out exactly what kind of contest we want to do, but we're going to be doing a giveaway for some 8 by 10 autograph photos probably either next episode or the episode after that. Stay tuned, but thank you to Frank the Collector for sending Way these. to go, Frank the Collector. I, t- I told you about, you know, so you're saying the autographs are all people who have since probably passed on, right? Uh, I believe... They're the majority. Yeah, one of them may not be, but the rest of them, yes. Yeah, but generally the majority. I, I, I tried to uh, see how gullible Dave Meltzer was when at Cauliflower they were like hawking his uh, tributes book to wrestlers who have passed on. And I said, if you want to sell them faster, just make an advertising claim that they're autographed by all the wrestlers uh, featured in the book. Well, that wouldn't be right. Well, Dave thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) It was typical Dave Meltzer, where I told him that, and five seconds passed, and then he burst out laughing. Anybody who knows Dave knows that he has a time delay when it comes to taking in a joke. He'll sit there and just think about it for a minute, and then he'll just uncontrollably laugh. A <laughs> couple more notes here before we move on with the show. Unfortunately, as many of you know, we put out a special episode, and I talked about it on the Jim Cornette experience. Scott Bowden passed away. Scott had been a guest and a co-host here on the show, really did great on some of our Star Wars specials, and of course was the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. What I'm going to do, and... Based on how long we go, I don't know if this is going to be a one-part or a two-part episode as we're recording, but at the end of the show, after the outro music, I'm going to play some outtakes from Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Scott wrote these scripts. I really liked his writing, and I always encouraged him to write stuff for Kentucky Fried Wrestling's podcast because I wanted it to have the same voice as those articles that I love so much. And what started as him writing intros of he and I explaining what was on the episode became this weird back and forth that he created that was so funny that it would take us take after take after take after take to get it right. So we're going to play some of these outtakes uh, as a little bit of a tribute to Scott. I think everyone will get a kick out of it. It was a lot of fun. He was someone who I had as much fun recording with as anyone else I've ever recorded with. And you'll hear a little bit of that after the outro music here this week. On the can I can I just say I uh, the only time I really hung with him was at the last cauliflower rally, and uh, the time I really actually hung hung with him was everybody else uh, had gone to bed and Howard Baum and uh, he and I were just all still really buzzed and we got even more buzzed and we got totally trashed and we went to a Chinese restaurant and I think maybe only five other people were in the whole restaurant but we were so so buzzed and wasted that at some point we looked at each other and said, what do you think would happen if we did a podcast where we're all just totally trashed like that? Would it work or would it just sound like, like us muttering? And then we just all started cracking up because I remember we tried to make jokes to each other, but we were so messed up that we couldn't even get to the punchline. But 
Um, I know that probably sounds nonsensical, but it was a very fun moment and a very fun time I had with both uh, Travis and uh, Howard Baum. Well, like I said, stay tuned after the outro music. If this is a two-part episode, it'll be after part two. But here's some outtakes from me and Scott Bowden on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And as we get ready to move on with the show, I want to mention that the 605 Super Podcast is sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, and of course, another great new release from Clem Snide. Forever Just Beyond, out now, a new release on Ramsor Records, produced by Scott Avitt of the Avitt Brothers. You can get a copy of this record. You could stream it. You could download it. You could purchase the CD or vinyl at orcd.co slash forever just beyond. Once again, orcd.co slash forever just beyond the brand new album by Clem Snide. I was listening to it earlier today. Some good stuff there. Great job of production here from Scott Avid. I think it was actually parts of it were recorded on Scott Avid's farm in North Carolina. So definitely check this out. Once again, Clem Snide, Forever Just Beyond, orcd.co slash forever just beyond. But with that, let's move on with the show. Glad to welcome back in our next segment, Al Getz from charting the territories he was on the show previously talking about the statistics he developed to evaluate classic professional wrestling he's back with more let's go right now to my conversation with al getz i am very happy to welcome back to the super podcast today an old friend of the show you may remember him as the manager al getz for various independent promotions including for dennis carluzzo many years ago but more specifically, we're going to talk to him about something that we talked to him about about a year ago or so here on the Super Podcast, his website, chartingtheterritories.com, the research he has been doing, and the new statistics he has developed and applied to wrestling history. It's something that opens the door to a lot of discussions and a lot of new ways of looking at and analyzing wrestling history and the success certain wrestlers had in various different territories. Al, thanks for being back here today. Thanks for having me back, Brian. I appreciate it. So again, the website is chartingtheterritories.com. And before we talk about what you've been up to currently, what have you been up to since your last appearance? When you last came on the show, you had really just launched a website. You had just introduced this new statistic spot, statistical position over time, I believe. Correct. And what have you been doing on charting the territories since that time? How many different territories have you looked at? Has there been a specific area you tried to push your research towards? Let us know what you've been up to in the months after your last appearance. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, uh, after going through several different territories, uh, I realized that there's not enough time left in my life to cover them all for the time period I want to. So I was faced with the decision either to focus on a narrower time frame, like maybe do 1978 through 1984 and do as many territories as I can, or, or try and just focus it on one territory. And I was going through uh, all the territories in my head. There were a couple that stood out um, as having very long runs that don't really get as much appreciation nowadays as they should. And in particular, I pick one that a lot of people talk about 
greatly for a very short time period, but for the previous 20 years, really doesn't get that much attention. And it's also a fascinating territory because its geography changed drastically over time. And it also had uh, a lot of times where it was just loaded with talent that we all know. And there are times when the talent roster is not uh, up to snuff comparatively speaking. So I decided to focus on what we refer to today as the tri-state wrestling territory, even though it doesn't appear to have been called that until after Leroy McGurk split with Bill Watts in 1979. But basically the McGurk territory, and I'm focusing on uh, the time period from Danny Hodge's debut, which was October 2nd, 1959, all the way through the split with the Culkins, the split with Watts, the Leroy going out of business, Bill taking over Mid-South Wrestling up until rebranding it, the UWF, in March of 86. So it's about a 26 and a half year period of time for one territory that I'm focusing all my energies on. Are you also looking at Bill Watts when he broke off until 1982 when he purchases Leroy McGurk's territory. You're looking at that period too, from 79 to 82 in Louisiana yes. and Mississippi. Yes. Uh, yeah. So basically any part of that, of the territory of the McGurk Watts territory after the mid seventies, um, I will also look at as well. So the Culkins territory actually just yesterday, I uh, had a Facebook conversation with Gil Culkin and he gave me some good leads on some towns that they ran uh, where the results are not available in most of the major results sites or books. Um, but yeah, we'll look at almost a side-by-side -side of Watts and McGurk uh, between 79 and 82 uh, when they were each running one end of what had been a much larger territory uh, until that time. And, and at the same time, in addition to the statistics I've developed, I'm also feverishly attempting to build the database of uh, wrestling shows that we have. I currently, I just got back from Baton Rouge a couple of weeks ago, and I've taken several trips to libraries or state archives. I currently, over a 27-year period, have over 14,200 different shows in my files. And as best I can tell, about half of those are not available on sites such as Cage Match, WrestlingData.com, the Clawmasters archives, or or uh, any of the major books that list results for the territory. So I found a lot of stuff that we knew about, but we didn't have detailed listings of you know the weekly lineups. Of the fourteen thousand plus shows that you have in your database, what's your favorite? When, well, I'm not going to ask you that, but. <laughs> Are you able to determine what percentage of the actual shows that were run over that period of time, that 14,000 covers? My guesstimate is between 60% and 70%. And it varies on the time period. There are some time periods, particularly in the early 70s, where it looks like we have a larger percentage of shows. In some of the later Mid-South years, we don't have a lot because they were running a lot of spot shows on the weekends, and those are much harder to find. Um, we also, in the early days before they even went into Louisiana, when they were just running Oklahoma and small parts of Arkansas and Missouri, we seem to be missing a lot. But they also, a lot of them were spot shows, and they could have run shows with as few as four wrestlers. They would have a tag team match as the main event and, and open it up with two prelims that are captain's matches. So when I look in my data and I see, you know, of all the wrestlers in the territory this week on Tuesday, how many of them do I have on the one or two shows I have? 
it's really hard to tell if I'm missing one because sometimes some of the preliminary wrestlers are used as referees or also are just on hand in case a wrestler gets hurt or no-shows. So if we're only missing a few wrestlers, I can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm missing a show. So uh, as my, my best estimate is I've got almost two-thirds of the total, but I could be off uh, by a lot. And in and, and different time periods, I might have closer to half, and in some time periods, I might have 80%. Are there any time periods where you think that you have greater than 80%. Is there any time period where you have as close to 95 to 100% as possible? Without knowing what their TV taping schedule was in the early 70s, I can't really answer that because a lot of times when I'm missing, you know, a crew worth of wrestlers, they might have been doing, you know, a live TV tape because, you know, back then they didn't have one tape that bicycled around and around. It looks like they were doing different TVs in different markets. I know Oklahoma City was taped live on Saturday nights, and I believe Tulsa was taped separately. And if I had to guess, it looks like there's some time period where it's Thursday during the day. But I, I you know, I, I try and take this almost as a like a, a forensic scientist approach where I take the data I have and try and use it to guess what I don't have. And I just don't like guessing to, to that extent because I, I could be way off and I don't like looking foolish. Um, what I will say, and we might get into talking about this, is because of Jim Cornette's uh, detailed note taking when it came to the Midnight Express, I was able to find a lot of spot shows because he has the towns and the dates listed in his book. The, the issue with finding spot towns, if you have to go to a library to research a newspaper, a weekly town is very easy because you know they ran every Tuesday and the ads might have run Sunday and Tuesday. For a spot town, when they only come once or twice a year, you're going through a year's worth of, of newspapers to hopefully find one. It, it's, it's not worth the time it takes. But if we know the date of a show, it's much easier to go and locate that ad. So because of Cornette's records, I was able to find at the Baton Rouge uh, at Louisiana State's archives a number of spot shows for during the Midnight Express's run that uh, we have the whole cards for. Before we get too deep into the weeds here, because I'm geeking out talking to you about this, explain again for the listeners, and especially all the new listeners, what spot is. Again, spot is a statistic that you've developed that could be applied to wrestling history as a way to help determine, I guess the best way to put it is the strength of a certain wrestler well, well, in a it's, certain period of time in a certain territory. It's either cleverly or ridiculously titled. It stands for statistical position over time, which sounds confusing, but the acronym pretty much tells you what it measures. And that's a wrestler's spot on the cards. Uh, it's a number between zero and one. I usually express it uh, with two decimal places. So from a 0 0.00 to a 1.00. And a 1.00 means a wrestler was always in the main event on every show they were booked on for a certain time period covered. Um, much like batting average, you know, typically you see it for a season, but you can see it for a career. You could see it for a month. You could see it for a week. Same thing goes with spot. I look at the advertised lineups and basically put them in order. And the main event gets a 1.00. The other matches get progressively lower scores based on the number of matches on the card. So, for example, if it's a five matches on the show, the opening match gets a one out of five or a 0.20. 
the second match a two out of five, so on and so forth, and the main event gets a five out of five or a one. And then over a several-week period, you take the average of all a wrestler's bookings, and you come up with a number between .00 and one. And generally speaking, anyone with a .80 or above is considered a main eventer um, because they are generally rotating in and out of main events and semi-main events with the other main eventers in the territory. Someone with a 0.60 to a 0.80 is an upper mid-carder. Someone with a 0.40 to a 0.60 is a mid-carder. And anyone below a 0.40 is a preliminary wrestler. And, and those numbers I came up with to separate the categories are arbitrary, obviously, but I wanted them to be round numbers. And really, when you look at a territory and you look at the roster, it really kind of does a good job of separating who the main eventers were, who the upper mid-carders were, who the mid-carders were, and who the preliminary wrestlers were. And you can track over a longer period of time a wrestler's movement up and down the cards in a territory. Obviously, when we think of the territories, when a new, a new person comes in, they usually put them in the opening matches and give them a progressive string of victories um, and build them up to a certain point. With a spot rating, you can actually track that week by week and look at their spot rating move up and look at them move from the preliminary bouts to the mid cards and then eventually perhaps to the main events. Before I ask you about the new statistic that you have developed, let's talk a little bit more about some of the things you've already mentioned here. In terms of the research you're doing, you say you just got back from Baton Rouge. So many of us think now that everything's online, that you can go online and beyond the databases that currently exist of wrestling results you can go to newspapers.com various newspapers have their own websites you can go through their archives what is it like nowadays in 2020 to go into a library how much is there that is still out there that local libraries have that is not online or readily accessible to someone in new york for instance there are enough major towns that it's been worth it for me to go travel. Um, the most major town of uh, the McGurk Territory that is not on the newspaper archive sites online is Tulsa. Tulsa is not on any of them. And that's a Neither major town. Uh, yeah, that, that's a, and, and yeah, that was uh, Leroy's number two town, let alone, you know, the second largest city in, you know, a state. And Bill Watts is number one town. Yeah. Uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is not necessarily a major town, but it was a weekly town for decades for Leroy, uh, was not online. Um, and there are there are there are enough others that it's worth it for me to go travel uh, to these towns. Also, nowadays, aside from just an individual library that has just the local newspaper, there are. Um, some state archives or uh, state universities that have all of the newspapers for the entire state all housed in one place, which obviously makes a researcher's life a lot easier. I th and I think that's how uh, Robert Van Kevler in Florida got his start, was at uh, his local university library. He was able to find not only, you know, Miami or Tampa or, or whatever, but also all the newspapers, all the other weekly towns in Florida. And that's how he started doing his thing. Um, with, you know, and I know him and Barry Rose and Scott Teal have done some stuff together. I actually, in my mailbox downstairs, I have Scott Teal's latest um, books of the programs from Florida for 1970 and 1971 waiting for me. It's great stuff there. But 
on that topic, what typically are you looking at? Is it still microfilm? I mean, what what are you looking yes. at when you go to these libraries? Yeah. It is. It's it's microfilm and it's not a searchable index. Obviously, with the ones that are online where you know you have subscriptions and it has, you know, newspapers, you can type in wrestling or Danny Hodge and a time period, and it spits out you know, which newspapers, uh, you know, in that time frame have Danny Hodge, you know, through text recognition, uh, in the libraries, it's still the old fashioned way of, of going through microfilm at the very least. Nowadays, you don't have to print them out. You can usually save them, uh, to a USB drive, which is a little bit easier for record keeping and storage. It cuts out a step. Um, but again, if you don't know exactly what you're looking for and where it is, you sometimes have to work pretty hard. And, and, you know, that's why I say spot towns are so hard. A weekly town, you know the day of the week they run, and they run the ads on the same schedule every week. You get a good feel for, like, the size of a newspaper. If you're scrolling through a roll of microfilm that has, you know, two months' worth of newspapers, you can tell how long it takes to get, you know, to scroll forward a week on, you know, on, on high speed. And sometimes you can stop on a dime. Also, you know, when you're scrolling through it real fast, you really can't see what you're looking at on the screen. But because the Sunday paper often had the parade section or the cartoons, which just look different when you're scrolling real fast through them. And I know I'm getting real nerdy. Um, you can sometimes, OK, now I'm on Sunday. So if I'm looking for Tuesday's paper, I'm just going to go a little bit further. Um, so. You can use some little tricks to cut down on your research time, but it's like playing poker, which I used to do a lot of. It's hours and hours of sheer boredom interspersed with minutes of sheer excitement. You mentioned earlier that from the research you've done, Leroy McGurk's territory was not referred to as tri-state wrestling until after the split with Bill Watts in 79. Typically, what was it referred to in the newspapers as? Uh, well, in the newspapers, it just says wrestling. Um, I believe the, the business entity was called Midwest Championship Wrestling. I haven't seen anywhere, you know, any source that actually uses that name. Uh, but I believe similar to Memphis for many years, it was just, you know, Championship Wrestling was the name of the TV show. Um, and, and the ads in the paper, it just says wrestling. Um, or maybe sometimes championship wrestling. Um, Leroy was usually, you know, was often listed as matchmaker or promoter, depending on what state they were in. They had local promoters, which sometimes were true local promoters and sometimes were just in name only. Uh, but yeah, they, you know, they, they, they didn't call them, didn't call it anything but wrestling. And, and, you know, and they probably just called it wrestling. When you're doing all this research and you're able to, gather all this data from a specific city or a specific town over a long period of time. Is there a way to use that that you've thought of yet? I mean, obviously, so much of what you're doing with Spot, and we'll talk about your new statistic in a moment, is about applying what a wrestler did in a certain place to the wrestler. It's developing a statistic that's applied to the wrestler. Is there a way to use this data to, I don't know if it's based on house show attendance or what it is, but to actually apply it to a city, so like someplace like Baton Rouge, you can look at a 20-year, 30-year history of it and tell the story of Baton Rouge. And I know I'm talking, just throwing words together right now. <laughs> it may not make well, much sense, but hopefully you, you can understand what I'm trying to say here. I, yeah, I did something close to what you're talking about. Well, 
what we can do is we can sort of weigh the towns by looking at who's in the main events. For example, we commonly, you know, have terminology like an A town or and a B town. It's not often that simple, but for simplicity's sake, let's say uh, on Mondays uh, for a time period in the McGurk territory, he ran Tulsa and Shreveport. Uh, later on, Shreveport became a very important town, but at first, in the very early 60s, it was a B town. And you can look at who's in the main events in Tulsa, you know, week after week over a several month period of time, and who's in the main events of of Shreveport and compare them. And using a number like Spot, you can say the guy that main evented this show in Shreveport, normally in the rest of the territory, he's an upper mid Carter. So I could probably come up with a formula to put a number to that. And I actually think I did at one point. Um, so you could do that. But the problem is it changes over time. Like I mentioned, Shreveport eventually became a very important part of the territory. And that would be something interesting to track. Another thing you can do is look at across territories. So here's an example. And I'm just throwing this name out. It might not be very accurate, but let's say Tom Pritchard when he's in Pacific Northwest, when he's in Portland, he's an upper mid-carder. And then from there, he goes to, let's say, Texas, where he's a mid-carder. Aren't we inherently saying that Texas is a stronger territory than Portland? Because a guy around the same time in his career was an upper mid-carder in one place and a mid-carder in another. And as long as, you know, we factor out things like nepotism or favoritism or, you know, being a local boy— we can, we can, yeah, yeah, we can, we can, we can look at someone's career path and all the places they go to, and we can find out when was Florida the most stacked? When were the main, you know, when were the top five main adventures in Florida, guys who literally could have main evented in any territory at that point in time? And then, you know, in 1980 in Florida, when you've got Derek Draper, and, and I love me some Ed Wiskowski, don't get me wrong, but when Derek Draper now all of a sudden is a main eventer, can we use that to say this is now a downtime for Florida? And can we put a number to that? Can we look at relative strength of territories and find out for a given year, you know, when is Florida's peak? When is Mid-Atlantic's peak? When is Amarillo's peak? And, and sort of look and see, you know, who the top territory was at different points in time. That's a, a long goal of, of what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, for now, my focus is just on finishing one territory and trying to get a complete as possible record of all the shows um, and then applying spot. And as we're about to discuss a new statistic, and I'll let you unveil its name uh, just because I, I, I want to give you the excitement. I know you can't wait. <laughs> well, the, do you know the well, do you know the acronym or do you just know what it stands for? The new statistic you've developed is feud, which stands for frequent encounters using data. And oh. I must admit, I've looked at a little bit of what you've done here, and I really want to hear you explain it because I. Again, I'm fascinated with Spot and the fact that you've now introduced a second statistic, and I certainly hope you introduce more because I think the more different ways we have to look at this data, the better we can do, like on a Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame special, to really weigh the strength of a wrestler over their career in various different places. So now you have a second statistic, feud. I want you to tell me about it, but also... How long was it in development? Was it something you had been thinking about and you had to put together the exact mechanism to develop it? Or how was Feud developed and explain exactly what it is? 
Uh, well, it's something I wanted to track. Um, and basically, I, I, as you can tell by the name to our listeners, it sort of tracks who a wrestler is married to most often at any given point in time. And I call it a feud score. Sometimes it's not necessarily a feud. Sometimes it's just a guy is wrestling another guy on you know several shows over a several week period. Other times, obviously, it's a feud. Um, and I, I wanted to you know, come up with some sort of metric for it, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And a lot of that goes back to how territories were booked at various points in time. And certainly in the uh, in the early 60s, a lot of the towns that McGurk ran don't seem to have had TV. In fact, I know Fort Smith, Arkansas didn't have TV for many years, and all they had was a five-minute segment on the local news the afternoon of the house show where they would just bring out the guys and do promos. And and even when they had TV, there weren't the the big angles that we think of when we think of Mid-South wrestling. A lot of times it was they just presented the wrestlers and the angles and the things that led to big matches in your local town was what happened in your local town last week. And that didn't always follow the same pattern, you know, from night to night, from town to town. A lot of times, whether or not, you know, the finish of a match was dictated by attendance. If a show drew really well for a particular main event, they would run a disputed finish and come back with a rematch the next week. If it didn't draw well, maybe they would just end it and have the baby face over clean and and try something else the next week. So, you know, it's not... Lawler wrestling Dundee every night of the week for 17 weeks straight, um, which is what it became when when TV syndication, you know, made it easy to get that one tape out there. So the idea is to sort of look at the matches in each town and and compile a list of who wrestled who most often and, and how I did it. It's not just a listing of the number of times they face one another. Um, it's a weighted score. Um, I use when I present a feud score for a week, it's actually based on a five week period that includes that week and then the two weeks prior and the two weeks after. So the, and that week in the middle is weighted higher than than the outlying weeks. So what I say is it measures the intensity of a feud and the higher the number, the more often they're working each other. And, and because it covers a five week period, a feud with a really high feud score is one that's doing so well that it's it's getting repeat ma- repeat matches in certain towns and maybe because of the bicycle effect you know you might be capturing the first match in one town the second match in another town and the third match in in a third town and you really get a feel for when a feud's peak was and how long it lasted. And and I put together some data uh, that I think we're going to discuss for Magnum TA uh, when he was in Mid-South Wrestling. And you really can see who his most frequent opponents are when he first starts out, how he moves up the cards, looking at his spot rating, and then looking at the feud scores and seeing, okay, when he was a main eventer, his big opponents were this, this, and this. And this feud lasted this long a period of time, but this feud didn't last as long. And you get a little more context. And as I was telling you earlier, you know, before we went on the air, um, you know, and thinking about the number of deaths we've had recently, someone like a Randy Colley doesn't have a stat line. A baseball player that wasn't an all-star, that wasn't a Hall of Famer, he still has something 
on the back of a baseball card, or I guess now on ESPN.com, that you can look at that quantifies his career. In this year, he was with this team. His batting average was this. He hit this many home runs. There's nothing like that in wrestling. And so this sort of gives you some context. Okay, in 1983, Magnum TA was in Mid-South Wrestling. His spot rating was this, and his most frequent opponents were this, this, and this. And it gives you just a, a little more depth to quantify a wrestler's accomplishments. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. And the data that you've supplied me with is Magnum TA and the Midnight Express. And I know on ChartingTheTerritories.com, you actually looked at, and I find this fascinating, the first year or so of Danny Hodges' career. And you're able to track just how fast he got to the main events. But let's focus here on Mid-South 1983-1984. So with Magnum TA, you have the spot ratings. And you can look at the spot rating and you can see by January of 1984, he's in the main events. And that's really his big peak period until he gets the big push in the summertime. And that carries him all through the fall. So that's his spot. And for instance, like you said, it starts at zero, it goes to one. If we're looking at from January 29th until March 11th, it's 0 0.82, 0 0.88, 0 0 0.92, 0 0.90, 0 0.90, 0 0.89, 0 0.89. So that means if a one is being in the main event on every show, he's pretty close to being in the main event at least a few of those weeks on every single show. And when you think about how stacked Mid-South was with talent in 83 and 84, it's, you know, and they weren't running split crews a lot. They're running, you know, one, you know, one crew. They might be running, a you know, an afternoon show and an evening show, but generally speaking, it's, it's all one crew. So, you know, he is, you know, trading main events with, you know, Dog and Rock and Roll and Butch Reed and DiBiase, you know, and all these just top notch talent. And for him to consistently be in the main events, you know, and that that portion of 84, uh, you know, part of it, the, the, the one point where he dips down, I think, is when we get into the um, uh, Bill Watts's last ride, when I think him and, and Stagger Lee. Yeah, the last stampede. My apologies. Um, <laughs> that when when that gets super hot is is when Magnum sort of falls to the back. But you can also looking at his spot rating when he first comes in the territory. And Magnum's an interesting case because prior to coming to Mid South, his career consisted of three other territories. Um, as a well, four. Because as a rookie, he's in Portland and Vancouver as nothing but a preliminary wrestler. And then he spends a few months in Southwest and again, never gets out of the prelims. His most common opponent is uh, Kelly Kaniski and, uh, and maybe Larry Lane. And then he spends a year and a half in Florida. And again, he's a preliminary wrestler. I mean, maybe when him and Scott McGee are feuding with uh, Kent and Johnny Heffernan, maybe they're touching the mid cards, but generally speaking, he was a preliminary wrestler all this time. And then he comes in for Watts and, and, pretty quickly moves up the cards. Um, I, I guess as we're talking about this, hopefully we will tweet out uh, the access to these charts so your listeners can follow along because there's fantastic. nothing better. Yeah. There's nothing better than listening to a podcast while reading a fucking Excel spreadsheet. That sounds exciting. <laughs> um, but you can see when he first comes in, he's in the mid cards and his spot rating, it starts out at a 0.52 uh, and it stays in the 0.5s for about four weeks, and then he becomes an upper mid-carder. And if you look at the feud scores, his primary opponents the first couple of weeks are Rip Rogers, 
and Super Destroyer, Bill Irwin, who's being phased out. So uh, Bill Irwin is putting Magnum, you know, over on his way out. Scott Irwin. Uh, sorry, Scott Irwin. God, Scott Irwin. And then he starts with matches against Mr. Olympia and Boris Zerkoff, as he was called then, as he's moving up the cards. And eventually, once he's entrenched in the uh, you know upper mid cards, his opponents are now Zerkoff, and he has uh, a lot of matches with Missing Link for a good two and a half months. And then he gets into a, a, a little feud with Nikolai Volkov. Um, and by, as you said, by early January of 1984 is when he first breaks that main event level. And that's when he's teaming with uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 and they're feuding with the Midnights. What I'd like you to explain to me is obviously I get the zero to one mechanism that you use for spot. How do you determine the numbers here for feud? Because if we're looking again at that period of time I mentioned before, January 15th, he has an 18. A few weeks later, on February 5th, it's a 39. A few weeks later, on March 4th, it's 55. And the way your charts are, again, the listeners will see this, we'll have this on the Facebook page as well as on Twitter. But there are different colors of green, for instance, in this one, where it's a little bit lighter for the smaller numbers and a little bit darker for the higher numbers. But how are the numbers actually determined? Is there a peak? Is there a top number you can get to? And is there a low? Um, well, in this case, to even register on the chart, I, I won't take anything below an 11. So you'll see the lowest number you see on the chart is 11. As for the high score, it depends on how many shows um, the territory ran per week. Um, at this point in time, Watts is running nightly during the week. Every other Wednesday is TV in Shreveport. And on most Sundays, they're running uh, two separate shows with, with the same crew um, and on the occasional Saturday too. So I did the math at one point at this point in time, I think the absolute max is like a 105, but also again, realize that since this is not a percentage, it's an absolute number. The fact that we don't have complete data. And as I mentioned, we typically only have between 60 and 70% that's going to impact these numbers. And, and so they're artificially deflated. So the way I explain it right now is the higher, the better, and to compare it relative to the same time period. And so if we compare, you know, Magnum and, and as we'll talk about when we get to the Midnight Express, I was able to use Jim Cornette's book and their numbers are much, much higher because we have a lot more info on who their opponents were every night of the week, not just on shows I have. But to answer the original question, which I have not done, for any given week, it's based on the number of matches they have in that week, the week before, the week after, two weeks before, and two weeks after. And each of those weeks is weighted differently. So if they wrestle each other five times in the earliest possible week, I multiply that by a smaller number than the number of times they wrestle each other in the middle week. So, yeah, you know, again, the higher, the better. And I use the shading to sort of represent um, when a series of matches becomes a feud and when a feud becomes what I call a red hot feud. And basically anything above a 25 is I consider a feud and anything above a 30 above a 40 is a red hot feud. And as you'll as we can see on Magnum's chart. Uh, him and Wrestling 2 against uh, the Midnights was a red-hot feud. And, of course, that led directly into his feud with Mr. Wrestling 2. 
And speaking of wrestling too, that's where it gets tricky because if you recall, at some point during that feud, wrestling two changes his ring name to Mr. Wrestling and brings in Ray Hernandez to be Mr. Wrestling two. So I had to sort of look at the cards and figure out, okay, I'm going to keep Johnny Walker as Mr. Wrestling two. And we're going to call Ray Hernandez, Mr. Wrestling three, which is what the after mags did. So you also have to pay attention to that to make sure you're crediting the feud to the right. Mr. Wrestling pain in my tuchus. Well, a couple questions coming out of that. One is remind me again, when you're developing these statistics, are you looking at the card as it was billed in the newspaper or the results as they were after the card took place? when you determine the place on the card. And secondly, obviously there's a little bit of a discrepancy between the Magnum TA feud numbers and the Midnight Express ones. If I look at the Midnight Express for their feud with Magnum and Mr. Wrestling 2, they peak at a 98, which according to what you said before is almost as high as you can get. I mean, it's right there at the very, very top. However, if you look at Magnum's, he doesn't get anywhere close to a 98. So explain to me the discrepancy between the two the Magnum TA numbers and the Midnight Express numbers, but also when you're developing the numbers that you use for these stats, or not developing, but when you're determining what you're using for these stats, are you looking at the actual card as it's billed, or do you actually pay attention to the results, or do you not even need the results? If I have the result, uh, you know, ideally I'll have three pieces of information, and that is the the box ad, as we call it, you know, the visual ad. Um, a newspaper article prior to the show, and then the results after the show. I always go with the ad as my, you know, first step. And if the article, you know, building up the show lists matches in a different order, I look at it and try and figure out why. For example, sometimes the article will list the main event first, and then the rest of the matches will start with the opening match and build up to the semifinal. Uh, as opposed to, you know, listing the top match and the second from the top and the third from the top. Sometimes they'll list the single matches and the tag matches separately. Um, uh, so ideally, I, I use all those pieces of information um, with the idea that the ad is probably right unless I can convince myself in my own head that something in the article or results that are listed in a different order is probably the, the way it was. But the term I uh, invented was uh, to rank the matches in perceived order of importance. And where this becomes hanky is when the women, uh, when the special attractions such as the women or the midgets came in, because they generally were not the main event on the card, but often they're given top billing in an ad. And as well, they should, because they're a draw and they wouldn't, they wouldn't bring them in if they weren't able to pop a house. So this is sort of the thing that that sometimes becomes a challenge in in doing all this is what do you do when the ad prominently features women, uh, but then underneath that says main event, Danny Hodge versus, you know, uh, Mr. Sasaki. And so, again, I try and rank them in order perceived importance, which is almost always how they're displayed in the ad. Um, And you mentioned results like, as we know, the WWWF always often had, you know, Bruno go on earlier in the show so that they could run the angle and announce the return match, you know, that night. But, but that wouldn't be reflected in the ad. In the, the ad, ad. Would right. The ad would, yeah. exactly. So that, so generally speaking, I stick with the ad unless in my head, I feel there's overwhelming evidence 
to switch things around. And then as for the difference between Magnum and Midnight's, the answer is simple. Magnum's charts were compiled based on my database of complete shows. The ones for the Midnight Express used data in Jim Cornette's book where we have who the Midnight Express wrestled on a show, but that's all the, the only information we have for the show. So we have more data points for that. And I've done it and I've given you both these things so you get a feel for how much data we're missing because the discrepancy between the Midnight Express's feud with Magnum and Wrestling and the, the scores on Magnums represents the cards that we don't have complete data for, where the only thing we know is who the Midnight Express's opponents were. To go back to spot for a second, because I'm looking at the Midnight Express spot ratings here, and it's pretty remarkable. I mean, they're from February until August 5th, and then again from September 16th until October 28th, and then again throughout December when they were doing those scaffold matches. They are in the main event. I mean, 88891919089889193969595. Are there any other yeah. tag teams that you've encountered in doing this that have had numbers this high? Um no, but I haven't done a whole lot of the 80s, which is when, you know, well, actually that's not true. The Assassins and the Kentuckians had a really big run in 66. Yeah. Um so and and I think on that occasion, yes, you see numbers like that. And uh, for a lot of times up until the early 70s, while McGurk might not have been a tag team territory, the main events were often tag team matches. So it might have been Danny Hodge and somebody against two other partners. Sometimes it's used to build to a singles match between Hodge and someone. Um, so you see a lot of tag team matches in the main events. But as far as regular tag teams, they didn't really occupy top spots in most territories until... Uh, the 80s and probably until uh, the rock and roll in the midnights. I think they, you know, they really were, you know, were the ones that changed the game. But, but the Assassin and the Kentuckians, they had a main event level feud in several different territories. They ran the same thing. They ran it. It worked well in Florida. So they run it, you know, let's run it in Georgia. It works well there. Let's run it in, uh, you know, in uh, McGurk's territory. How much have you done on Mid-South Wrestling? I mean, have you gotten to the Samoans or JYD and Mr. Olympia? Obviously, like you said before, it was really the Midnight Express that brought in a series of established or teams that would be established, like the Rock and Roll Express, the Fantastics. Before then, with the exception of guys like the Samoans and years earlier with the Kentuckians and the Assassins, you did get a lot of guys thrown together. Or like the Freebirds, for instance. Did you do the Freebirds? Where are you in terms of looking at this period of time with the different tag teams? Right now, I've been looking in detail at um, from September 79, which is when the split uh, between Leroy and, and Watts happened. Um, I started there last September. And week by week on chartingtheterritories.com, I post sort of a weekly snapshot of the spot ratings and the feud scores. So I've tracked from September 79 through, um, you know, late January of 1980, which is when the, the dog and Freebirds feud really kicks off. Um, other than that, I did a few months in 1982, and I, I did this in 83 and 84 for Magnum and 84 for the Midnight Express. But really, I'm so scatterbrained, I go all over the place. Behind the scenes, I'm, I'm working on getting everything from 1959 forward and slowly releasing it, you know, sort of a month-by-month, quarter-by-quarter basis. 
Um, and I, you know, so there are some time periods where I know, I know the territory very well, but six months earlier, I haven't a clue. And as for the Samoans, I know they had a pretty big run and their opponents weren't necessarily makeshift tag teams, but weren't regular tag teams. For example, I, I think JYD and Mike George might've been frequent opponents or JYD and Orndorff. It's, you know, when they have one set team, oftentimes they're feuding with a variety of baby faces. With the junkyard dog in the period of time that you have just talked about, late 1979 into 1980, even before the Freebird feud, what did you see in the stats from his babyface turn, where everything happened with him and Gino Hernandez? Was it obvious that all of a sudden he's rising up the cards? I mean, when you look at someone like JYD and we evaluate his career, how fast did it happen that he was elevated in Mid-South Wrestling? Well, give me a moment and I'll tell you exactly how long, because uh, I have all that information on my handy-dandy laptop here. Uh, let's see. Um, so his turn happened, I believe it was mid-December of 1979. Um, uh, and I believe in the same episode of TV was um, the turn with Gino, where Gino dumped him for Ernie Ladd. Um, and then JYD took on Tom Price as his partner, and they scored the upset win. And then later in that same episode was when Dog saved Robley uh, from an attack by the Freebirds. So if we look at... Yeah, it happened pretty quickly because by the first week in 1980, his spot rating is a 0.81, which is the first time he's he reaches main event status. Um, in his several month run as a heel, he was generally in the mid cards or upper mid cards, and he's feuding with Charlie Cook, um, and him and Pork Chop are feuding with Cook and Hercules Ayala. Once the turn happens, yeah, it's it's a matter of weeks before he crosses my theoretical main eventer threshold. And from there, he stays in the low point eights for several weeks. Um, but by, um, you know, let's see where when it goes up, uh, it, it hits a point eight seven the week of January 27th, 1980. And then after that, it's a point nine zero. And then it goes up to a point nine five. So by the end of February, he is, you know, a main eventer and, and he and Robley are feuding with the free birds. Um, him, he's also taking on some other partners as well in some of the other towns. Uh, he, him and Ricky fields team up a few times against the free birds, him and King Cobra team up against the free birds. And that's one thing that the feud score doesn't capture. Um, because if JYD teams with several different people against the free birds, I can't, measure that. I can only measure the number of times JYD and Robley took on the Freebirds or JYD and, you know, King Cobra took on the Freebirds. And so I know in a couple of months when Buddy Roberts comes in, when he joins the Freebirds, I'm going to have to really think about when they have the Freebird rule, do I count yeah, all the Freebirds as do? one or do I want to say Hayes and Gordy are one team, Gordy and Buddy are another and Hayes and Buddy are another? That seems, again, understanding what the intent is, what I'm trying to do is really make a depth chart. Uh, and there are no statistics available to do that. And I've looked at win-loss records, with, and WrestlingData.com does have that. Um, there are numerous reasons why win-loss records don't work historically. Um, there's not a balanced schedule, and there's typically a babyface bias in results on house shows. So someone like a Greg Valentine or a Buddy Roberts, who's a career heel, 
is not going to have a win-loss record indicative of their place in the world. And so Spot, to me, better than anything else out there, is able to create that depth chart. Who was on the top of the cards? Who were in the opening matches? Who was in the middle? And how did that change over time? So realistically, if the advertising is that they're facing the Freebirds and you won't know until the night of which two of the three, then I should credit that to all of the Freebirds. If a card specifically lists Hayes in a singles match earlier and that Gordy and Roberts are the one in the tag match, I guess then I sort of have to factor that separately. So that's the whole thing. Wrestling wasn't meant to be quantified. Uh, and that's one of the, uh, you know, as much as I'm doing this, if we really think about this, what happens at a house show is supposed to be forgotten immediately afterwards. And all that you remember is what, you know, what happened that will set up the next house show. And just like soap operas, think about a soap opera. If you miss a day, a whole lot happens, but at the same time, not a lot happens and you can very quickly get caught up. And wrestling, the matches are meant to draw to make you feel that you have to go to the house show that week. But if you miss it and watch next week's TV, you're back, you're caught up pretty quickly and you know what's going on. And now they'll throw something else at you to try and get you to go to the house shows. So I'm, I'm really attempting to quantify that which wasn't meant to be quantified. But, but like I said earlier, Wrestling needs a stat line. It needs something where Randy Colley or Mike Boyette or Dennis Stamp, you know, guys that weren't the main eventers, they can, you know, show someone a website or a piece of paper and say, this is what I did. This was, you know, what I did for a living for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. You know, th this, you know, it, it has it has some sort of value. It has some sort of, you know, written documentation. I am utterly fascinated with all this, and I encourage everyone to check out your work, chartingtheterritories.com. It's interesting seeing Leroy McGurk's territory after the split. It's a very, very small roster, and it's interesting looking. And, and a rough one at that. Oh, and it's yeah, it's not very good. But also looking through the history of the territory, it's amazing how many weeks Bill Watts has as close to a one as you can get in a spot rating. I mean, there are times he has a one, actually. There are times he has one, but at the same time, when Murdoch got red hot as a babyface in late 75, early 76, Watts didn't, you know, it seems that Watts purposely put himself out of the main events and let Murdoch and Killer Carl Cox have their big feud and had it be the main events. And there are a number of times where, you know, it's and it's not even that Watts would go main event the other show that night. It's Murdoch in the main event and Watts would be second or third from the top. He let Murdoch have his shine. But then there are times when Watts, I mean, you know, you know, he I mean, in his eyes and, and in most people's eyes, he proved himself as a main eventer in the freaking largest territory and the largest cities in the U.S. Yeah. When he comes to smaller towns in Arkansas and Missouri and, and, and Louisiana. Yeah, he should be a main eventer. Damn straight. There's all, you know, there's always that rotation in and out, and there's always two or three baby faces and two or three heels capable of being in the main event on a show in any territory at any time. And it's interesting to see, and we talked about Junkyard Dog, are there times, you know, when when what we view as as his peak, was he really truly always in the main event? Or was it like other eras where there's just he's a bigger part of a rotating cast of baby faces. And if he is always in the main event, what can we present that data to some people that are maybe on the fence about, you know, his hall of fame merit 
and say he was, you know, his spot rating was this, this other person here who is in the Hall of Fame, his spot rating never got higher than this over this period of time. Can we use that to sort of, you know, quantify his achievements and show that he is worthy of Hall of Fame, or at the very least, his accomplishments are similar to several people already in the Hall of Fame. As we begin to wrap things up, a couple last things to hit you with. Where do you expect to go with this next? Do you think that your focus for the foreseeable future will be exclusively on the McGurk territory, Mid-South Wrestling? Do you think eventually you'll move on to another place, another territory? And also, statistically speaking, do you think that there are more stats that you're going to be rolling out over the next couple of years? Um, to answer the first question, I would love to do more based on how long it takes me to go through what I already have, while at the same time still trying to find you know, new information. There's not enough time left in my life to probably do much more than the McGurk territory. And, I, and I, I would love to add one or two other territories that don't get you know, as much credit, as much talk. Uh, um, and, and both of them are actually geographically close to McGurk's territory. I think of Amarillo and I think of Central States because they are two other territories that had long runs and they both had periods of time where they are loaded with talent and they had periods of time where they weren't. So I think they're interesting case studies. Um, but ideally what I'd like to do, as much data and statistics as I've thrown at your listeners, the calculations are relatively simple and that's by design because I would love for other people, maybe people that are subject matter experts in Mid-Atlantic or Florida or the WWF, to do what I'm doing for their territories and eventually get a network of people that does this for all of them. That, that's the goal. As far as creating other statistics. Well, let, let me stop you there before you go yeah. to that. So if someone out there is listening and someone is a serious historian or someone who at least has the time or the desire to really dive in and try to come up with as complete as possible a list of shows in the area where you could see where everyone was on the card. How would they go about applying your method, applying spot and applying feud? How would they go about doing that? What do they need to know? Um, they need to know Excel. Um, uh, you know, right now I've got everything set up in Excel and I'm slowly, as I go through my older stuff, I'm inputting it in such a way that I already have the formulas sort of preset and pre-programmed. And so as long as they know, you know, as long as I could show someone how to input the data and also how to read the data, how to look at that at a house show ad and, you know, interpret and, and come up with, you know, ranking them the right way. Once they do that, yes, if, if they've got decent Excel skills, I can teach them. Um, and, and that's sort of the idea. I also, I want to spend this year, uh, I'm going to all the Hall of Fame and, and Cauliflower Alley Club. I'm going to the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion. I plan on going to both Hall of Fame inductions, the Fez Tragos and the um, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Wichita Falls. I want to network. I want to sort of talk with some of the folks in charge of these and some of the veterans and just sort of show them what I'm doing and look at it and say, that makes sense. At least have them tell me you're not the most insane person I've ever met. You're only halfway there. That would be the ultimate compliment to me. Um, 
and your other question as far as developing more statistics. I see this as sort of the launching point for a, uh, you know, baseball term is saber metrics. So I guess the wrestling term would be uh, Zach Saber Junior metrics. Um, oh. But uh, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. but I would I would love for other people to sort of build on this. Um, there's been I've seen some people do stuff with win loss records. I've seen some people try and do ELO ratings which is a, a method for, you know, uh, traditional sports of, of quantifying things. But understanding what wrestling is and how it worked, those don't necessarily work. But I would love for people to develop, you know, to take the, uh, my launch points and come up with more involved, fancier stuff. Um, and that would be amazing. Like, I think we've talked about maybe tying this into attendance records somehow. Believe me, if I knew where I could find the filings with the state athletic commissions, I would have already had them. And I try every time I go to a state archive somewhere, I ask and they either don't have them or they don't quite know what I'm asking for. I know recently Washington state uh, had a whole, was it Washington or Oregon that uh, found a whole bunch. Um, so things like that to me are the golden goose, but at the same time, I don't want to get too involved with attendance. If someone main evented a B town, that's relevant. That has meaning. And is it the same as main eventing the A-Town? No. But if someone is consistently main eventing the B-Towns, and in my earlier research into Florida, I look at Ron Garvin and Ron Fuller in, I think it was 70 or 71, they're always main eventing the B-Towns. And usually that's not the case. Usually, um, unless unless Eddie was punishing someone by forcing them to to work the B-Towns, it was generally something that everyone, you know, rotated in and out of. But the fact that Garvin and Fuller seem to, you know, be in those B-Towns more often than most and their main eventing, that needs to be captured in, in, in you know, in statistics somehow because there's a reason for that. Well, there he is, Al Getz, once again, Charting the Territories, chartingtheterritories.com. You heard him talk a little bit about some of the new statistics he's developed and that there are some charts available on the Midnight Express or Magnum TA. Go to chartingtheterritories.com to access this information. It's fascinating stuff. If you're a wrestling geek like me, you definitely want to check this out. But from there, let's go to Hawaii. 50th State Big Time Wrestling. I want to thank a friend of the show, Bill Atkinson of 50estatebigtimewrestling.com for supplying us with this audio. This is from April 6th, 1968, Studio Wrestling in Hawaii. It begins with what a lot of episodes began with, a demo. Jim Haiti, one of the big babyface stars of Hawaii, and a couple of the lady wrestlers who were on tour there, I believe in this case would be Joyce Grable and Pat Sherry, going over some of the moves, talking to the fans about what's happening, Interesting stuff here. Lord James Blears hosts this segment, and then we get some local promos. And just want to run through some of the names in case you're wondering who some of these people are if you don't catch it. But you're going to hear Peter Maivia, the missing link Pampero Furpo. Now, this was played on the Pampero Furpo special, but we're playing it back here so that you could hear it in the context of what was happening on the show. Ripper Collins, Jerry London, Gentleman Jim Haiti being presented with the new tag team belts for him in the missing link. Handsome Johnny Berend, Curtis Iokea, audio of Frankie Almond versus Fuji Fujiwara. When you hear this, just know that Fuji Fujiwara is indeed the future Mr. Fuji. 
We also hear from Pat Sherry and Joyce Grable, as well as Betty Boucher and the fabulous Moolah, your hosts, Lord James Blears and Gentleman Ed Francis. Let's go to Hawaii, 50th State Big Time Wrestling, April 6th, 1968. Gentleman Ed Francis presents 50th State Wrestling. Now, to call to action, Lord Tally Ho Blear. Well, thank you and welcome once again to 50th State Big Time Wrestling. Standing in the ring, Jim Hady, his uh, assistant this afternoon, Frankie Allman, and demonstrations, and two beautiful young ladies. Jim, would you introduce the young ladies? Yeah, yes, uh, this is uh, Joyce Grable here. This is Pat Cherry over here. Girls, let's step over and see if they... The uh, TV cameras can get a good look at you. Where are you from? Oak Alabama. And? South Carolina. And you'll be wrestling in uh, Block Arena tomorrow night, 7.30, mm -hmm. in a tag match. Your partners, that's one team, right? Yes. You'll be wrestling in Hilo on Monday, in Maui on Tuesday, and at the Civic Auditorium Wednesday. That's right. How come, uh, gee, Jim, you think she can, it looks like a wrestler? She looks more like a uh, model to me. Yes, both of them do, Lord. And uh, I, was, I was quite surprised, you know. I mean, uh, although a lot of the girls are very good-looking girls, but I, I think this is two exceptions to the rule, don't you? Mm, sure do. They're very really nice. And uh, when I walked in, I saw them, I was very surprised. Uh, you know, uh, uh, several years ago, one of the girls uh, was in here, and she was pretty good at uh, maneuvering around uh, men. Most girls are. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, I said you look like a, a very attractive model. Uh, I know that you must be a great wrestler because you're in the top ten in the United States, both of you. Do uh, you think you could... Uh, what would happen, for instance, now if uh, some fellow came up behind you and grabbed you? Could you handle yourself? Sure, I can. Do you think we could try it? Why not? Okay, Frank, you want to grab her? I wish I could do it. Okay. Hey. She's in a moving blink. It looks too easy, though. It does. Yeah. By the way, are you married either one of you? No. No. Oh, wow. I will be seeing you... Uh, uh, Tomorrow at school at uh, Block Arena, 7.30 it starts, and the rest of the islands. Uh, final look at these young ladies, you'll be seeing them in the flesh, and boy, oh boy, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Hawaii. How do you like Hawaii? Love it. It's beautiful. I might not go home. <laughs> Thanks very much. How about a nice hand for these young ladies, Miss Pat Sherry and Miss Joyce Graver. Jim, we'll do the honors. And you know they can wrestle. Top 10 in the United States, the Wahine wrestlers, they'll be wrestling as a team throughout the island chain in the next few days. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Jim, you have a new partner this week, so let's get right to it. It's hard to get my mind on wrestling now. Huh? <laughs> Why do you think I'm wearing this suit, Jim? For the girls? No, 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 I was at a wedding today. Oh, were you? I would like to um, congratulate uh, uh, United States Army Air Force, a young man. Uh, Mr. Martin Oliver and Mrs. Martin Oliver, who got married today, and I was there. It was a wonderful ceremony, and I wish them a thousand years. Good. Okay, yeah. Jim. You know, uh, Lord, uh, later on during the uh, locker room interviews, I have something very special to show the people. It's something very new, and uh, something that uh, me and Link are very happy to get. You got uh, a big grin on your face. What well, is it? I'm very happy. Uh, Can you tell me now? A little surprise. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. 
Jim, in the locker room before we went on the air, you were talking about something that you want to stress to the fans, and I know I've tried to do it during the narration, but sometimes the match gets so uh, exciting that I'm talking about the match, and I get excited myself, and the noise and the, uh, everything that's going on, it's sometimes hard for the people to listen to what I'm saying about the rules of wrestling, the count-outs, the countdowns. So why don't today do as you suggest, and let's show the people some of the rules of wrestling. Okay, glad to, Lord. Of course, uh, uh, we'll show them a little bit around the ropes when you have to break. Now, a man, if he's in the ropes, such as this. I'll be the referee if you like, Jim. Now, if I have Frank against the ropes and I'm holding on to him, the referee calls for the break. Okay, break. And if he doesn't, doesn't break, when the referee says break, then the referee starts his count. One, two, three. Four. You might break. I broke on four, but if he says five and you're still holding on, he can disqualify you. It's up to the discretion of the referee, of course, whether he to disqualify you or not. Naturally, if somebody just came right out in the first part of the match, he wouldn't dis disqualify him right then. He would warn him that not to use the tactics anymore and be a little lenient. I don't, I don't think any referee would just right off disqualify anybody right off right. unless it was something very bad. And uh, like hitting him with a chair or something like that, where he would. Well, uh, and do it. particularly, Jim, when a lot of wrestlers who are coming through here from different parts of the world, uh, like Peter Maivia, uh, been wrestling mostly in Europe, and uh, the rules are a little different from state to state, from country to country. They're generally the same, so this in some countries could not be a disqualification, so they always give them the benefit of the doubt. Right, and then uh, a lot of places, uh, Lord, on the mainland, different states, it's a four. If the referee counts to four, it's disqualification, so you must break on three. Now, other people have asked me, they says, I've seen men on the floor, and a referee's counting, and uh, they know it's the yes, on the floor, and it's a 20 count. And then the wrestler proceeds to get from the floor, and gets on the apron, and the referee says 10, 11, 12, and the people say, well, he should be counted out. But it's a 20 count from the floor. And once the man starts back up and gets back up here, the referee still must give the man the benefit of the doubt and a 20 count. The count does not st stop and or start uh, again here. Right, and we can go through that. When you, if you are thrown onto the apron or you step out on the apron and don't touch the floor, 10, right? 10 count, right. You must be back in before 10. Before 10. But if I'm on the floor, I got to go through it, Jim. You jump down. Right. Okay, the count is now 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You're back on the apron, right? But I still must get back in 13, 20. 14, 15. So that's quite simple uh, when you know how and when the people are, uh, can see it. Right. Uh, some uh, wrestlers use this to a great asset because if they are hurt or uh, if they can get away with it, they will actually step out of the ring or even jump down on the floor to where they can get a little more time and recuperate and then get back into the ring and they'll feel much better. And actually, a lot of wrestlers uh, I've seen do the thing that this is a simple step out through the ropes and he has 10. 10 to get back in the ring. So he'll just move from here and go right over here and step out on this side and he gets another 10. Watch Fanlon fall with a 15-minute time limit. Introducing first in the blue corner, making his first appearance on 50th State Big Time Wrestling, Jerry London. Jerry London. His opponent this afternoon, he needs no introduction. He's from Argentina. The wild bull of the pampas, the missing link. The missing link. Referee, Walla Kitsumi. Timekeeper, Duck Rodriguez. Chief second, the Portuguese Flash, Nolan Rodriguez.
I believe it's the time limit. Yes. 15 minutes run out. No rest will score the fall. So Pampero attempts to shake hands with Jerry London. It's a draw. He's still in the ring. Okay. Okay, sports fans in the locker with Motorhead Francis in just a moment following this important message. Number one in Honolulu, Hawaii. Okay, sports fans, well, the Wahinis are in town. You saw a couple of them this afternoon. You'll see the other two, I believe, a little later on in the program. They'll be wrestling at Block Arena tomorrow night at he Hilo at Civic Auditorium on Monday, at the Memorial Auditorium in Maui on Tuesday, and right here in Honolulu on Wednesday night. Yes, the lady wrestlers are here. The fabulous Mula, world's Wahini wrestling champion, and Miss Betty Boucher will meet Miss Pat Sherry and Miss Joyce Grable. A second tag team thriller, handsome Johnny Barand, the United States heavyweight wrestling champion, and his partner, Curtis the Bull Ialkea. He's the current Hawaiian heavyweight wrestling champion. They meet in a tag thriller at the Civic, gentleman Jim Hady and the missing link. Haiti and the Link are the tag team champions. Peter Maivia, the famous Samoan wrestling star, meets Jerry London and Ripper Collins meets Rocky Hunter in a special match. Reservations phone the Civic Auditorium, 581-002. That's 581-002. Open until 6 o'clock this evening, all day Sunday for your convenience. This could be another turnaway crowd. I would advise to please get your tickets early. No increase in prices. Kids, still 50 cents, and there's no school on Thursday, right, Ed? That's right. You got a house full at home, too, like me. <laughs> Are you going to fight me for the front row? Well, we've we got many between us, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've got 15. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lloyd. Let's bring Peter Maivia out here now. Peter, you should be a very uh, happy man after you won that, uh, you and Neff won that tag match uh, last Wednesday at the Civic Auditorium. Well, that's true, Mr. Francis. Uh, but right now, I think the people were on Wednesday night saw what happened. Uh, now, I think it's a about time enough for me to sort of uh, uh, getting this uh, belt match that I've been asking ever since I got here because I think those people will agree with me that I did beat uh, the bull uh, by a fall during that night and uh, right now I'm asking uh, 
to get me a death match as soon as possible. Uh, well, I think you deserve it, Peter, after seeing that match. I think you deserve a title shot at Curtis LK. How does it feel to be in there with a man as big as Curtis? I don't, you had mentioned that you'd never wrestled a man that big before. Well, that's true. Uh, I think uh, there's only another one man that I did wrestle uh, about his uh, Curtis uh, uh, weight is uh, the separate kid. I don't know whether you know the gentleman, but this is in Europe. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think uh, if I didn't able to uh, take care of myself inside in that ring, probably I wouldn't be a wrestler. Yeah, that's right. yeah. uh, anything else you'd like to say well, to some uh, Samoan friends? Can I say just a few uh, words in uh, the Samoan community? Yeah, Renato, Silsila Mai, Oto, Tupumutamali, Oloa, Fiorian, Etnu. As a man, Tupuile, Po, and Vayatu, and Oto, Ausilafia, Otfapea Twai, Yamalu, Vayoto, Fingalo. I took my pair, Yamao, Marisunga, Onef Mayava, Etusamaleta, Longa, Oloma, Fafangae. Now, that's your mare. Yeto a fio mai matala mai yeto ao tato tfa atasi pea ipo umo laf afena yei mato ima ua maleta alonga. Ole siampini peo noto lao sila fia i Hawaii ele tangata o yaukea. Ole uto a fio mai matala mai yeto ao pe afayo la ole fa mai moenga tato tfa atasi oi tato samoa mo samoa ia manuia mai yeso ifua. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Good luck to you next week. Pampero Frippo. Come on, Pampero. Hiya. <laughs> you should be smiling, too, because you're gonna, you and Haiti are going to be wrestling uh, Johnny Brand and Curtis Yalkea this uh, coming Wednesday at the Civic. Yes, we will meet these two fellows. And, uh, of course, this time we will not be on the stage, our championship match. But uh, believe me, it's not because of ducking. We are not ducking to them for the belt. The only thing is this. These persons here, Ed Francis, think they will be easy to get my good partner, Jim Adi and myself on the ring, like uh, you snap your fingers. Took us many nights and many days of training and secret conference to get a successful win for that belt, and we will remain as a champion Let's go say it in the most humble way. As long uh, our uh, good luck help us. <laughs> I know. You know, I'm so happy, so thrilled now that even I, I forget to speak a common and uh, regular English. <laughs> Already my English is very broke, and now I'm so excited. That, well, you see, today is a very, very unusual day for me, too, and that is one of the reasons why I'm so happy. I received many, many letters, and. Uh, you know, today I'm one year old, I'm one year old, uh, younger. Today you're one year younger? You yeah. mean today is your birthday? Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 that is one of the reasons why I'm so happy, so thrilling, because you have to see my biggest present was all these children outside surrounding me and hugging me and giving me kisses and giving me lays and autographs, asking for and shakings and hugging. And oh, I'm telling you, I'm all mixed up <laughs> and I don't drink. Hey, listen, isn't, 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 isn't a consequence of any liquid or nothing like that because I don't drink.
Nothing like that vodka that I have once in a while. Well, uh, each individual have his own, his own habit, you know. But mine, the only white liquid I drink is just milk. <laughs> well, listen, uh, good luck in your match next Thank week. you, Ed. And uh, once again, thank you, Kikis. Thank you, all of you, racing fans of the 50th state. And once again, my good partner, gentleman Jim Hayden, myself, we will do our best in the ring to satisfy all of you. Tofa. Well, let's get uh, Ripper Collins out. <laughs> Birthday time in the locker room. All the kickets are shaking his hand and giving him kisses on his birthday. He must have run ahead in the advertiser stating that today was his birthday. I got two kids at home got something for you, Link. One carries a hammer and the other one's got a pair of flowers, buddy. Happy birthday. <laughs> Are you ready for that? <laughs> There's a guy who says he don't drink anything stronger than milk. Left his trunks at home today and had to borrow a pair. Tell me he's on straight milk. <laughs> then we got Peter falling in and in my veer out here talking softly and talking in a foreign language that I cannot understand what this man is saying. Buddy, if I ever get you in that squared circle, you're going to learn to speak English loud and strong and plain because I'm going to grab you with 306 pounds of Georgia fat man and I'm going to teach you how to say taters and pork chops loud enough everybody in the whole city can hear it, buddy out here talking softly. You know, tomorrow night is Block Arena. That is my town. Schofield is my town. In fact, every place is my town because I am the king and the ruler. And I don't know who's going to be the unfortunate one tomorrow night at Block Arena, but I can tell you one thing. My friend Moolah's in town. And when she comes to town, it means only one thing, celebration. So whoever's in the opposite corner tomorrow night's in for a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble, Francis. By the way, Mooley, you're standing over there, sweetheart. I want you to know that Lord Tally-ho Blears was telling everyone on the TV tube that you used a very unorthodox style of wrestling and was one of the roughest gals in the business today. And he said that other girl was a blonde goddess and he didn't even fail, he failed to mention that you was one of the most beautiful women in the world today. Now then, he's going to have you on Tally Ho Tales later, I know that. Ask him about that, honey. Put him straight. You have to put everybody on the spot. I'm not putting nobody on the spot. He said that Miss Joyce, what's her name, Grable over here, is a golden goddess of the mat. Well, everybody knows that since my old lady retired, maybe that's true. But he failed to say that... The lovely Mula, the world champion, is also a very beautiful and charming young lady. Now let's go over here. We got to talk about the United States champion, the big clubs of Handsome John and Mr. Hawaii, the bull. Against Haiti, the nose, and Shirley Temple ringlets, our birthday boy, the missing link. <laughs> so funny. so funny, I was just thinking that Curtis and Johnny was just talking a while ago about what they was going to do to these two guys Wednesday night, and since it's his birthday, <laughs> you know what 
what you're gonna get? You're gonna get fifth pie, buddy. <laughs> big John, lay those big clubs on you and Curtis hit you that big elbow. You'll wish you never had another birthday in another 190 years. <laughs> Our birthday boy, the Shirley Temple ringlet man. Well, you might all have a I can say, they might what? have a surprise for them in the ring too. Well, they might have a surprise, but Curtis has been around and the champ has been around a long time, and there's not too many surprises that you can do to the champs. All I can say is this: elbow pie and fist pie for the for the Lynx birthday on Wednesday night, Peter. This is Southern talk, buddy. Watch it. I'm gonna walk on you like turnips in a turnip patch, son. Your day will come. Lower, newer, loud. Well, we'll be right back after an important message. Now let's bring Jerry London out now in our interviews. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, Jerry looks like he's in pretty good shape. I saw him wrestling uh, Pampero Furpo just a little while ago, like you did, and very well there, Jerry. Well, you don't believe in holding back, do you? Is it personal? Why? What's that? There's no easy way around here, it seems. <laughs> I mean, why don't you shoot Haiti in, the, the bull, and a few others at the same time? Well, listen, you know, I got all top he stars around start here, at the Jay. bottom of the ladder. What's this welcome back? And you got uh, Peter Maivia. That's what I mean. Wednesday at the Civic You Oscar. throw the rock in, you throw the, uh, the wild man in, you throw this, the, this uh, Samoan boy in. Well, you said you were in pretty good shape right. and you're all ready to go. Well, it's a supreme test, isn't it? <laughs> you're not going to back up from anybody. I'm sure not going to back up. But I've got to say this, he's a tough cookie. I, uh, it wasn't my choice, let's put it that way. <laughs> I was glad to hear the bell. Well, actually, there aren't any um, easy choices around here right now. Uh, it seems that I, I sort of looked over the boys and I, I think, well, where do I start? So that's why I didn't ask. And now I, I find out that it's, uh, you've got a perpetual smile. I mean, you must know a lot of things I don't know. <laughs> so I'll just sort of sit back and take what's given me and I'll do my best. Well, you got the contracts all signed in the, my office, so well, whenever someone comes in and like the rest of you, I just put the name down. You just stick it down. There, my name's on the bottom because I don't ask any favors. You made it pretty tough for me not to cross the line today, and I, I had to apologize to myself, not to anybody but myself. It nearly came loose, and I'm trying real hard to live by the rules. I told you I'm going to stick to the rules, but I'm not going to let up. If there's an advantage, I'm going to take it. There are some things I don't believe in. It doesn't belong in this business as far as I'm concerned, and I'd be the first one to stop anybody who used it. But uh, sometimes when you feel a little cornered, you've got something got hold of you like a vice, and you feel pain all over you. I'm going to do it, and something says don't. But it came awfully close, Mr. Francis. Yeah, well, listen, whatever, whatever, after what happened to you, Jerry, I don't blame you for feeling well, that way. I'm about 90%, and it'll probably take another couple of weeks to really unwind it, but thanks a lot anyway. But it's not personal, is it? No, not personal. Okay. Thank you, Jerry. Eddie. See you Wednesday, huh? Jim, what's this big surprise you've been talking about? Uh, well, uh, if uh, my friend Link will bring him out. Hey. Here they are right here, Ed. These are the new Hawaiian Tag Team belts, been approved by the National Wrestling Alliance. As you can see, really wow. beautiful, aren't they? Well, they certainly are, the Hawaiian words and everything on them. I can't right. even pronounce it. Em uh, emblematic of Hawaii. You see, they've been approved over here by the WWA. Well, well uh, why don't you, uh, you probably want to hang on these all the more now, right? Well, that's a fact, Ed. 
you know. Uh, of course, they're not up this coming Wednesday. And the King's out here laughing like it's going to be real easy for Buran and Curtis this coming Wednesday. Well, I got news for them. Nothing's easy when me and my partner are in that ring, whether the belts are up or whether they're not, because we go in there with 100% of our bodies every time we step in that ring. And my friend here and I are ready for Curtis and Buran in more ways than one, because we have, if it's not wrestling that we have to settle, it's other things that they've said about us that they've done to us outside the ring, verbally, physically, and every way you can think of, or we're gonna get even with these men Wednesday. It's all right, my friend's birthday, and believe me, we're going to celebrate it Wednesday in more ways than one. We're going to light up a few candles in that Civic. We're going to burn that Buran and Curtis down into the smallest piece of ashes you've ever seen, and we'll spread it over Waikiki. This coming Wednesday night, and you don't forget it, Curtis. You can blabber your mouth out here and, and all you want, and it ain't going to do you no good Wednesday, because that's your doomsday, buddy. And And, and another thing I did, as you know, you got a, uh, one of the copies of the letter that I sent to the Wrestling Alliance stating, I told you I was going to do it if I had to, and I, I did everything I could do to try to get a match with Buran in other ways of trying to talk to the man through you and other people here to try to get him to ink that contract for that title match. Well, he seemed like whatever I did, he wouldn't do it. So I have sent that letter, as you know, to the Wrestling Alliance. But one stipulation in that contract, and I sure hope they approve it, is that the match must be signed for a two-hour time limit, not a one-hour time limit. As you all well know, the last time Buran and I wrestled, we wrestled for one hour and one minute to a draw. That's right. I gained the only fall. I won the match, but I didn't win the title or anything. So this time, if the Alliance passes it, Ed, would you do me the favor and let me break the good news to the people myself? Certainly. And if it's bad news, I'll let you do it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Good luck to you, man, too, Wednesday. Uh, where's uh, Johnny Baran? Yes, I have many, many things to say here this afternoon, Daddy. <laughs> I want the 500,000 wonderful people of Hawaii, the wrestling fans, to pay close attention to everything the great man says here this afternoon. This afternoon, Mr. Francis, we would like to pay honor and respect to Hawaii's number one athlete, Curtis the Alkea, a man that has brought nothing but honor to the great state of Hawaii, a great athlete, a man from Punahou, a man that, from Punahou that has excelled in surfing, and later went to the university, Hawaii's greatest athlete, a man that has did honor on the professional football fields of the mainland, a great wrestler, 
a great track star and a great athlete, a man of great intellectual intelligence. And then, Mr. Francis, secondly this afternoon, we would like to pay honor to another great man, his partner, handsome Johnny Barand. A man that attended high school in New York, a Phi Beta Kappa man, a man that has sent more men to the hospital and the professional wrestling ranks than any man living today. These two men, these great athletes, have signed a pact together, E.L. Kerr and Barand. And Mr. Francis, together, we will write wrestling's greatest chapter in the state of Hawaii. I doubt very much, Mr. Francis, if there are any two men, any six men, or a dozen men that are capable of putting ERK and myself out of business. You people out there, the children, they love us, Mr. Francis. The people here in the 50th state, how can you help but not love a great Hawaiian and myself that has teamed with this man? We have offers in Madison Square Garden in Chicago, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Tokyo. ELK's record is unblemished, and he's wrestled in every continent and brought honor to the 50th state. And whether these little children, these little tiny boys that adhere to the Marcus of Queensbury rules <laughs> and have the audacity to stand out here and cry like a bunch of sniveling babies, whether they like it or not, ELK and myself will continue to bring honor and more honor to the 50 people here of the 50th state. And we openly challenge any two, any three, any six, any dozen men to stand up against us. Let these sniveling little babies cry, Mr. Francis. <laughs> the great man and myself have got big shoulders, Daddy. We've got big shoulders for these little sissies to cry on. And like I says, when they get in that ring with me, brother, I'm going to shove this big fist right down their throat. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I hope they continue to cry. Do continue to cry and cry some more because the people here love us. And from now on, when ERK and myself enter that ring, you as a promoter at Francis, you better start looking for guys to put us against because every man, you're going to be getting telephone calls from every man, every continent, because you know why? This is where they come, Mr. Francis. They know ERK and myself are here, and before they can continue on, they've got to crawl over our forms. From now on, the word, dear children, the word is, give them, give them. Every time ERK and myself enter the ring, we expect to be met by a tumultuous ovation of give them. And as for Jim Haiti, <laughs> Let me tell you something else for Jim Haiti. He will never get a chance at that belt of mine. Never. Because the Wrestling Commission will never sanction a two-hour match. <laughs> and I'm going to leave these sissies, these little boys, this, this Peter, this man from James Bond movie. I'm going to give you something to remember. 
Curtis and myself are going to put you out of commission. You and Haiti and Mayava and some of these other sissies. We're going to get Stevenson Patterson. We're going to, we're going to get Bearcat Wright and some more of these guys. Bobo Rizzo, we're going to get them and we're going to break them up. We're going to break them up and demolish them. And that's all I've got to say here this afternoon. My boy. That was enough. Uh, we'll be right back after this important word, ladies and gentlemen. In Charlie Chan on Broadway, tonight at 11.30 on... Number one in Honolulu, Hawaii. The undisputed uh, Hawaiian heavyweight champion, Curtis the Boreal Chaos, sitting next to me. Curtis? Good afternoon, Ed Francis. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Well, Ed John a real intelligent man. You know, Ed Francis, about 40 minutes ago, I was standing down on the wall looking out to sea, my hands in my pockets, in the most exclusive area in the 50th state, I might add. I had my $500 French poodle looking out with me. It's a beautiful day, Ed Francis. My good friend Chubby Mitchell was walking across the sand with a big oohoo-hit spear. Curtis, there's uh, someone uh, calling you over there. Okay, that's rude, Ed Francis. It's a business call, Ed. Curtis, it's all right, Bob. As I was saying, Lord, Chubby Mitchell just speared a big oohoo. He's coming across the sand toward me. I'm sitting there taking it easy. How is Chubby, by the way? Fine, Lord, fine. And this beautiful day in Hawaii, I'm really happy. I don't have to say that with all the strife and grief going across this nation that I'm here today. And Fuji pulled up Lord Blears in the big air-conditioned caddy. And he blew his horn and at that exact moment, Lord Blears, my mind went back six weeks ago to that rainy afternoon when I was sitting in a bar in Hong Kong with my fiance, Tommy Cole. And I thought about that afternoon when I was sitting in Hong Kong and I got the phone call from Johnny Barron and I was headed back to Paris, Lord. And I talked to Johnny Barron that afternoon and it seems, Lord Blears, as if everything is coming true in the big haze. It seems without a reasonable doubt that Johnny and I are on our way to writing the greatest page of history in the Civic Auditorium in the HIC. Now, it's simply a question, Lord Blears, of the unfortunate against the fortunate, of the have-nots against the haves. And Fuji, you're a have. I gave you the caddy, right? Johnny's a have, and I'm a have. And there are a few gentlemen in this room that are the have-nots. Reuben comes from across the sea, that's Peter Maivia, demanding a title match with no qualifications, Lord Blears. There are the good men here in Hawaii who deserve a shot at the title I hold. But he comes here with envy in his heart because he sees how far not only myself but Johnny Barron, and since he's come with us, Fuji, 
has risen in the ranks of democracy in this great state, Lord, please. But there is one sure thing. Because when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, you know what that is, Lord, are you with it, aren't you? When it gets down to the nitty-gritty, Lord, and when the lights go out about 9.30 in the Civic Auditorium in time for a championship match, there is only myself against Peter Maivia. And no one can help him, Lord bless. Not even the Almighty in the heavens above can help him. And he had better expect no help because I don't expect any now. The word will be coming very soon. Very soon from Las Vegas, Lord bless. Very soon. In fact, I'm surprised that Francis ran off because the word will be coming that Jim Haiti and the missing link have got to put up their title. What use are titles if they don't defend them or they, they should put them in a museum? I make good use of my title. I lay around on the beach and I watch TV with my belt on, Lord. And I even listen to the stereo. And this Wednesday, Lord, the big haze, the purple haze. This is purple haze. I see it in my head all oh. the time, Lord. Purple haze. And you can't deny it, Lord. And Johnny put it in great words. Because this Wednesday, we have already written the greatest page of history in the Civic. And this Wednesday will be another page. And Jim Haiti will join the ranks that the Link already knows of the have-nots. Thank you, Lord. Get a nice coat on, Lord. You look pretty sharp. <clears throat> Don't sell yourself on materialistic values, Lord. Now, well, that was courtesy Alkea, and I've watched Curtis from the beginning and right to the peak of his career at the moment. And, well, as he said, it's man for man when you get in that ring, sports fans, and that's wrestling a tough profession. Well, okay, Wednesday night at the Civic Auditorium Wrestling Fans, the Wahine wrestlers are in town. They'll be wrestling in a big tag team thriller, the fabulous Moolah, she's been here before, the world's wrestling champion, and her team partner, Miss Betty Boucher, will meet Miss Pat Sherry and Miss Joyce Grable. Sherry, Grable, and Boucher making their first appearance ever in the Hawaiian Islands. Handsome Johnny Baran and Curtis the Bully Alkea in a tag team thriller against gentleman Jim Haiti and the missing link. Haiti and the link are the tag team champions. Peter Maivere from Western Samoa takes on Jerry London and Ripper Collins, Rocky Hunter. All at the Civic Auditorium next Wednesday, April 10th. Reservations 581-002, that's the Civic Auditorium. And again, we'll look at the watch, you have one hour to call up the Civic and make your reservations, and all day Sunday for your convenience, the box office will be open. Just dial that number, tell them you want two good seats, four, six, eight, whatever it is. There's no school next week, so the kid is 50 cents, accompanied by an adult, so we'll see you all there Wednesday night, Civic Auditorium, the Wahinas are in town. Okay, in a big, just a moment, there'll be a big wrestling main event following this message. The second main event this afternoon, two out of three falls to television curfew. Introducing first, in the blue corner from Ohio, Frankie Allman. Frankie Allman. His opponent this afternoon from Honolulu, Hawaii, protege of Curtis the Bully Alkea, the famous Fuji Fujiwara. 
full three count. The first ball to Fuji Fujiwara. Okay, wrestling fans. Well, we'll be back in just a moment with more action from the studio following this message. Checking Frankie Allman, he's okay. The wrestlers get a two-minute rest period. Well, I believe the curfew bell sounded, and therefore, let's wait. The winner, Fuji. Fujiwara over Frankie Allman. One fall, time ran out. We'll join the uh, lady wrestlers, two of them in just a moment, sports fans, with our wrap-up and tally-ho tales following this message. Everybody, this is Pat Boone. I'm going to be seeing you commencing April 17th at the Modern Living Show at the HIC. See Pat Boone in our own Sing Out Hawaii at the Modern Living Show starting April 17th at the HIC. Miss Pat Sherry and Miss Joyce Gravel on Tally Ho's Tales will have the fabulous Moolah and Miss Betty Boucher in a moment. First of all, I'd like again to welcome you to Hawaii. And uh, what's your hobby? What's my Not hobby? wrestling now. It's, don't throw me down, please. Skating. Skating. Either roller skating or mm -hmm. ice. Roller. Roller skating. Mm -hmm. Do you like to surf? No. Have you tried it? No. She likes to wrestle, I know. Okay, Lee, that's my wife. You met my wife, so it's okay. And your hobby? Sewing. Sewing? Yes. You make this dress? Not this one, no. Oh. And uh, what's your toughest nights that you've been in? Um. Do you recall it? No, I can't. There's quite a few tough yeah, ones. <laughs> you like, uh, how long have you been wrestling as a tag team? That's a good question to ask. Um, about six months. About six months? Do you wrestle individually or are you, are you really uh, partners? You kind of help each other? <laughs> well, part-time, individual, part-time. Part now, one part thing, uh, Ripper Collins was on the air a few weeks ago, uh, a few days ago, and he said that uh, he's seen both of you wrestle, that you gouge eyes and pull hair. Now, maybe girls do this in a regular type of uh, domestic brawl. I don't know. I've never been in one. But do you do that in the ring? I try not to. You try not to. Mm -hmm. You pull hair? Only when I have to. Only when you have to. Wow. Well, I think we're going to talk to uh, your opponents, uh, Fabulous Moolah and Betty Boucher. Girls, we'll see you in Block Arena on tomorrow night, tomorrow right? Night. And Monday in Hilo, and it's a beautiful island. The volcano is not erupting. Now, it may do, but we see two beautiful girls there. And Tuesday in Maui, so you're going to have a fine time here on the islands. And Wednesday night, the Civic Auditorium. Okay? Write a lay for you. I'd put one around your neck. Okay, see you Thank later. You okay. Do we have uh, Nolan? Our chief second, the Portuguese Flash, Nolan Rodriguez, of course, escorting the girls. He's been with them all day. Uh, Miss Moore, I think I should talk to you first. You're the world's champion. I've got to give you this, uh, this honor. So would you excuse me, Miss Boucher? Well, Tally Ho, I don't have to say too much because all these people in Honolulu know how lucky they are for the great Moolah to be back here. And I'd like to turn it over to my partner and let her do the talking for me. But I would like to say it's beautiful here and I've enjoyed it so far. And 
Well, I'll let her do the talking. Okay. okay. Well, I just got one thing to say. That, like she said, the people know that she's the champion, and I'm very proud to be her partner. And as far as I'm concerned, we are the greatest team that I have ever seen, girl wrestlers. And uh, we can take on any any opponents, any girl wrestler, and just uh, get in there and tear them apart. I got a couple of questions to ask you. I asked the other girls, and so that we're fair on this program and we don't uh, show any favoritism, I asked them if they like to pull hair. Do you pull hair? I get because in there. this is what someone told us. Pippa Collins said these girls, they love to pull hair and stuff like that. Look, you can talk all night, but don't say anything against Ripper Collins because he's one of the greatest. That's and right. that's it. Well, did you hear what he said about me? I just yes. have to come back a little bit. I'm a, yes, right? I heard what he said, and I'm really surprised that you talked about I didn't about. say it. Okay. That's why I asked you, you to come You shouldn't talk her. about a great man like that. Or a great I'm not talking about like Mula. And, and the only thing, like I said, she's the greatest, the champion, and I'm proud to be your partner, and we'll take on anybody that wants to wrestle us. Okay, girls, and we'll see we you. talk about pulling hair, and we get our hands, and that bleached blonde hair are the two of them. The people in Honolulu probably have plenty of souvenirs left here. That's all I got to say. That's okay, right, because we won't girl. leave one hair left on their heads. You know, it's funny. You get to talk to any kind of uh, person, but especially females, they twist things around. And uh, I feel like I said something wrong. I don't think I did. Well, anyway, you'll see the Wyamies Wrestling in Block Arena on Sunday night. That's tomorrow night. Remember, it's Easter week, and be careful driving. It's Easter week, Sunday night. There's no school on Monday. It's 7.30, starts at Block Arena. And the directions to the main gate, Pearl Harbor. Make a right and a left into the parking lot. And Civic Auditorium in Hilo on the Big Island. 7.30, Big Time Wrestling, Memorial Auditorium in Maui. You'll see the Wahines plus Peter Maivia, the famous Samoan wrestling star. And here at the Civic Auditorium, you will see next Wednesday night the fabulous Moolah and Miss Betty Boucher against Miss Pat Sherry and Miss Joyce Grable in a tag team thriller. Handsome Johnny Baran and Curtis the Bully Alkea against Gentleman Jim. There it is, audio from Hawaii, April 6, 1968. Once again, thank you to Bill Atkinson, a friend of the show, and the man behind 50th State, BigTimeWrestling.com. Check it out today for information, results, breakdowns of the wrestlers, some really great stuff there for historians. But from there, we're going to move on to our next segment. Now, a few notes here. We're going to talk about the Rocky Johnson book, Soul Man, that was written by Scott Teal. We were originally going to play this on the previous episode of the Super Podcast where Scott had talked about everything he had gone through with the Cauliflower Alley Club and, of course, the man who had become Cauliflower Alley Club president, Brian Blair. We decided not to air this part of the interview in that show because that show ended up coming out the day Rocky Johnson died. And it didn't seem right to put this segment in the show at that time. We're going to put it here in the show, and you're going to hear a few things. Now, a couple of notes. One, I want to make it clear that Arcadian Vanguard's corporate counsel has cleared this segment. There is no exposure to myself, the 605 Super Podcast, Arcadian Vanguard, or our interview subject, Scott Teal. This is a segment that has been cleared for air by corporate counsel. Now, Scott Teal is going to talk about what went down with him and Rocky Johnson on the book. It's also going to tie back into part one of the interview with everything that went down between Scott Teal and Brian Blair. If you have not heard that yet, if you have not heard the interview about why Scott Teal is no longer involved with the Cauliflower Alley Club, 
go back to part one, last episode of the Super Podcast, and hear that. But we're going to play part two. After the interview with Scott Teal, I'm going to have an interview, a conversation with Greg Oliver, another fine wrestling author, because unbeknownst to me when I talked to Scott, Greg had also been involved in this project. Apparently, this project had gone from one person to another person to another person. And then finally, Scott wrote the book, and you'll hear about what happened from that point. But I wanted to find out from Greg what his experience was working with Rocky Johnson, what his experience was working on this book, which is now out of print. You can't get a copy of this. It's a collector's item. So let's go to this right now. My conversation with Scott Teal, part two of the original conversation that aired last time on the Super Podcast, as well as my conversation with Greg Oliver. Let's now talk about a separate topic, although it certainly ties in. You've mentioned Rocky Johnson a few times. Last year, when you were on the Super Podcast, that was one of the projects you talked about, that you were working on Rocky Johnson's autobiography. I don't know how it works. I guess it's still an autobiography, even if it's ghostwritten by someone else. You weren't really a ghost. Your name was on the book. You worked on this book with Rocky Johnson. Let's take a step back. How did you first get on that project? Rocky contacted me in November 2017, I believe it was. It was right after the uh, Florida luncheon in Tampa. And he said he had been talking to other authors, and he'd actually worked with a couple. And But he, wa- he wanted to know. He said he had heard my name. Everybody kept, Every time he talked with people about books, they brought up my name. And he wanted to know if I'd be interested in working on his book. And I said, well, I'd like to. I said, have you seen any of my work? And he said he had. So we came to an agreement, and it was going. To, this was the first book I had ever had published outside of my own publishing deal. You know, Crowbar Press. Uh, it was going to be through ECW Press out of Canada, which publishes a lot of books by Greg Oliver, Steve Johnson, Tim Hornbaker, and others, Dan Murphy. And so I decided, yes, let's do it. And we had an agreement to go in as fifty-fifty partners on all royalties and all advances. Uh, ECW Press sent us a draft man, uh, contract. It wasn't an actual contract, but it was a draft, uh, just uh, sort of an advanced thing. So we could look at it and say, yeah, that looks good. We'll sign off on that. So both our names were on the contract. Shortly before, right after we got the contract, the draft contract, they called me from ECW and said, the only reason we can get, and I will say, it was a nice advance they were giving us that apparently they had never given this big of an advance to anyone. And they said, the only reason we can give this big of an advance is because the Canadian government is giving us uh, a grant. So that's the only way we can do it. And it has to be a Canadian author. I said, well, Rocky is a Canadian author. He says, yes, but uh, you're on there and you're an American. I, so so even you can only have one, a Canadian or two Canadian authors on there to get this grant. He says, that's correct. So I said, well, let me call Rocky. I call Rocky. We came to an agreement. We'd still do the 50-50. He says, when I get my advance money, get my royalties, I'll send you 50%. So we get our, the first advance gets paid, three, four, five thousand $5,000, whatever it was. Sure enough, a week or so later, I get a check from Rocky, half exactly half that amount. So we go through the process of me interviewing him. We probably did 50, 60 hours. I peppered him with questions for 
I'd say a good two months every day for an hour, every morning. And he was so good. He did such a good job answering my questions. And of course, I brought up a ton of things that he didn't remember, you know, stuff I'd done for research. And so after that two months, then it was my baby. At that point, I started to edit. I typed up all the, the audio, 40, 50 hours worth of audio. I was working on it every day for several months, editing moving things around so it flowed chronologically. Rocky had absolutely nothing to do with the book and after, after the interview until I called him and said, Rocky, I'm done with the edit. I have these questions and I need to fill this in because I always do. You know, after you do an edit, you're always going to have a bunch more questions. So I did that, interviewed him some more, inserted all that into the, what I already had, sent it off to ECW Press, Michael Holmes and I, the senior editor there, we worked together. He'd send me his edit because they do little edits too. They didn't have to do much, uh, but he sent me some things. He says, how about this? Or how about this word change here? And I'd send it back and everything went fine up until, oh, let me see. I guess it was first, very first of October of this year. I get an email from Sheila, Rocky's wife. And she says, Scott, you've got, I had gone down to, uh, actually flown down to Florida with my wife at our own expense to scan pictures that Rocky had. I have a ton of photos of him, but I went down there to scan a bunch of stuff he had. And, you know, at my own expense, stayed two, three days. Well, Sheila calls in October and she says, can you send me the uh, DVD or CD, whatever, of all the photos. And I said, well, I haven't done anything with it. I haven't cleaned them up or anything. I said, ECW, I've just done the ones for ECW Press. She says, well, could you send those to me, clean them up and all? And so I, I spent a whole day cleaning, cropping, sizing, brightening pictures and articles and all kinds of stuff for them, put it on a CD, sent it to her, didn't hear a word. No thank you, no anything. October 14th, I get a letter from Scott Richardson, a lawyer uh, in Orlando, Florida. It said that he had been retained by Rocky, and he said that he, uh, no, I guess he was the second letter I got. There was another guy I had, uh, somebody else that sent me a letter that said, uh, I had no more claim. Uh, he, he mentioned autobiography. He says, be advised, uh, here it is, please be advised that your obligations with regard to the said autobiography have ceased as of all entitlements to any past, current, or future payments with regard to said autobiography. Uh, this is back in, okay, this is August 30th. October was a different attorney letter. So anyway, so he sent me a letter saying I was going to get no more money, even though Rocky and I had an agreement, and that my obligations to the book had ceased, even though I had worked with ECW Press on the edit, sending them pictures, finding pictures, sending them all kinds of information they needed, working on the cover, actually working on the cover with them, helping get the word out. So all of a sudden, I'm getting nothing. And this is from a guy whose son gives him everything, houses, cars, you name it. And I, he's leaving me out in the cold. So at that point, I was pretty devastated because I thought, this is great. I, I finally you know, have a book in the bookstores, which I never cared about. That's why I do it myself. But I thought, it's cool, we'll have a book in the bookstores. And I just absolutely lost any interest or enthusiasm I had for the book. But I went through two months of just total hell in my mind of being screwed over so bad. And here, no, here's the crux of the matter. 
the whole bottom line, Michael Holmes at ECW Press, a senior editor, one day I called him. I said, I don't understand why this is happening. He says, well, he's, I just wish Brian Blair would quit talking to Rocky. I said, what do you mean? And he was, Michael was pretty upset. He said, every time he, Brian talks to him, he gets Rocky all worked up and Rocky calls me up and rants and raves about you and this and that and the other, that you got fired and this, that and the other. And, and I said, you're kidding me. He says, no. He says, he, so Brian was in his ear and Rocky later admitted this to me on a phone. I've got the voicemail where he admitted it. He admitted, he says, I should have never listened to the boys. And so all this led to me just having no response, no anything with the book after that, even though I'm the one that wrote it. And the interesting thing is, I also wrote the foreword for Dwayne Johnson. Rocky would not, Rocky said, Dwayne didn't have time to spend 10 minutes with me. So he, he said, you just write, you just write it. He says, I'll answer whatever questions you have. So I asked him a few questions, but most of it, you know, he didn't know anything about writing a forward. So I just, you know, worked sort of through Dwayne's career and made it sound as if he wrote it. But that's, it was all me. Every single word in that book came from me. So I have it here and I believe it's been pulled from the market. And I don't know that for sure. You'll tell me in a second, but I have the book here. The introduction by Dwayne, the rock Johnson was written by you. Yep. Absolutely. I've got the documentation. I've got Rocky and I talking on audio about it, about him talking about that I would be writing the forward, him answering my questions for the forward. I've got all that on, on audio. And somewhere I've got on audio that we agreed to this 50%, even though it was in that original contract, and he did send me 50% of that first advance payment. But yeah, absolutely. I wrote every single word in that book. And, and you know, a lot of it sure came from Rocky's interview, the interview I did with Rocky. But that, that was the other thing, too. He told Michael Holmes one time after he was talking about Brian, he says, well, Rocky said, Brian said this, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm, I'm tired of it. He says, but Rocky also said that you don't, you don't, or we we're talking about ownership of the copyright. And he says, well, Bri Rocky said he wrote the book and that you just edited it. I said, yeah, you can believe that if you want. Well, Michael knows, he knows who I am. He knows what the work I've done. He knows good and well, Rocky Johnson didn't write that book. But Rocky's telling him that he was the one that wrote the book and I edited it. I have to imagine when you all of a sudden get a legal letter from anyone, especially the son of, I believe, the highest paid actor in Hollywood, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, that must be an intimidating process. It also at some point must be a costly process because you have to hire an attorney to defend you. What was the aftermath of you receiving all of a sudden this termination of the agreement letter? And I guess the threat of a lawsuit. Yeah, there was a, um, in that letter, there wasn't so much a threat of a lawsuit uh, that came later with another uh, with a letter from another attorney. Uh, this particular uh, letter where it said I had no more not, no more money coming or anything was simply a statement of, of fact that they weren't going to pay me anything more. Uh, the lawyer is John Crowther. I think he's the guy that does the uh, comic books for the wrestlers now. And Rocky told me when Rocky tried to make up, which he turned on me again a week later, but when he tried to make up and say, you know, I shouldn't have listened to the boys. And he says, and then John had some ulterior motives too. He wanted you out. You know, I got all this on tape, you know, on, on a voicemail. So that, that was just a, a statement of fact. It was October, about two months later. I get a letter saying, because I had written, uh, had an attorney send Rocky 
a letter saying, well, I, am, I own half the copyright because my name is on the book. I own half the copyright. And I said, if it comes to it, I'll post it online. I said, no, I have not signed a contract with ECW Press. I have signed nothing. I have not even agreed to say, yes, I'm okay with the book being published. I haven't given anybody permission to do anything. I haven't signed off. And I did it really just to tell him, you know, you can't just treat me like this because, you know, I have some rights too. So then I get a letter from his attorney saying uh, it was a work for hire, which is that's a bunch of bull because a work for hire means you work for a company and this company comes to you and says, hey, we want you to write a book about so and so. And at that point, the company that hired that actually you work for, they own the copyright, not you. You're simply writing it for that company. I wasn't being paid by Rocky. I wasn't work. I wasn't an employee of Rocky and you have to be an employee. But it, it was a threatening letter claiming all this stuff. That unless I turned over total copyright ownership, then they were going to take me to court and sue me for everything, everything I had, including damages and lawyer fees. And it's just unbelievable. You know, I just, I don't know. Did ECW Press have any reaction to this? Has the book, in fact, been pulled from the market? And I'm sure it's a regrettable process for you now looking back, but has it been a costly process for you as well? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, not only did I spend money to fly down to Florida and plus, you know, three days of my time and then all the time spent clean, scanning, cleaning, cropping, sending the photos to ECW Press for them to look at, taking their choices and making sure I sent them the highest quality scans I could for the book. And then, uh, you know, then the lawyer situation. Yeah, that's cost me money. It's cost me more than what I what I made on that one advance, half that royalty check. And then I was scheduled to go to FanFest in Tampa uh, last month. And Rocky gets in the ear of the guys running it. And he says, my lawyer, tell, and Rocky was a featured guest at FanFest. And I've always gone to FanFest. I've always had a table. And I sell my stuff. Well, Rocky gets in their ear and he says, my lawyer says, if Scott Teal's in any in a building, I shouldn't be there. So what happens? I'm asked not to come to FanFest. Now, in the process, I had already spent more than $1,000 on new DV on DVDs, covers, cases, printing, books, uh, just specifically for FanFest. And so here's another $1,000 plus dollars I'm out. That, and, and most of the stuff will never sell because it sells only at events. You know, it's, people aren't going to order a lot of this stuff. So, yes, it's cost me a good deal of money. Uh, absolutely. And what about ECW Press? What has their reaction been? And is the book, in fact, pulled from the market right now? I, okay. To take your first part, I had a lot of conversations with Michael Holmes, the senior editor there. Great guy. I mean, just so good to work with. But some of the situations, uh, I got a little upset because uh, they had on Amazon Soul Man by Rocky Johnson with a foreword by Dwayne Johnson with contributions by Scott Teal. And I said, no, none of the, the guys, you, none of the wrestling guys that write books about other wrestlers do you have listed. You have by, uh, let's just say, Mad Dog Bashan and Bertrand Hebert. They don't say contributions by Bertrand Hebert. They say by Mad Dog Vashon and Bertrand, you know, and, and, but me all of a sudden, I'm just a contributor to the book. But anyways, Michael and I got a little sideways 
because I, I got heated over some things. Not heated, but I just I said, you know, I'm sick of this. So I shouldn't be treated this way. Well, he took offense to it. So we sort of quit talking. So I just haven't had any conversations with Michael. I hold nothing against him. I think he's a super person. He has probably, in the long run, gotten raked over the coals by by his superiors there at ECW Press. Because this was look, this book was looked at to be a big, big deal because of who Rocky is. Not that he was a great wrestler, but because he's the son of Dwayne Johnson. And I don't the father, know the father of Dwayne the, Johnson. I mean, the father of Dwayne Johnson. Yes, I don't know. What the situation with the book, I do know if you go to ECW Press Soul and type in Soul Man, you find it comes up, no such word found. Type in Rocky Johnson, no such word found. You go to Amazon, it's available in audio format, but that's it. The books have been pulled off. I think Amazon Canada, I believe you can still get the print format book, but I don't know how long that's going to last. And I've searched, I mean, I've gone through news sites, all kinds of things searching. I can't find anything, but it's definitely not available now. The only place you can get it now is off my website, and I've raised the price $75. I don't care if I sell them or not, but I'm raising it $75. If if I can sell a few of them, then I'll make a little bit of my money back. But uh, it's just absolutely the craziest thing. So I don't know what's going on. I do know that ECW Press is probably livid over this whole situation. How much of this incident with Rocky do you personally attribute to you falling out with Brian Blair and the CAC? Well, Brian was the catalyst for all this with Rocky because Rocky was good with everything up until Brian got in his ear. And at that point, that's when things started to go south. And Michael Holmes told me, he says, if I have to take Rocky to court over this, which I'll explain that in a second. He said, if I have to take Rocky to court, He'll gladly testify to anything that was said to him by Rocky. And one of the things Rocky said over and or he said over and over was the fact that Rocky kept telling him, Brian Blair said this, Brian Blair said that. And this is what really hurts the most. And it's why I backed out away from wrestling. I'm just I was at a point of just getting out completely. I am through with autobiographies. I will write. I've got two, three autobiographies in the works, but that's it. After that, let them write their own books. You know, this is about them. Autobiography means they wrote it. So let them write it. I'm going to concentrate on my history books and that's it. I'm not doing any more. But the whole problem was that Brian got in his ear and pushed and pushed and pushed and turned because he's good friends with Rocky. So so that's the whole situation right there. That's that was the catalyst. Have you had any communication with Brian Blair since all of this happened? Just the little communication, a few emails, messages. Um, after I resigned, I did send him one message right after I resigned. I said, Brian, no matter what's happened, no matter how I feel about all that's gone on, I will not disparage the CAC. And he messages me back and says, good for you, Scott. This shows you're a real man. And then what does he do right after that? All of a sudden he's starting telling people all this. So I had never disparaged Brian Blair over anything until now. And now I am, you know, because you're asking the questions. I'm just telling it like it is. I got people back me up on everything. I've got emails. I got phone calls. Uh, and I'm not trying to hurt the CAC. I love the CAC. I think I won't ever go again, uh, at least not with the current leadership. But the CAC, it, it's really left a sour taste in my mouth. Like I said, it's pretty much pushed me away from doing anything with wrestling. Based on whatever it is that you know, do you anticipate any sort of litigation? 
about this Rocky Johnson book? I don't think so. I, I don't know what the deal is. Like I said, I don't know what the deal is, why it's not even for sale anymore. Um, I do know it's in bookstores. I've checked a couple bookstores around here, and they do have them on the shelves. But I, no, I don't really expect any any litigation at all. I don't know what they're going to come after me for. You know, there's, you know, I've got all the proof. That's one thing. When Rocky said he wrote the book and I just edited it, Michael says that's not true. Michael was in my corner. I mean, he knows good and well Rocky wasn't doing that. And he says he says he told Rocky he says Rocky, you cannot prove one word of that. He says you don't have one single file on your computer, you don't have it on, on paper saying you wrote anything. You don't have anything to show where you wrote anything. Scott Teal has every single file. He's got the audio. He's got the 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 edits. He's got everything. Because uh, all I sent Rocky was the final book in print form, or semi-final, you know, as we were working, as Michael and I were working on it. You've seen the book in bookstores. You said there's an audio version that's still available. Those are your words on that audio version, and obviously in the book. You're not seeing any royalties from any of them. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I won't be because it was stupid on my part. You know, it's, I'm not on the contract. I did it for the right reasons so that we could get the bigger, you know, bigger advance so Rocky could get the money that, that they had promised him. And I took Rocky at his word. What's the old something about friendship lie, friendships die, something where money lies, friendship dies, <laughs> you know. To circle back to the beginning, it's been a, clearly, from talking to you today, it's been a rough year for you, and you have, for the most part, walked away from wrestling. You've been doing your comic books, preparing some of them for sale, like you said, buying some, and really minimal, minimal for Scott Teal involvement with wrestling, because you still have the Crowbar Press Archives group, but a lot of us are used to multiple posts a day, and those really haven't been there. What do you see right now as being your future in or around wrestling? And what is the future of Crowbar Press? Well, just to sum it up, August through October was absolutely miserable. I mean, I couldn't sleep at night. I was just sick to my stomach because of the way things were handled. November, I started to come around and Angela and I sat down and we said, you know what, this in a way has been good. We're looking at it as a positive because it has opened up my eyes to the fact that there's more to life than wrestling. I spent every waking moment that we weren't doing something. Angela and I weren't, you know, traveling somewhere or watching movies or going somewhere with the grandchildren. Every spare moment I had that we weren't busy doing something else, I was in, at this computer working on wrestling books. But it just sort of, you know, took the took the enthusiasm, just took all the enthusiasm out of it for me. So I just sort of gave it all up. But uh, I'll get back into it. Uh, honestly, once I get into the research uh, for some of my, for my history projects, like my uh, great wrestling venues and wrestling archive, I'm only doing a lot of interviews with guys for the, my wrestling archive projects. You know, there won't be full length books with anybody, but there'll be not, you know, pretty detailed interviews, like my old whatever happened to interviews. Uh, I'll get back into that and I'll be excited again. I probably won't be doing it as much as I was. Like I said, I have backed off from uh, the Crowbar Press archives. I'm posting one one article a day that's, you know, I think is informative or interesting. I still do that. And of course, I'm selling some things on eBay. So I'll still have my hand in it. I just won't, it just won't be in it to the extent that I was. 
Well, Scott, as we wrap up this segment, and it went a lot longer than I thought it was going to, and we're not even going to break it into two parts. We're going to play the whole thing as one interview just so everyone could hear the complete story here. Let the listeners know how they can stay in touch with you in Crowbar Press. I know you just put out some classic arena programs of Florida, 1970 and 71. If anyone has ever wanted a complete collection of Florida programs from those years, this is the first time they've been collected in book form, and I was really happy to get these for research purposes, just to geek out and go through them. So please let the listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and Crowbar Press and about some of your recent books. Well, thank you. Yeah, those classic uh, wrestling program books, to me, it just, I love them. Uh, just the fact that where can you go to get 52 programs and more from any territory so you have every single program for an entire year? You know, this is, you know, the only way you can do that is to buy them off eBay. And the chances of you getting all those programs is very slim because a lot of those programs are rare and they don't get put up. And that to have all those programs in one place, to me, it's just the coolest thing. And I'm not saying this just to, uh, you know, hawk my books, but that to me, if I, I, I love this, doing that kind of project, I'm hoping I can do some, you know, some other territory, St. Louis or Dallas, because people, they enjoy looking through those old programs. But like, as I was just saying, you can't get all, get them all. So it's sort of nice to have them all in one spot in one book where you can just go from front to back. Uh, my other books, like I said, my um, re- great wrestling venue, I can't wait start digging into Tampa, Florida, uh, St. Louis. Those are two of the biggies. Uh, Nashville, Volume 2, after uh, which I have to do now after Jim Cornette reamed my butt about not doing it sooner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, crowbarpress.com. You can find everything there. And uh, I'm always willing to help anybody that you know, has any questions about anything history wise, whether I know the answer or not, I don't, you know, that's, I don't know everything, but I will help try and find the answer, you know, when, and I always do when somebody asks me a question, or at least I can point them in the right direction, if nothing else. But my whole goal is just to preserve as much history as I can, uh, as long as I'm here, because, you know, when these guys are gone, especially like these ones that I plan to interview, when when they die, we're, we lose all that history. We lose so much every time one of these guys passes away. And I just want to preserve and get their stories down for posterity. So 100 years from now, people will still, you know, have the opportunity to read about Red Bastine and read about Nick Bockwinkle. Well, Scott, I think I could speak for a lot of the listeners and certainly a great number of the historians out there by saying that I very much appreciate all the hard work you've put into all your publications and just how helpful you've been to me throughout the years whenever I've had a question. And I could certainly see what a rough year you've had, but maybe selfishly, because I want more of your books. I (laughs) I really hope you keep pushing on, and I really think you've done a lot of great things for wrestling, and I hope you keep going. Thank you, Brian. I enjoyed being on here. I'm sorry to be so negative. And like I said, I didn't, I'm not saying all I did for CAC to get out of boys or anything, but I just want people to understand why I resigned and not take things that are being said and out of context or as flat, flat out and out lies for that matter. I want people to understand why I resigned. I'm very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast one of wrestling's most prolific writers, the man behind Slam, the man behind so many books, Greg Oliver. Greg, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Brian. 
I wanted to talk to you today about Rocky Johnson's book because obviously there's been a little bit of controversy about what went down between Scott Teal and Rocky in regards to the book Soul Man, which came out on ECW Press. And some stuff happened on social media, which led to you putting out an article on Slam about Scott's ordeal with Rocky Johnson, a lot of that which was covered here on the Super Podcast. But I didn't realize until reading that article that you actually had a little bit of a history with this book project. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today is your involvement with, I don't know if it was already called Soul Man at that stage or if it didn't have a title, but your involvement with what would be the Rocky Johnson autobiography. So when did you first get involved with this project and how did you get involved with this project? Well, I like to think that almost any of these projects go back in time. Like I first met Rocky, I think it was 2003. His brother, Jay, lives in town who wrestled as Ricky Johnson. And and he'd been a close friend of mine. He was one of the first guys who got me into the business, uh, you know, and, and accepted me backstage and all that kind of stuff that you need as a young kid covering pro wrestling. Uh, so I got to know Rocky, you know, when he would come to town, sometimes we'd have breakfast or, you know, we'd talk on the phone here and there. So eventually when he approached me um, and said, hey, let's talk about doing a book, it's not the first or the last time some old wrestler called me out of the blue and asked me. Uh, so we, we talked about it. Um, I knew it would be a good project. Um, and obviously there's the appeal of his son, uh, who's, you know, one of the most famous men in the world. But that's not the only reason you take any project. You got to wonder, OK, am I going to make my money off this? Is it going to be worth my time? All those things and and all the check marks were there. I I knew the family. Um, I talked extensively to Ada, his his ex wife. I knew uh, his kids and his brother in town. So I thought, why not? And that's when we sort of talked and and put together a deal with ECW Press. Well, that was going to be my next question. When he approaches you about doing a book, is anything already in place? Did he have a relationship with ECW Press? But you just settled that. You said that it was after you got onto the project, that's when you took it to ECW Press. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So he'd already gone down the road with another guy named Seth Turner, who is an educator, lives in, uh, I think he's close to Albany, New York. Uh, and he'd done a book with him. And, and Seth is now involved with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame that they're going to establish in New York State. And um, so I guess Seth had done a book with him. But, you know, the fact is, if you're hiring somebody who's never done a book before, I'm not how sure how good it's going to be. Um, so I think at some point, Rocky decided, well, let's try again. Uh, and that definitely happened with his script, too. I, I don't know if you've heard there's this Ring King uh, script that's out there no. that uh, um, that he's had written a few times that I think his son probably uh, eventually picked up the rights to or something. Uh, so he's had a couple of scripts. He he envisioned it being a great big movie. I, I don't know if that ever happened. The Rock just announced he's doing a young Rock story, right? So some of this old Rocky stories are going to be on this TV show that he's developing. Uh, anyways, that's sort of beside the point. So this guy, Seth Turner, who I hadn't met and didn't know anything about, had apparently done a manuscript too. So Rocky approached me. I put him in touch with ECW Press, ECW Press, and uh, I, you know, we had a conference call or whatever it was, and uh, eventually we got around to hammering out a contract. And um, the contract was all made up, and uh, you know, I had my concerns, but you know, that's any publishing project. 
you're wondering, okay, well, how honest is this guy going to be? How much am I going to get to talk to important people in his life? All those kind of typical concerns. It's not any different than working on John Arezzi's book or the Joe Gretton hockey book. How honest are these people going to be? So that's where it was left. ECW Press drafted up the contract, uh, sent it to Rocky in Florida, I think, or maybe it was the Missouri address where he was living with his wife, Sheila. But the key to it all was he still owned property in Nova Scotia. So therefore, he can be written up as a Canadian citizen. Well, that was one of the issues Scott ran into why he wasn't on the contract with ECW Press was, and I guess in order to get the grant to cover the large advance that Rocky required, you needed it to be a Canadian citizen on the contract. Now, how did that affect you? Because you are a Canadian citizen. So were you... On the contract, as a, I mean, you said it was contract, so you were on the contract with Rocky? Correct. Now, the, it's simplistic to just say that it was a grant because of that. I mean, every publisher has, uh, you know, all kinds of hoops to jump through, and it's not like, well, we write this book, we get this money. It's That's not the way the publishing industry works. Um, but there's a good chance they would have applied for, you know, a bigger grant or a bigger a tax break or whatever it may have been, uh, had I been on the contract as two Canadians as opposed to uh, an American and a Canadian. Did it seem to you like the book was a big priority to Rocky? Obviously, you mentioned he also had this script. He had gone down the road of doing the book already with Seth Turner. He had now come to you. Did it seem like the book was a big priority to him? I'm not sure a big priority. It was just, you know, something he wanted to work on. He had very big dreams. I can remember this one specifically. He said that he envisioned selling 200,000 copies of it in Nova Scotia alone. <laughs> well. So I don't think there's 200,000 people that live in Halifax. And that's, <laughs> you know, the, the biggest city there. Uh, and it, it, he had a delusions of grandeur. And, and I'm happy to you know, roll with any of that. I mean, a lot of authors do, uh, especially when you take on a project like this, uh, any any project. I mean, everybody has dreams of getting rich with books, and it's just not there. Did ECW Press seem excited about this potential project? Oh, absolutely. I mean, why wouldn't they be? Uh, it, it's another good, straightforward wrestling project. The tie into The Rock was was a natural, and, um, you know, it'd be an easy book to market. Uh Besides Rocky's actual in-ring work, which, of course, was great, and, and he was a you know wonderful build, this and that, he's got an interesting story going back to you know the roots of slavery and, and African-Americans coming up to uh, a safe haven up in Acadia, and, and that's his relatives. So he's got all that legit story that uh, makes it even more compelling. And so telling a story of a, you know, a, a black Canadian who'd gone on to great things like that is, is unique. It's a good story. And, and historically, uh, it's important these stories get kept. You mentioned that ECW Press had sent out a contract. Was the contract ever actually executed? They sent it to Rocky, but did you ever actually sign the contract? I signed mine, yeah, it's, it's, if I'm remembering correctly. I mean, we both got copies of it. Um, I remember one of our friends who lives in the neighborhood, she came over and we had dinner because we were celebrating. It's like, hey, I just got a new book deal. Let's come on over for dinner. And that is basically where the story ends. Well, what happened? Because obviously Scott Teal would end up writing the book and he did a fantastic job with the book. But when you say that's when the story ends, 
was there a falling out? Was it just, I mean, how did it go from you being under contract to write the book with ECW Press, who has published a number of your books, to Scott doing the book with ECW Press? What happened? No idea. Uh, essentially, Rocky ghosted me, to use a modern term. Uh, I just never heard back. Um, I, I addressed his, his son, Curtis, as a friend of mine. I asked him, you know, talk to your dad. What's going on? And, and he did. But again, I never got a straight answer. Never got him on the phone. Never, you know, told me what's up. Next thing I knew, Scott was reaching out to me and saying, hey, Rocky asked me about doing this book. Are you okay if I do it? And of course, I was happy. You know, Scott is a friend of mine. He's a quality individual. And I was looking forward to having him have the opportunity to work with a much bigger platform, right? He's done all these great books at Crowbar Press, but being distributed in bookstores and all these things would have been unique for him. And uh, so I was, I was quite happy for him. He offered me a small amount of money for some of my research I'd already done. Uh, but, you know, that was neither here nor there. I was happy to help my friend Scott Teal. How much work had you done for the project? And was the name Soul Man already attached as the name of the book? Uh, loosely, I guess. I, every book, when you're doing a proposal, uh, has a title, but that doesn't mean you stick with it. So if that's what they wanted, that's, that's fine with me. Uh, in the end, it, it doesn't even come down to the person writing the book. Um, a, a good example was one of my hockey books was, was about goalies. And uh, the people who do the book buying for the largest chain in Canada said, I don't like the color of that cover. You need to change it. So ECW Press had to go change the color of the cover to appease the largest you know, book buyer in Canada. So a lot of these things are outside of your hands, right? It's, it's into the marketing people. It, it's the public, you know, all those different people working together to get a book done. It's certainly not an individual project by any means. And ECW Press has always been great to work with. Um, I mean, I've been there. They did my first book in 2003. So uh, there's only a couple of people left that uh, have been there that long. Was the intention all along for The Rock to write the forward to the book? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, I certainly envisioned that. And I know I'd talked to Rocky about that. Uh, why wouldn't you? I mean, he's he's a superstar. And and that's a selling point. So anybody, that, that should have been a no-brainer. And to the question I asked before, uh, how much research, how much work had you already done towards the book? Had you spent any money in the work that you had done towards the book? No, I don't think there's any money, but it's more about amassing. That's sort of the way I look at anything I do. Right. If I first met Rocky in 2003, I had those notes. Uh, I talked to lots of people about him. He's in our uh, Heroes and Icons book. He's in my first book, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians. In fact, that dinner where I met him, now that I, I just thought of this story, I feel like John Arezzi. I just heard you, you tell me something, I think of something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, I gave him a copy of the book, uh, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians, and his wife, the next day at dinner goes, Rocky stayed up all damn night reading that book, you know, because he was just so interested in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians. And, and for a lot of those guys, they didn't know what happened to a lot of their peers. Yeah, it was the early days of the internet. Not everybody was online. So a book like that was valuable. And what I remember Rocky saying was, where'd you get this picture? That's my first ever wrestling boots. Uh, and so, you know, things like that stick with you. 
So I'd done a lot of research gathering through time, uh, sitting down with Ada, uh, my via at the um, CAC, College Rally Club, just chatting about, you know, growing up with rock and, and with Rocky. I was curious about how much Dwayne knew, you know, the family in Toronto that Rocky had left behind. So I, I was just curious about everything. I mean, I, and again, because I knew the family here in Toronto, I, I'd known a lot of stories and, and had gathered things through the years. So I guess it's still kind of a mystery to you what exactly happened with Rocky. You never heard back. Did you ever hear back ever again? No. No, never heard from him or his lawyer or his, or his wife or anybody about why it all fell apart. You've done a lot of books. You've worked with a lot of people. How unique is this experience and just how crazy is this experience compared to everything else you've done in wrestling books i guess it's beyond wrestling you've done hockey you've done other things how crazy an experience was this how does this compare to other books you've done um you know what there's been a ton of different people that you talk to books about through the years uh and and that's just natural in this business right uh, you know manny fernandez wanted me to do his book and it's like well manny fernandez can't tell the the time on his on his watch you know without lying so i'm not sure i could actually do that book you know what i mean uh, so you go down the road with a lot of people you listen to a lot of people uh hockey guys similar like you know you talk about doing a, a biography maybe or an autobiography things come and go and I, I get used to that it's just the surprising thing was how far down the road we went and that there was a, a contract right there and that i never heard back that's the part that is the really surprising a disappointing part. Did you have a financial agreement in place with Rocky? Uh, well, I didn't have to have one directly with Rocky because it was DCW Press, right? Okay, yeah, okay. So it's a, it's a specific contract just with them, uh, and it wasn't with Rocky. So it was different than the setup that Scott had arranged. Well, there you hear it, my conversations with Scott Teal and Greg Oliver, all about Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson biography, once again, out of print now. And I think you could hear exactly why it's out of print from listening to these two conversations. Just want to add a little bit of an addendum here. The 605 Super Podcast has had a pretty strong presence at Cauliflower Alley, a growing presence each and every year. I love that so many of the listeners and so many of the co-hosts and guests from the shows can get together and have a good time. I always hear everyone has a great time. But... I want to make sure everyone understands the 605 Super Podcast does not endorse the Cauliflower Alley Club or its president, Brian Blair. I will say that we have some concerns about how the organization's being run. We have some concerns about how the organization is being fiscally responsible. We have concerns about how much money the organization is sitting on and how much money actually goes to wrestlers in need. For those many reasons, the 605 Super Podcast and Arcadian Vanguard do not endorse the Cauliflower Alley Club at this time. I know a lot of the listeners will go. I hope you guys all have a really good time hanging out together. But we have nothing to do with the Cauliflower Alley Club. And I think if you've listened to this show, if you know what we stand for here, that may carry a little bit of weight with you. But we do not endorse the CAC at the present time. And I know you go every year, Kurt. And I see pictures, and everyone has a good time. We're not telling people not to have a good time. We're not telling people not no, to No, 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 no. Hey, hey, Brian, Brian, you know, I know we get along and shit, but no, I want to do a counterpoint here. I'm telling you. Yeah, I go every year. 
But I'm telling you, there's an alternative. Across the street from the Gold Coast, there's a hotel called the Rio. Okay. Now, y'all think you're getting these great discounts through Cauliflower Alley at Gold Coast. Oh, 25 bucks a room. Oh, goody. Motel 6 has something on them. When I say something on them, I mean Hotel 6 is cooler than Gold Coast hotel rooms. Across the street is the Rio, which is a bit more expensive, maybe $25, $30. You go check. Don't take my word for it. Why not just check into the Rio? And if you happen to check in in the Rio on the week of Cauliflower Alley, why not just stroll across the street to Gold Coast and hang around the lobby where everybody involved in Cauliflower is and can talk to you and can chat? You know, but you don't have to, like, uh, pay a shitload of money to get your picture taken with them and shit like that. So, you know, that's just an alternative. You can go and not attend the banquet. You can exactly. Go and you can hang out with everyone. Full disclosure, I've been going to the Rio. Fredo Asparsa and I have been going to the Rio for three years now. And uh, he never experienced the Gold Coast. And I will never allow my good friend Fredo, who experienced the Gold Coast, Rio is rocking. That's where it's at. So don't think Cauliflower Owl is doing any favors. Like I said, I want everyone to have a good time. I love that the listeners can get together. Hey, if I ever actually do the 605 convention, maybe I'll run directly against CAC at the Rio. I want to say I love everybody who goes to CAC, and I love seeing everybody at CNC, but I want to have full disclosure. The reason I go to CAC each year is because that's the only time of the year I get to see people that I truly love but can't see on a regular basis. People like Tom Burke, uh, people like uh, Royal Duncan. I mean, there are some really awesome people out there, and CAC is a great hub for everybody to meet up. Now, everybody wants to argue that there's another uh, institution that we should be all be going to instead. I'm open to that. Well, we'll see what happens. But once again, Scott Teal and Greg Oliver. And on that topic, Book of the Week! Book of the Week? Did you say say Book of the Week? I indeed said Book of the Week. And in fact, because it's been several weeks, we're going to talk about several books here. Wow. The great books that are put out by Scott Teal on Crowbar Press and the great books that Greg Oliver has written. Let's talk about Crowbar Press first. Crowbarpress.com. Please, everyone, go there. Scott Teal has put out so many fantastic biographies. I think now I have 90 to 95% of them. There's a couple I don't have, but I have every single one of these biographies he's put out, these collections of results, these collections of programs. He put out all the Florida programs from, what, 70 and 71? The other day, because I was going through some stuff from the 30s, was using his Madison Square Garden history book as a reference, and it's just fantastic. I can't endorse Crowbar Press enough. It's Can I even make a recommendation? Yeah. The book Fall Guys, the annotated the annotated, yeah. Oh, my God. I will go as far, and I don't know if you've read it, uh, Brian, but I will go as far to say it's probably one of the most important wrestling publications in wrestling history. I'm not talking about the original Fall Guys. I'm talking about the work that both Scott Teal and Steve Yohe did into finding the myths behind the myths. This is 
one of the most important wrestling publications in history, and I'm not I'm not being history on it here. <laughs> you know, I, I read a lot, Kurt, and I go through books relatively quickly because I love to read and I retain knowledge and I am able to go through a book quickly and really just retain all the knowledge I get from the book. I love it. I can't get through that book quickly. There's so much information in there. Every time I pick it up, I start reading it, and then you read something, you see the annotation, and then I end up just cross-checking it and referencing with other things in the book. I can't just sit there and read that book straight through. It's so loaded with info. You and me both, in fact, you're, you're probably going to laugh at this. I mean, one of the things I'm doing during this, the whole uh, COVID-19 thing is I'm actually taking myself back to high school and that I'm actually making myself sit down and spending 30 minutes at a time learning different subjects. And one of the things I I want to do is I want to take Fall Guys and I want to take notes on that just like I would a college course because that's what this is. This is a course on the history of the roots of professional wrestling. It is so well done. I cannot say enough about this. It's Let's put it this way. I had a friend uh, who was not like a huge wrestling fan, but he was a big fan back in the days of like the WrestleMania three area. And he was an indie worker for a while. And I found out he was reading the original Fall Guys and I immediately sent him a copy of the annotated Fall Guys. And he sent me a thank you note saying, oh, my God, thank you. This this is a whole change on wrestling history. The original Fall Guys is kind of almost a fairy tale. But when Scott Teal and Steve he take it apart, it is an important piece of wrestling history. Once again, you can get that at crowbarpress.com. Check it out. There's so many great books there. I encourage you to check it out today. And also want to make mention of the fine books that Greg Oliver has put out. Of course, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books. I think the latest one was The Storytellers. But there's been the Canadians, the Heels, the Tag Teams, really great stuff. If you want to take a deep dive into wrestling history, check this stuff out. Greg Oliver does such a fine job with these books. Have you checked out any of these books, Kurt? I have checked out every one of them. The two I recommend the strongest are The Storytellers, which is funny because when I saw the premise of The Storytellers just on just the whole gambit of how pro wrestling came about and how it's been done. I thought, that's eh, been done. But no, they put a new spin on this and they will introduce you to wrestlers you've never heard of before who have shaped the business, you know, to the modern day. Uh the other one is the heroes. And I know that the book that people want to get most is like the heels books because people dig the heels because people are kind of immature and they think baby faces are uh <laughs> are lame, but if you get the Heroes and Icons book, that is even better than the Heels book. You know, I just want to say Greg Oliver is an awesome cat. You know, I want to say, uh, you know, even though it mean nothing to him, Bret Hart, I will never forgive you for disrespecting Greg Oliver. And Greg Oliver, I respect you for uh, when you were at the uh, Hall of Fame convention in Iowa and Bret Hart said either I leave the room or Greg Oliver leaves the room, Greg Oliver just waved bye-bye at him. And Bret Hart ended up leaving before Greg Oliver. So, um, fuck you, Bret Hart. God bless you, Greg <laughs> Oliver. 
I don't even know this whole story. I have a you never heard story. this story? You yeah. never heard the story about when, at the, you know, what's that Iowa Hall of Fame? I, I, I use it loosely because they base it on like a clown like Frank Gotch, who was just one of, uh, uh, was just an early Jack Pfeffer gimmick. Um, no, seriously. Uh, Greg Oliver was being honored that year for the work he had done, and he was there with his wife. So he's honored, and then Bret Hart's also being honored. Bret Hart gets up there, and Bret Hart says, like, any place I would honor, like, you know, somebody lame like Greg Oliver, you know, is full of shit or something like that. You know, don't quote me. But then he said, like, either Greg Oliver leaves or I leave now. And Greg Oliver just smirked at him and waved his hand, and Bret Hart ended up leaving. And then he claimed to everybody else, uh, that he doesn't remember any of it happening because of his stroke. <laughs> and while I, I, while I admire Bret Hart for for the progress he made after having a stroke, I still say fuck you, fuck you. Well, once again, this is book of the week. <laughs> what a mess! His wife was fucking there. His wife was there. My God, That's his messed. wife was there, and Bret Hart. Why was he mad at Greg tried- Oliver? Oh, oh, okay, this is where it gets good. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't remember who he said this to. I want to say it was Dave Meltzer, but don't quote me on that because I don't want to, you know. But he was incensed that Greg Oliver and his tag team's books play somebody above the Road Warriors because he thought the Road Warriors were the greatest tag team of all time, and he thought that was an insult to the Road Warriors' kids. Never mind that it could be insult to whoever number one was for their kids. But apparently, and I can't remember if that was in that same address he had or another one, but he uh, was upset that he was raided under Sky Low Low. Now. What, rated, what? Is, rated how under Sky Low Low? Oh, you know, it's just one of those, uh, the Canadians book. Remember the Canadians oh, book okay. he had okay. where they just rated who the top Canadians were. And I think like, you know, it wasn't like Sky Lolo was number three and Brett was number four. It was more like Sky Lolo was maybe number eight and Brett was number 12. I don't remember exactly, but I guess Brett was like freaking out about that to people like Sky Lolo, but I have a theory behind that, and I want historians to take notes right now. Why would Bret Hart be threatened by Sky Lolo being rated higher than him? Why? Why? Now, with that silence, I can tell why. My theory is Bret Hart's strongest spots were stole. He stole them from Sky Lolo. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, oh, don't act like that's anything unusual. I mean, here's the thing. You know that Bret Hart was like, probably grew up watching Sky Low from time to time. Am I right? From time to time, maybe. Okay. So, when Bret Hart started wrestling, yeah, something I didn't know. I didn't know that Stu Hart did not go to all the dark, you know, the spot shows and stuff like that. My theory is Bret Hart couldn't quite figure out what his father's idea of wrestling was, so he would watch Sky Low Low matches intently. And then at those spot shows that his father was not at, 
he would practice the spots. Like he used to run between the referee's legs and like bite him in the butt and pull his toupee off. But I guess it was awkward sometimes because sometimes the referees didn't have toupees and he was grabbing at his hair. I think he was trying to emulate Sky Low Low. And somehow, somehow he saw Sky Low Low put on that scorpion death lock and said, that is the hold. Now I know where Ricky Shoshu got it from. I'm going to take that and make it my own. So when Sky Lolo was rated above him, he thought, my dynasty is threatened. I have to defend it. Well, I don't know about any of that, but we'll see what we can find out for a future episode. Now, well, Brian, think about it, Brian. We live in a country where the president thinks we could inject a disinfectant into ourselves, right? Right. Does that sound any crazier or even half as crazy? I think that's a little crazier than Bret Hart's. No, I don't think it is. Oh, 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 don't pander to the public. Don't pander to the public, Brian. <laughs> Come on. Injecting disinfectants into you or stealing Sky Lolo spots, which would you rather do? Once again, this is Book of the Week. <laughs> and it's Greg Oliver's Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books. You can get Greg Oliver, you rock. I love you, Greg Oliver. You can get them at Amazon.com. If you're going to go to Amazon, use our show referral link, of course, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon, by using that link, you don't spend any more money than you would normally spend at Amazon. But we get a little bit of love and support from Jeff Bezos's fine crew of people over there for every purchase you make, for everything you add to your cart after using that link. For whatever it is that you need, and in this case, find books on wrestling history, tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon, lots of other shows have links they want you to use, lots of other shows just can't cut the mustard. You have to ask yourself, who do I want to support, them or us? I think if you ask yourself that question, the answer will be quite obvious. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us... Fuck those guys. Support the Fuck super those guys, I tell you. Support your super podcast. And with that, let's now go to the long-awaited interview, part two of my conversation with Jeff Otto, part one, dealt with Lords of the Ring, a very popular early VHS release on pro wrestling. Now we're going to talk about Lords of the Ring 2, Ringmasters, The Great American Bash, 1985 how it came together, and what happened. Let's now go to my conversation with Jeff Otto. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast, Jeff Otto, here once again to discuss his time in and around wrestling, as well as Dennis Carluzzo. And as we tell the story in chronological order, I think we may actually get to Dennis this week on the show. Jeff, welcome back. Great to be here, uh, Hawaiian Brian, uh, by unpopular demand, I'm sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I think the story of Lords of the Ring was so interesting. And believe it or not, in that story, there were so many little details that you gave that really go to the bigger picture of what was happening in wrestling at that time. And we're going to kind of pick up the story right where we left off. So where we left off was you and John Versicelli went and you got the rights from all these different promotions to put out Lords of the Ring. Of course, you discuss your working relationship or lack thereof or attempt to have one with the World Wrestling Federation. And you also had to deal with PWI, with London Publishing, for them to help hook you guys up with all the different promoters. And 
everything was looking good, and that's where we left it off. I guess, where were we? The end of 84, early 85? End of 84, we had uh, concluded the production, and we sent the cut to Vestron for review and approval, which in most productions, you know, whether you're writing a book or producing a home video, the publisher or the uh, distributor phases in your payments. So from the signing of contract to the delivery of the final product for approval, we were anxious to get that last chunk of money because uh, this was a production that kind of got close to six figures in terms of uh, licensing cost, production cost, producing a set, doing the editing and post-production and other things. So we were anxious to not only deliver it, but also to get their feedback because our goal really, Brian, was to see if we could get a, a second bite of the apple. We had such a great time. And, you know, for me personally, growing up, you know, for you know, having been a wrestling fan since I was six, the opportunity to kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain, meet some of these people who were my heroes growing up, people I you know, could kind of uh, name off the top of my head. You know, Bill After, I told him when I first met him, I said, I still vividly remember a story that he did where he volunteered to take the heart punch from Stan the Man Stasiak. <laughs> and it was in one of the magazines. And it was great because somebody took some incredible pictures of the fist of Stan Stasiak hitting Bill and his eyes are as big as uh, saucers. And <laughs> I think of those things and I'm like, yeah, I remember as a kid reading these, these stories and here I am talking to the guy who was the creator of it. So I was really anxious and hopeful that we'd get a second sequel out of this wrestling genre. So I guess to take a step back for those who may not remember from the last installment, Vestron was at that time, the largest independent video distributor in North America, correct? Yes, they were also based in Stamford, Connecticut. Ironic that they and Titan Sports were probably just miles down the road from one another. As you're doing Lords of the Ring, you are only looking at it as a single video entity. You weren't at that time already thinking, let's get enough material for volume two, were you, or were you? No, we, we really didn't. And part of the, uh, the reason we couldn't was that Vestron, you know, I mean, I understand risk management, particularly in the entertainment field, is, is a critical necessity. You know, the important thing for them was to be able to prove that this is a viable genre for home video cassettes. We didn't have the track record or, you know, they couldn't find sales research to compare other titles of wrestling programs for home video. We were the first. So, we were either going to make a new market or we were going to basically flame out because there wasn't enough of an audience demand to uh, sustain it for, you know, for a sequel. So we were anxious to see what happened. And as we delivered, we did get a chance based on you know, the quality of the work. Vestron was interested. They just weren't indicating to what level of interest that might be. Uh, sometimes they may come back to you and say, we're interested in doing a, you know, a second wrestling tape, but at this budget level, or they may say, well, based on the sales figures, we don't have a problem duplicating the same financial production level. So we really didn't know where we were going to be. And the next important milestone for us was what was called the Video Software Dealers Association of America show. 
The Video Software Dealers Association of America is a national trade show where buyers and sellers come together. They look at what's available in terms of movies and specially produced programs for the home video market. And typically the people that go there are the major product producers, the content producers, the key distributors across the country, and then all of the major home video rental uh, retailers, places like Blockbuster, West Coast Video, which was a a big chain in the Philadelphia Mid-Atlantic region, other retailers. And based on the orders that get written at that show, you kind of get a sense of where things will be in terms of your sales for the coming years. So from what I remember, they used to say that up to 75% of business gets written at the VSBA every year. So it was really important that we go in there and do well. Had John Bergicelli gone to any before? Yeah, John had been as a, you know, he was a motion picture distributor and he had seen what was a changing business model in the motion picture industry where companies typically would produce a film. It would go into first run theaters for anywhere for six to eight weeks. And then it would go to what was called the secondary markets. Those were what you may remember, Brian, as the dollar movie houses. And then from there, uh, they would go to cable television or before cable was in existence, they would go to either local or national television networks. So we were starting to see you know, the change in the market and that there was going to be a real you know, shift. One of the things that we were hoping for was that Vestron would see that the, the bigger potential was in pricing it for consumers to own as opposed to selling it high to video retailers and then the retailers make the money on the tape turning over 30 or 40 rentals. So unfortunately, we didn't have control over the pricing strategy, but they wanted to you know, keep it high. I think it retailed for $59.95. Back in $1985, I don't know what that is, but it's certainly out of the reach of even the most dedicated wrestling fans. But that was one of the things, though, about the early video market. Everything you wanted was $60 at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it took, it took years for things to come down to be $20. We went to the wrestling shows as fans for years. Now, I remember going to the souvenir stand, and you would see people buying lots of merchandise. Well, it, it really wasn't a lot until Titan Sports really developed merchandising and licensing and took it to uh, a completely different level. But like in motion pictures, your theater owners made the money at the concession stands. You know, so we were hoping that Vestron would see this as a concession stand tape product, that people would want to buy it. Uh, you get more total revenue by selling more units to consumers, but their business model had always been price it high, sell it to the video rental stores, and let them handle trying to make the money on the titles. We were sort of wishing we could have done more of a mass marketing effort, but we were just glad that after the VSDA, I think they projected they were going to sell about 20,000 units, or they had commitments for 20,000 units, which was quite a bit of money grossed back in those days. I got to ask you, though, Jeff, you know, going back to this period of time, as you're negotiating with and dealing with Vestron, wrestling's getting all this publicity. You know, right around this time is when Cindy Lauper's on MTV with Wendy Richter. It's when Hulk Hogan and Mr. T start getting publicity together. So I'm wondering two things. One, while all this is happening in the mainstream press and wrestling is getting all this attention, 
Does Vestron talk to you about that? Are they noticing all this? And secondly, did you have any wrestling fans at Vestron? Were there any allies who understood the mentality of a wrestling fan or had a promoter produce a product for a wrestling fan? They didn't, although John had uh, an excellent relationship with John Peisinger, who was the CEO of Vestron, and they had known each other from both of them worked in you know, the motion picture industry. So to be able to pick up the phone and get the CEO of Vestron Video to give you a green light on a video project, sight unseen, without anything other than just a one-page pitch, was to us, we thought, we're more than halfway there. All we have to do is just push the, uh, you know, push the football over the goal line. Unfortunately, we really didn't have anybody who was a, a wrestling fan in their marketing or sales department. We were one of like 100 titles. Vestron was pushing out two or three uh, new tapes you know, uh, to retailers every week. So for us to get any kind of personal attention, that was non-existent. You know, the big money makers were the blockbuster movies, and those were the things that took up the majority of Vestron's marketing oxygen. We were just glad to be, <laughs> you know, along for the ride. Although I think if we did have someone who understood the wrestling demographic, who was kind of dialed into what was happening in the industry, I think we might have had a better chance of doing some of the more business-to-consumer type of marketing because I think that's where the real money was. You know, you fill up the Philadelphia Spectrum with 18,000 fans on a Saturday night. They're a captive audience. You know, they'll come home with T-shirts and programs and a home video cassette program if it was offered and priced properly. But unfortunately, we just, you know, things were happening so quickly and we just didn't have enough time to cultivate enough relationship with the Vestron marketing department to really make a case for Try this approach. It will work in terms of long-run total revenue uh, more successfully than just dump everything to the video store's business model. So you leave the trade show, and you guys have commitments for at least 20,000 units. You must be feeling good about yourselves. Like you said, if they're selling for $60 a unit, you know you're making some good money there. So you know you have some success, and the tape isn't even out yet. When do you start thinking about tape two? Well, we, yeah, we were keeping all of our promotion partners, the Crockett and uh, Jared and, and Lawler in Memphis and uh, Von Eric and, of course, my favorite NWA president, Bob Geigel in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, we are, we're, you know, we're... You should be his favorite. You're the one bribing him. Yes, I know. I think the money we paid him was probably his best grossing house of 1984. <laughs> For Kansas City, absolutely. <laughs> But I knew that at least we had the NWA president's support in our back pocket. <laughs> so we told them uh, that a sequel was a strong possibility and that we were anxious in terms of looking to work with them again. One of the things that I was convinced of was that we really wanted to have other markets, other promotions involved because we could capitalize. I think you know, part of the thinking with the first one was that you know, like us as wrestling fans in the 80s, you didn't really get a chance to see the stars of championship wrestling from Florida on your local television if you were getting WWWF or if you were in Crockett promotion, you wouldn't see Texas wrestling. So I talked to John and I said, I still think we should reach out to all these promoters again. Yeah, we have a track record now. 
We certainly have the London Publishing good housekeeping seal of approval with Bill Apter and Craig Peters and, uh, and Peter King. And one of the things I mentioned as wrestling was getting hot, as Mr. T and Hogan and Cindy Lauper and Roddy Piper were really capturing mainstream press, you know, I told John, I said, all of these WWF stars came from these other local promotions and territories. Why not get some of their earlier footage? And, you know, I even said, Don Owen, why not go to Portland? We can get some of the Roddy Piper footage. We could go back to Vern Gagne and look at some of the AWA stars that had been stars in Minneapolis before Vince, you know, stole them. So our first idea for the second tape was kind of a before they were WWF stars kind of a program. Take advantage of the fact that all these, uh, you know, the WWF marketing machine was making these wrestlers mainstream celebrities. Why not start, you know, let's trace back the original roots of, of Hulkamania, uh, Roddy Piper's start, you know, Dr. D's you know, rise to fame as he was in Portland. And Vestron <laughs> loved the idea, but they didn't have the legal stomach for it because they felt that none of these promotions could provide enough adequate legal documentation to prove that they had rights, complete worldwide exclusive rights to their wrestling footage. Not meaning just that, like, for instance, Don Owen would give, sign a document indemnifying independent media, our company, or Vestron Video, but Vestron wanted to see signed releases from Roddy Piper, from Terry Bollea, from any of these wrestlers that, that we were looking to kind of, <laughs> you know, capitalize on their new uh, mainstream uh, celebrity. So that idea kind of was interesting, but I think there was a fear that McMahon would fight them very aggressively in court. And for the amount of money that they were potentially seeing as, you know, a total gross, most of that would get eaten up by uh, legal fees. You know, that's kind of the videos that got put on the market eventually by Kit Parker. He got that footage from Ron Martinez at PM yep. Film and Video mm -hmm. and put, you know, Hulk Hogan the early years, Randy Savage the early years using footage from Memphis and other places. Do you remember when those first hit the market? I don't remember, but all the promoters at that point, because they were so pissed at what was happening to their promotions because of McMahon, had no... They had no hesitation to do something like that. Very few of them were against it. But when we did say to them, Vestron Video really needs an ironclad indemnification in terms of not just you telling us you own the rights to it, but we have to prove that the wrestlers have given you the rights to all their performances for television and or video, home video, worldwide rights. And it just became a too big a, a mountain to, uh, to overcome. So what do you do? If you know that you're not going to be able to do the early years video, what's plan B? Plan B was, well, we're going to do the, you know, repeat of what we did the first time. Kind of an entertainment tonight format uh, with Gordon Soley and Bill Apter at the anchor desk. Kind of, you know, taking uh, viewers through the uh, world of wrestling in 70 minutes. With probably about seven to 12 matches from a variety of different territories. And again, we did you know, go back to Paul Bosch, Ganya, Geigel, Don Owen, Blanchard, Mike Graham, Bill Watts, uh, you know, Waller and Jarrett, Von Erickson, and, and Crockett. And it just, 
again, a lot of availability. The only availability, like for instance, for Houston, and Paul Bosch's person that we ended up talking to said, well, we can give you a library of Houston wrestling TV shows. And we were more looking for the arena, stadium, something that was special. Now, of course, I think if anybody who's a true wrestling fan would say that, and I would agree, the TV shows were really what was special. And we weren't thinking that. Vestron said, we don't want to you know, just show clips of local TV programs. We want to have the big cards, the big matches, something important. So again, we were trying to cobble and it looked like we were going to go back to the same people. You know, we know that there's bound to be some great stuff from the Mid-South Coliseum from Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. We knew we could probably get something from Von Erich and, and, uh, and of course, Crockett. So we knew that we had the people that we worked with Learn my lesson. I knew we weren't going to go back to Kansas City, although I'm sure that Bob Geigel was anxious to give us uh, the best of Bulldog Bob Brown, Volume 2. But we were looking at those. Those were going to be our big three. Again, Ganya was not able to even have a meaningful conversation with us. Well, let me stop you right there, because this whole idea that you're going back to these guys, even the guys you weren't able to work with, like Vern, Mm -hmm. for the first video to try to put together the second video, between the period of time in which you signed the contract, let's say with a Fritz von Erich, with the world-class office, mm-hmm. between that period of time and right here, how much communication is there beyond them sending you the footage, you dubbing a copy, sending it back, and then using that for your video? Beyond that, how much talk on an ongoing basis is there between you, John, and the different wrestling offices? The best communication was the nice checks that they received. Now, we also sent them copies of the packaging as it was in mock-up, and we sent them three-quarter-inch rough cuts of the finished program. Just to prove to them that we were not a fly-by-night outfit, that we took great pains to package and position their talent on this program that Pro Wrestling Illustrated, having Bill Apter in the anchor chair with Gordon Soley and the Pro Wrestling Illustrated logo above the set and the George Thurgood music video, we wanted them to see that We were for real, and we were looking forward to working with them in the future. So as soon as we knew that there was a second tape, Vestron was willing to do a a sequel. We did reach out to them. But in many cases, it's it's like, uh, you know, they had attention deficit disorder. You could have a great relationship with Ken Mantell to get the first tapes from the Texas Stadium show, which was in the first Lords of the Ring. It was almost like he completely forgot who we were because when we would call him, he's like, Curio? What? And we almost had to like reacquaint him. Okay, we sent you a $12,000 check a couple weeks ago. We licensed footage. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was kind of fascinating because we didn't realize that these guys were basically, you know, one or two man office operations. It's not like they're sitting behind a desk like a typical manager or executive running a business. These guys were on the road. They were working on getting their weekly TV done, getting talent and stuff. So I certainly now have a better understanding and appreciation for what they were, you know, what those jobs were like. But it didn't really, you know, make any sense for us to be calling them frequently other than when we had something to talk to them about, we wanted to reach out to them. And in January, we had just gotten the verbal go-ahead to start putting together the sequel. So that's kind of when we started reaching out. But the tape was not going to hit retailers till later in the spring. So again, 
we're still in that vapor stage. They know that they cashed the nice check from us. They saw the raw elements of the project, the packaging and, and the program, if they so bothered to look at it. But we weren't able to, like, hop on a plane and go down to Dallas or talk to uh, Vern Gagne in Minneapolis face-to-face. It, it was really about who could be easily convinced or coerced to do a second take. Uh, we knew that the ones that were the best likely partners were going to be Crockett, Jarrett, Von Erich. So what happened? How did you go about putting together tape two? And obviously, I won't spoil it. I'll let you reveal it. But when tape two did come out, it wasn't all the promotions. What happened? No, it wasn't. Uh, I guess it was It was in the fall of 84, after, after we had concluded production and uh, sent the uh, raw products to all the, and, and the checks to all the partners. We got a call from Jimmy Crockett. And uh, he had remembered in our discussions that John's company, Independent Media, was also a public relations firm. They did a lot of commercial, you know, producing TV commercials. They did PR for clients. Uh, Lipton Soup was one of, uh, uh, one of John's clients at, at that time. And he mentioned us. He said, I thought of you guys and wanted to ask you, we're expanding. We're coming to Philadelphia in uh, 1985. And we're in need of some assistance to get our show and our product and our promotion familiar with the Philadelphia wrestling audience. Is that anything that you can do? Of course, we saw this as a chance to really cement the relationship. And Bill Apter and and Craig Peters and Peter King had told us even in 1985 that of all the promotions, they felt that Crockett was going to be the one that was going to kind of lead the challenge to McMahon. In, In terms of just, they had such a strong legacy in the Carolinas, in the mid-Atlantic states, but also they had mentioned the fact was that Dusty Rhodes was coming in, and anywhere that Dusty Rhodes goes, money follows. So they you know, strongly supported the idea of us doing some pro bono PR work for them. And when we asked, when are you coming in? Pro bono, I just want to throw in there. You said pro bono. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We told the, you know, they told us uh, we're coming in next month. It's like <laughs> next month. And, you know, so they told us it was uh, Flair and uh, Sergeant Slaughter was going to be the uh, uh, the headline match at the Philadelphia Civic Center. And what could we do to help get some publicity? So I was familiar with Slaughter. You know, he just came off that big WWF run. We came up with this uh, plan, Brian, that, <laughs> We'd be, we called it uh, Doing Maneuvers with Sergeant Slaughter. We took him to Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, where he visited the pediatric cancer ward and the Ronald McDonald House there. Then we were going to take him to uh, Veterans Hospital in Philadelphia. Had a interview with him and uh, Howard Eskin, who was a sports talk show host in Philadelphia, who happened to love wrestling and was a big fan of uh, all things wrestling. And then we, you know, we had some other, you know, print newspaper, local newspapers. So he came in for a day and he had a driver with his camouflage Cadillac. And this guy, I can't remember what his name was, but he was the singer on 
You remember the Sergeant Slaughter record that he put out? Yeah, the singer was his limo driver? Yes. Well, or his <laughs> his singer realized that in order for him to continue his singing career, that he had to be uh, you know, versatile. But he, he called him, yeah, we're introducing ourselves. You know, hi, I'm John. You know, I'm Jeff. And he sticks out his hand. He says, I'm camouflage. <laughs> this is, this guy is really taking his uh, gimmick a little uh, too seriously. I said, camouflage? He said, well, that's my record album name. And then I forget what his name, his real name was. But he was uh, really thinking that he was heading for a uh, career in the recording industry. So we were kind of under a little bit of pressure to get some of the journalists interested in talking to him, which was a bit of a stretch. Wait a minute, hold on. So you're doing pro bono publicity work for Crockett Promotions for the upcoming match at the Civic Center between Ric Flair and Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter puts out an album around this time. The lead singer of his band, Camouflage, apparently, is also the driver of his limo, and now you have to do pro bono publicity work for Camouflage, too? It was subtle. You know, Slaughter had a wonderful... Uh, woman in his office. At that point, he was so big, I guess he could have a little team. Her name was Maria. I can't remember her last name. But we were working with her on the logistics when he would be arriving, and she kind of told us that the guy who will be coming on the trip is his singer in this band, and they're trying to get airplay for the uh, record, and is there any way we could have them visit any music stations? I said, I don't think that's possible. At this point, you know, the only chance we have is there's one sports station in Philadelphia, and the 6 o'clock host happens to be about the only person willing to admit that he loves wrestling and is willing to interview wrestlers on the show. So I just don't see how we're going to be able to take him to the top rock station in Philadelphia and say, would you like to talk to Camouflage? She said, well, I understand. Anything you could do would be a big help, and I know that Bob Remus would be appreciative. I said, well, our goal is to get Bob's face in front of as many cameras as possible. I don't know about this singer. We'll just have to try to see what we can do once they come in. Did they ever mention G.I. Joe? Yeah, yeah, they were uh, working, I guess. With, I can't remember if that time, Brian, they'd already set up the G.I. Joe deal or it was in discussion, but Bob did mention to us that one of the uh, sticking points that he was unhappy with with McMahon was the fact that he could not control his licensing destiny. And being a free agent would give him that flexibility and that opportunity to do things like G.I. Joe. Yeah, I mean, you said he was hot off the WWF. Literally, he had just left at the end of 1984. And when they go into Philadelphia, what better guy to put against Ric Flair than someone who had just been on World Wrestling Federation TV in a major position for the past two years? In fact, there are a lot of people who say he was more popular than Hogan in 84 when he was working with the Iron Sheik. So it's really interesting. It's a, it's a famous story, him leaving there because of the battle with Vince over G.I. Joe. It's interesting that he told you about it back then. Yeah, and, and to, to show you how hot he was, I used to, before the Prism cable channel came on and the... Spectrum wrestling shows were broadcast live on Prism. I used to go down to you know see the uh, see the shows, and I don't know why, but I just decided take my uh, take one of my friends. We went to, and I was sure that we were going to have no problem 
getting uh, good seats. The main event was Sergeant Slaughter and the Junkyard Dog, I think, versus the Sheik and Volkov. But to me, that was not the type of main event that would sell out the spectrum. Well, we got there, and I'm looking at the lines for tickets, and I'm like, I don't know if we're even going to get in. And we were in the third level, and I was shocked. But that's how strong Sergeant Slaughter was. He could be in this junky typing match that in a different time, that would have been like maybe the second biggest belt on the card. They were selling out the 20,000 seats of the spectrum with that. And they had no undercard. That just, to me, boggled my mind how this guy could, how white hot he was. But for whatever reason, how he split up with McMahon, uh, you know, it was good for us because he was such an easy sell. I mean, you know, we called the Veterans Hospital of you know, Philadelphia and said, Sergeant Slaughter would like to come down for an hour, say hello to the patients. And uh, uh, you would have thought that it was a visiting head of state or that the president was there. I never saw anything like it. I mean, these guys, you know, severely injured veterans are getting up out of their beds to come to this guy and to shake his hand and to salute him. And of course, John and I were thinking, do we even really know for sure is, you know, is, is the guy that plays Sergeant Floyd, did he ever serve in the military? Because even back then, I remember stolen valor was such a, <laughs> such a hot button issue kind of thing. And um, like, so we never really talked about his career in, in Paris Island and things like that. Cause I thought, what if we were caught in a lie? <laughs> what if, what if he, what if he was a draft dodger, went to Canada and wrestled up uh, for Jack Tunney and came back, uh, you know, after the war, but he was great. And then uh, we're doing all this media. And then the last stop of the day was this children's board at Cooper hospital in, in Camden. And he went in there with such a gentle humility, Brian. I was like, it was moving people to tears because these are children who had terminal or critical stages of cancer. And, you know, they're two, three, four, five years old and they're in a playroom and they had made some signs we love you, Sergeant Slaughter, things like that. It was a little girl. You could see all the, it looked like the stitching of a baseball on her bald head because she just had brain surgery to remove a tumor like two weeks before. And she's playing the xylophone for Sergeant Slaughter. And he puts her in his lap and they're playing it together. And it got to the point where he just shooed away the photographers and the TV cameras. We just spent about 20 minutes playing with the kids, talking to them about their illnesses uh, in a truthful way. Because I think at that age, the instinct is to not talk about the reality of what their, 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 their illnesses. And he was just amazing. We just had a, a, a wonderful day, you know, taking him on tour. Unfortunately, camouflage didn't get any uh, uh, interviews with the rock radio stations. but. Uh, he was literal camouflage. No one noticed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, his, uh, after, yeah, he handed out the records. And then, then I got home and I played them. And I could kind of understand why his, his career was camouflaged. It, it sounded like you know, one of those bad lounge 
singers that you hear playing at a Holiday Inn or something. So, but Sergeant Slaughter was great. And uh, so we just, from that point on, Jimmy Crockett said, I'm going to have Elliot Murnick call you because he's going to be the Philadelphia promoter. And every month, talk to him, tell him what you want to do, and he'll make it, uh, he'll make it happen. So we started doing monthly promotions, one of which happened to be with the, the leading rock station in Philadelphia, which was called WYST. Holly Blanchard and Baby Doll were in a program with Dusty Rhodes, and we brought in Tully and, and uh, Miss Doll to do some uh, vignettes, audio vignettes, with a local female radio disc jockey named Pam Murley with the whole idea of the culmination that she would be in Dusty's corner for a big grudge match. So Dusty brought her out. And, uh, you know, so th- those were the types of PR things that we were doing just to build this relationship. Did you get to do anything with Flair? Yeah, we did. Actually, uh, uh, Flair, during this time was uh, when the Civic Center show started, uh, was when Flair was starting to appear on all the cards you know, in Philadelphia monthly to build some awareness. And uh, uh, that was about the time when we met Dennis Carluzzo, <laughs> which <laughs> as part of that meeting, we were also, I uh, was introduced to uh, Frank Chile, who was a Philadelphia publicist for Warner Brothers Records. So as soon as I knew we had a fellow publicist in the fold, I said, Frank, we've got a Every, every month, do these um, PR stunts or PR efforts. What could we do with Ric Flair? So he said, I'll call uh, the producer of uh, AM Philadelphia, which was a kind of like a local version of the Today Show for an hour, and uh, we'll see if we can bring him in. So Ric Flair flew in from Charlotte one morning. Uh, Frank limoed him over to Channel 6, where AM Philadelphia was broadcast live, and uh, he did the show. Now, the funny thing was, all the people there, they were like, you know, like most people in the Northeast. These were all diehard Bruno San Martino fans. And uh, so he, he was a little bit of heel, because a, a couple of the women uh, in the audience, when it was time for questions, said, you're no Bruno San Martino. And he'd say, I have no idea. Who is Bruno San Martino? <laughs> Good comeback. Yeah. So those were, you know, this was the start. And as part of doing the, the, you know, the PR, we developed a really good relationship with Elliot and Carl Murdoch. Just two gentlemen. I always thought wrestling had a seedy side, but when you have people like uh, the Murnicks in front of it, you can't help but feel, you know, feel good things. And, and Elliot was just a true gentleman. And we were basically, as we were doing these monthly things, one time I, Jimmy Crockett, I guess, told Dusty after the matches, uh, want you to meet with Otto and Berzicelli. So after the card, we went out. Well, let me just stop you right here. So at this time, you guys have already done Lords of the Ring. It's not out yet, but you've already done it. And you're now doing publicity work for the NWA in Philadelphia. And that's, that's really it. That's where your relationship is at that point. And we're trying to figure out what are we going to do? Because I think we got probably in terms of Von Erich, we probably got the best footage we could. Texas stadium and Kerry dropping the belt 
the flare in Japan and the, what else? We had that little girl singing heaven needed a champion. That's uh, right. How did that get on the video? Uh, I think we were told it would be, uh, <laughs> it would be a good thing. You know, Bill Apted told you it'd be something nice that Fritz would like. Yeah. Yeah. We were, again, we, we knew that part of it was, pleasing the audience, but we also needed to make sure that we were pleasing the promoters and, and doing right by them and not doing anything that would, you know, harm that relationship. So, you know, as we we're talking to Bill and Craig, what else is going on in, in world class? And that's kind of when their promotion was starting to lag in terms of quality. And we knew that uh, it was probably going to come down to Crockett and the Waller Jarrett promotion. So that really didn't make us feel comfortable because we were sort of, our fear was delivering a subpar product or a product that was like derivatives. And this is a bad carbon copy of the first show. So as we were going out after the matches with Dusty one night, uh, it was Dusty and the very quiet Magnum TA who was just sitting there drinking his beer and listening, doing very little talking. Where are you guys? This is like a local bar, not too far from uh, 34th Street near the Civic Center. Dusty wanted a quiet, out-of-the-way place. Didn't want there were any fans were, so we were kind of near the University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, there's certainly plenty of bars that you could kind of sit in the back and no one was going to bother you. So as we sat down, Dusty had clearly been briefed by uh, by Jimmy Crockett. He said, uh, you know, Jimmy tells me you guys are, did a good job with this, you know, your first video, and we appreciate the work you're doing helping to promote and publicize NWA in Philadelphia. And uh, as we're talking further, John brings up Bestron has given us the go-ahead to do a you know, second video, and we're certainly hoping that uh, you know, we can get more licensed some footage for version two. And that's when Dusty said, don't worry, you don't need to talk to anybody else. We're planning a big, big event in the summer. And it's going to be somewhere in, in our backyard. And we're going to do it. That would be a perfect, perfect Super Bowl type of video event for you. And he didn't give us the name of it. He didn't call it the Great American Bash, but he did say we're going to do a big stadium show. When is this? When is this that he's telling you this? How far in advance of the Bash? This is like maybe February. Wow. So in February, he didn't have the name yet, or at least didn't reveal the name. But in February, he already knew they were running the stadium and they were going to do the big Great American Bash show. Something. Something. He said, we're we're working on it. You know, we don't have it finalized, but we're going to do something big. And then, you know, when he said outdoors, I remember years back when they, uh, in the after magazines, I remember there was a story where they had a big uh, match uh, or card, super card, uh, with Dusty at the Orange Bowl in Miami. I remember there was a picture of Dusty on one of the magazine covers with a fist and, you know, wearing this ring. I don't, I guess that was the prize that, that went with it. And I mentioned that and he smiled and he gave me a thumbs up. He said, that's it, baby. <laughs> so I was glad that I was a, yeah, I remembered an old uh, Bill Laughter magazine cover that talked about that. And that's what Vestron wanted, really, a big outdoor spectacular. Yep, they wanted something big. So 
I guess probably the next day, I can't remember the chronology, but we did call Jim Crockett and said, uh, Dusty Polis, you're working on something big. Would this be something you'd be willing to, if we went exclusive? And we just centered it all around this event, this show, this Super Bowl spectacle. Would you be willing to do it? And he said, yes. He says, as a matter of fact, we would, I think the vibe that we were getting in the conversation was that they would prefer to be the only one for the second tape. Make it all about them. We're kind of waiting with bated breath. What were they going to be producing? And I think it was later in the late spring, early summer, that's when the word came out that it was going to be something called the Great American Bash at Charlotte Stadium. Obviously, that's months later, and you guys had been intending to and were working on trying to put together video too, but this would now be months before you would have any footage. Was that a problem? Was that anything that you thought was a detriment or a positive, the fact that you wouldn't actively be working on anything for a video too for several months? Yeah, I mean, and and that was fine, Brian, because this wasn't our only project. Uh, as a matter of fact, I kind of started to see that, you know, these these are kinds of the projects that you really should just be dabbling in. You shouldn't be trying to make this the only eggs in your basket. Uh, I just could not believe that we would ever make a full-time living uh, from this unless we had been Coliseum Video, which would have, (laughs) that would have been an amazing 20-year ride, but we still always had other things we were doing. So this was kind of a nice thing to be having, you know, it was like a fun project, but we weren't like, oh my God, you know, without that cash flow, where, what are we going to do? We just kind of, we'd start planning accordingly. Investron loved the idea. They kind of knew who Dusty Rhodes was, and they kind of started to know who Ric Flair was. So we were, you know, having less difficulty getting them up to speed in terms of this is this is a good thing because this is going to be the arch rival or the main competitor to the WWF. And of course, by April they would be on TBS. Yeah, exactly. So this was timing was great. I have to say that none of this would have happened as quickly or with the clarity that it did without the success of the WWF and Vince McMahon. I mean, this was the perfect case of a rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, yes, the majority of the the tide was benefiting the WWF, but it certainly helped give visibility and opportunity to other promotions. It's just that they were so old-fashioned and set in their ways that very few of them were going to figure out a way to compete and survive. But uh, yeah, it was great. Great chance for us to, you know, to deliver something that Vestron wanted. The only thing we had to do was just kind of sit and wait till uh, July 6th. So. <laughs> Did you guys go down to the show? No, no, we didn't. Um, uh, although we did stay in touch you know, with Bill after what was going on. We were following it, obviously, you know, for the TV and how they were using the local shows and the syndicated television shows to kind of set up the angles and the event. But we didn't know what we were going to be working with until we got the footage. So we got it really quick. I mean, like, within, within a week, we got the whole three hours of uh, raw footage, and then it was up to us to kind of tear it down to 70 minutes, which looking back now, I mean, that's such a, it's, it does a disservice to card like that. But unfortunately that, that was the maximum amount of time you could do a, 
you know, with a VHS uh, tape. So we went in, started doing taper edits and talked to Bill and Gordon Soley, and we knew that we would you know, be going into the studio rather quickly. Vestron wanted to try to turn this around you know, as fast as possible. So the fact that we were only dealing with one promoter, one card, <laughs> one level of video quality was great. It took away so many headaches, so many issues, because when you get five or six different promotions sending you footage, the quality of the match, the quality of the production could really vary. And it was nice that, you know, because that was one thing I remember one of the production editors in the suite with us said, they really know how to shoot a sporting event. You could just tell from the, the way it was directed, the way the, the shots were framed. So none of the problems and headaches and hassles from the first production. This was smooth and easy. By the time the Great American Bash 85 happens, Lord of the Rings has already hit the market, correct? Yeah, exactly. Do you guys hear anything about how it's doing at rental stores? Yeah. Yep, we, uh, uh, we, we had a couple of people work at the corporate office of West Coast Video. Their headquarters is based in Philadelphia, so, so we were able to kind of get a, a real finger on the pulse of what the market was. And uh, you know, they said that all their tapes that were out to all the stores, they were making money with the tape. That was good. That was our big fear that you'd have a program that sits on the retailer's shelf gathering dust. There's no way then they would be interested in a you know buying a second tape. And then at the same time, the after magazines put in the back of their uh, all their different titles full page ads to buy a special uh, VHS Lords of the Ring and a Pro Wrestling Illustrated T-shirt. So they were selling it through mail order. So they were happy too. They're making some money. You know, I don't remember if any of the promoters were promoting it on their shows or not. Uh, we just didn't have that kind of ability to track media, you know, do media monitoring. Did any promotions ask for what London Publishing got for the ability to buy a bunch in bulk and sell it at the merchandise stands? No, no, they didn't. Again, this is why uh, Vince McMahon was such a brilliant genius at understanding that merchandise is, you know, is about having a wide variety of products and price points to sell. The other thing too was the the, the wholesale price would have been like twenty five, thirty dollars, typically fifty percent the wholesale cost. It's impossible to really, <laughs> you know, expect to sell that at arenas. Even though the duplication and the cost of the tape and the packaging was probably three dollars a unit, they could have. If someone had decided we're going to price this low and we're going to move volume, they could have. They could have done well. So, I'm curious what you thought of the footage when you got to see it. Obviously, it's a little bit different. It's outdoors. The one thing I remember was how noisy the ring ropes were yes. when I was a kid and I went back and watched it. But what did you think? A big spectacular show. Ric Flair arrives via helicopter. Magnum TA versus Kamala. I remember the packaging more than even the video at this point. What do you remember thinking when you first saw the footage? I geeked out. I mean, you know, and maybe, maybe not necessarily the, you know, for the matches, but the feeling of being an insider to have been sent, and it, you know, had my name on it. 
sent to Jeff Otto, care of independent media. And I opened it up. I was like a kid at Christmas. All this footage, I get to see it before any other wrestling fan outside of Charlotte. So that was cool. Of course, the first thing we had to do was take it over to EJ Stewart video to get it converted from one inch to VHS uh, with a time cone bird. So I didn't like to get this great toy at Christmas, but then you got to assemble it. So uh, I think we got it back after a couple of days and it was just, it was just so cool. I mean, you know, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Magnum, Tully, the whole thing was big, but I agree with you. We did have to look at the audio and do some sweetening and adjustments because I don't think they were really looking at the finished product. They were just shooting this as footage, figuring they'd do something with it. They didn't have, they were shooting it, but they weren't going to be changing what they were shooting because, oh, this is going to become a home video cassette program. They were just shooting it to record it as opposed to like today when Vince does a pay-per-view, I mean, their production values rival that of any live sporting event. So I, I think the quality was more than adequate. It looked great. It had that big feel, 25,000 people, uh, the helicopter, you know, the stars. So it was an easy production to put together. And uh, then all we had to do was just get, Bill and Gordon down, uh, Craig Peters and I wrote the script and basically followed the template we did before, except uh, I think this time we want to make sure that we didn't take Gordon to any piano bars till three in the morning. <laughs> See, that's all I would have done is gone to the piano bar at Gordon till three in the morning every day. I just want to add one thing. The one thing that we did need to add to the production was play by play because they did not call the show. As, a, as I said, they were just recording this for documenting what they felt was a you know, major card, but they did not have Tony Schiavone and Bob Caudle there. So we made a deal with Crockett for Tony Schiavone to come up for a day, look at the edited matches, and then he would call them in the you know studio at EJ Stewart Productions. So Tony came in. Who pays Schiavone? You guys or Crockett? We did. We did. I think we paid him... I think $1,000 for the day, plus airfare and incidentals. He could not have been nicer. Just an awesome human being. What a pleasure. And what a pro. Was it the same thing with Great American Bash and it was with Lords of the Ring where you got the master tape and you dubbed off master and then sent it back? Yeah, same thing. So how long after the event did you receive the tapes? Within a week. Uh, I think we, had, we got it the following week. Took us a couple days to get it dubbed to time code, and then we had a one-inch tape so we could be, you know, do the actual editing. So again, we sent it back foolishly, not realizing that we had, you know, <laughs> had such a valuable asset that we could have, you know, held hostage. But uh, we did that. But unfortunately, there was no play-by-play. -play. So the challenge for Tony was we would take a 12-minute. Magnum uh, TA versus Kamala match and edited down to four minutes. So there would be maybe three cuts within that segment. And he would have to watch it cold. He'd watch it once. And then he would have to be able to fit enough commentary so that it didn't bleed into the, you know, what's clearly, as you'll see on the tape, an edited cut to another part of the match. 
he didn't miss a single take. He was like perfect. I was just amazed watching. And he was young at the time. He had only been, uh, he told me, he said he was working for uh, Francis Crockett calling you know, minor league baseball games. And he was still young to the wrestling business. And you would have thought that this guy had been doing it for 20 years. How long did it take for the video to be ready to be released? Pretty quickly, except other than the fact that Bill Apter couldn't, uh, there was a six-man tag that included superstar Billy Graham, Abdullah the Butcher, and the Barbarian. And the way the Craig and I wrote the script, Gordon would set it up, and then you know, and then Bill would finish it. And we were playing on the uh, alliteration: the Butcher, the Barbarian, and the Superstar. Pretty simple. Except Bill got into a mental hang-up. Couldn't say it. We went through, I'm trying to think, without really stretching the truth. I think uh, maybe 30 takes. 30 takes of the Butcher, the Barbarian, and the Superstar? He couldn't get it. Wow. He just kept, you know, the Superstar, the Bill, you know, he messed it up. And we said, okay, let's shoot again. And then it got to a point where it was a matter of pride. Bill was going to get it right. But Craig and I are just, you know, we're just on the floor because every time he does it, I mean, the crew loved Bill, and no one cared that this was taking longer. Yeah, we knew he would eventually get it, so we just said, let's have fun with it. We were doing well with, with the studio time, uh, but he just had this mental hang-up. He couldn't say it, and then Craig and I were like thinking, maybe we should just rewrite the script, and then we said, no, this is too much fun watching Bill squirm. <laughs> let him do it, and Gordon was, you know, Gordon was roaring to, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but we got the video produced. Um, I remember probably we were in, we were in a studio. I think it was like August, August or early September. I know that we needed to deliver to Vestron as soon as possible, but it didn't mean that it was going out immediately. You know, they have to kind of launch a videotape project with certain things, you know, but we, you know, we were able to, get the packaging done. We didn't have any problems with the packaging this time because we weren't using rogue wrestling characters like King Kong Bundy, who shook us down for money in the first production. Uh, all the photos basically came from, uh, from Bill. I think he and Craig were the ones that you know, shot the uh, photos you see in the packaging. So we moved pretty quickly. We got everything delivered a lot faster, a lot easier, and with a lot less stress and angst than the first uh, Lords of the Rings show. Did you hear anything from the Crockett office about the finished product or the packaging or anything? They were happy with it. John got positive feedback from Jimmy Crockett. Of course, you could never complain about, you know, getting a five-figure check. These licensing deals, it's found money for, for them. I don't think it hurts, and I think if there was any... Even if there's any criticism, how can you criticize a five-figure payday for just basically uh, loaning out the wrestling footage for a home video program? Dusty tells you about all this in February. Here you are in September, and the finished video is being presented to Vestron. At any point during this period of time, are you talking to the Crockett office about more videos, about Starcade, about anything else? We're talking to them, but at this point, our focus is, well, if we keep doing 
PR work from Elliot Murnick and Crockett in Philadelphia that that can help continue the relationship. But we found that once the expansion, you know, and I think the bash and the TBS time slot really did put them on the path that they were going to go against Vince. One of the challenges was there wasn't anybody other than Jimmy Crockett who could maintain that relationship. He was becoming busier and more difficult to talk to. So we were trying to lean on Elliot Murnick, trying to get more back-channel communication to Crockett. We want to do a volume three, do a big show, you know, what's the next? But nothing, I don't think we were being ghosted or iced out. I just think this is for a regional promotion to be able to make $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year extra in licensing income for your, you know, your wrestling footage. That's a great thing. But, you know, when you start buying planes and you're expanding into new markets and your syndication network is going through growth or growing pains, that for a company like us, we were becoming small potatoes. And I think as they were getting more and more entrenched with TBS. I think that's really where their focus was. And I'm sure TBS was you know, beginning to talk to them about the potential for leveraging you know, their television footage and other, because Turner Home Video was, a, was kind of in its infancy at that point as well. So, But that is, of course, who they would end up going with. Right, exactly. But we never had a formal divorce. It was kind of like, you know, we just kind of, as a married couple, fades away. <laughs> Were you still going down to the Civic Center shows every month? Were you still seeing the guys? Still seeing the guys. I mean, we, Jimmy uh, uh, Cornette may even remember, but a couple times as thank yous, Mernick would give us a spot show. And we did a couple down at the Wildwood Convention Hall in Wildwood, uh, New Jersey, right on the boardwalk. Wait, hold on. I know Wildwood, because that's actually a town when, in the late 90s, Dennis was very badly trying to get into. Obviously, you know why. In the summer, it's a great place to be able to run a wrestling show. I didn't realize this. So as a gift for all the work you're doing, all the pro bono PR work, you and John actually got to be spot show promoters? Yeah. No cash outlay or anything, Elliot. You know, because when I was young, I used to go down there. On Monday nights, Gorilla Monsoon used to run the WWWF spot shows at the Wildwood Convention Hall during the summers. And, you know, we kind of learned what the business model was. It's all walk up. You do heavy advertising the Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You buy the plane banners. You buy a, a lot of radio schedules. And basically, there were like two or three stores that would sell the tickets. And everybody would come off the beach on Monday afternoon and go to the wrestling show at night. So we got a couple of them, and one of which the main event featured Jim Cornette and the uh, Midnight Express. We made, you know, <laughs> we, we made some money. I think we made more money on the uh, concession stand. That was wild. You know, the hot dogs and, and popcorn. You know, having a couple guys who used to work in movie theater business, we knew concessions. And I think we may have made... $2,000 on, you know, in terms of the promoter's cut of the gate, but I think we made four or $5,000 uh, with the concessions, wow. the per capita. I think we had like 1,200 people, 1,400 people, and I think uh, they bought 5 or $6 average 
a piece. You should have seen the video. <laughs> exactly. It could have been $20 per head. Exactly. So at that point, you know, as the Crockett relationship is slowly fading away, uh, we started to do work regionally for uh, uh, Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll get there next time, because just like last time you were on the show, I'm going to say we're going to have to do another part. There will be a part three because there's still so much that we have to tackle. You and everything you and John did with Memphis, with Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, of course. We haven't even gotten to Dennis Carluzzo yet, so we have to get to all that. But before we wrap up... We're saving the best for last. (laughs) Before we wrap up this installment, I do have one question for you, Jeff. In terms of, you know, I know how it works in the music industry. In terms of then, in 1985, the home video market, Who's getting points on each unit and how many points go to each party? For instance, when the video sold, you said Crockett's getting a check for 30000 40000 Is that an agreement up front or does he get points on the unit and also independent media, Vestron? How's everything divided up for one of these wrestling videos? The wrestling video, uh, you know, we typically wanted to own any of the profit participation. The fact that we were paying, I thought, a very generous licensing fee per minute for footage was more than sufficient. These were promotions that I didn't think were as you know, savvy or sophisticated in terms of back-end participation, things like that. And we also knew that you know, for us, even though per unit, based on the per unit sales, that it was doing very well, even though they're headquartered in you know, Connecticut, Vestron was like any Hollywood studio. And the overhead <laughs> charges would take away, yeah, most, if not all of the profit. So we basically figured if the promoter got paid, if we get producer's fees out of it, we retain ownership and we see what happens. At that point, we were just kind of looking to use that as a calling card to get into something else. We knew that wrestling was not going to be a long-term profit-making enterprise for us. But having that track record, having produced four or five different home video titles, uh, you kind of get a track record with producers and distributors. So that's really where our goal was. Maybe this leads to doing some type of a TV show or uh, low-budget motion picture production, things like that. I think we, we knew after the second one that this was really going to just be a vanity project. And I don't think they ever... We, we received small, comparatively small profit checks uh, from Vestron twice a year. But what happened, I guess, sort of like what happened to Crockett in the late 80s, they aggressively expanded and overextended themselves. They started three or four different divisions, Vestron Video, Vestron Television, Vestron Motion Pictures. They got lucky, caught lightning in a bottle, funding and distributing. Dirty Dancing with uh, Patrick Swayze, that became this huge cash cow. And they felt, okay, let's get into television. And within a few years, Vestron was in Chapter 11. So all of the agreements and profit participation that we would have had became worthless after the uh, company went bankrupt and was sold off at auction. I think it was in the early 90s. There it is, my conversation with Jeff Otto on Ringmasters, Great American Bash 1985 on VHS. I think there's more to talk with Jeff about. 
in the future. Dennis Carluzzo, of course, those Memphis wrestling videos he put out. So I'm sure we'll be hearing him again on the show. But as we wrap things up, Kurt, anything you want to say here at the end of the show? I uh, just want to give my love out to both Dan and Mary Lou on their anniversary. I love you both. And uh want to say always check my friend Alfredo Esparza's LuchaWorld.com. And uh, just want to say I love you all. Thank you for uh, continuing to be a community. 605 rocks. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kurt. We always love to have you here. And of course, on that note, on community, you can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Super Podcast. If you'd like to support this show, there's a number of ways you can do so. To make a one-time donation to the production of the show, you can go to paypal.me slash superpodcast. If you want to make a donation on an ongoing monthly basis, you can do so. Patreon.com slash superpodcast. Thank you to everyone who supports the production of this show and all Arcadian Vanguard productions. Of course, if you want Super Podcast t-shirts, Mothership t-shirts, stickers, magnets, baseball shirts, polo shirts, and much more, more to come. You can go to tinyurl.com slash superpod store, the official online store for the 605 Super Podcast, or just go to facebook.com slash superpodcast and click shop now, and it'll take you right there. We briefly had Arcadian Vanguard face masks and they sold out three times within a week and a half. So we don't have any more of those for everyone who has asked, but we are hopeful to have more in the future. It's all dependent on the fabric that we're able to purchase. Playing a lot of inside baseball here with this, but we hope to have more <laughs> at some point in the future, maybe even some 605 face masks as well. Of course, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon is a great way to support this show. Get a wrestling book or whatever it is you want by using that link and supporting this show. And thank you to everyone who continues to do so each and every week. Want to make mention of our fine sponsor, Ramsor Records. Once again, the new album by Clem Snide, Forever Just Beyond. Get it today. Produced by Scott Avitt. ORCD.co slash forever just beyond. You can purchase CD vinyl or download or stream orcd.co slash forever just beyond. And may I, uh, may I uh, say something before we go off air? Yeah. I just want to send some love out to Physico Nuclear, who lost his husband, Christopher, uh, in November. And just want to say, uh, I know you're listening, and I just want to say, we all love you, and uh, the age of Aquarius will be upon us, and we will all be together. And I just want to say how much I love you. That's very nice. We certainly send our condolences to Physico Nuclear, a big player in the Kurt Brown story. We all know that. Also want to thank here at the end of the show, Jace Nakarado and Lou Kippelman for all their fine work on the Super Podcast and all shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information! About all the shows, once again on Twitter, at Super Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. 
You can send anything you want to send to the Super Podcast to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. But with that said, thank you to Kurt Brown for being here once again. But until next time, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Hello again, everybody. Scott Bound and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day on the KFR podcast. And by golly, Brian, it is certainly going to be a Kentucky Fried Treat today for the fans as we welcome Jerry Gray, a former Memphis grappler who has emerged as one of the best storytellers in all of wrestling on your very own 605 Super Podcast. The Mothership! Oh. Yeah, was that really necessary? <laughs> well, it sure as hell beats double dropkick or whatever hey. you did a few weeks ago. Hey, hey, not cool, man. Not cool. You know what? On, on that note, don't call me the extra crispy man anymore, all right? Well, anyway, anyway, as I was saying, yes, Scott, Jerry Gray will be joining us today on KFR to share his torrid tales from the Memphis Territory in the same honest and entertaining fashion as his memorable appearances on the 605 Super Podcast. The mothership! See, now that's the spirit, Bowden. Jeez, I feel as cheap and dirty as a Summer Avenue hooker right after that. Funny you should say that. We'll be right back with Jerry Gray, who will share his story of an impromptu handicap bout at the Admiral Bimbo between two Memphis call girls and Sabu, the wild man from Borneo, right after these messages. Bimbo. <laughs> what did I say? You said bimbo. It's bimbo. At the Admiral Bimbo, not bimbo. I said, what, hold on. What are you saying versus what did I say? Ben, bimbo. B-E-N-B-O. B-O-W. <laughs> you wrote B-I-N-B-O-W. <laughs> what, what, what am I not saying? What am I missing here? Are you reading the script? <laughs> Go down to the next. <laughs> so there's two pages. <laughs> No, I do not have two pages. You don't. The last thing I have is, funny you should say that, we'll be right back with Jerry Gray, who will be at the Admiral Bimbo between these two girls, right after these messages, and then you jump in and say, hey, that's my line to cut the break. I can't believe this. Okay, let's go to break. That's the last thing I have. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I, thought, last... I, thought, I thought you were doing an extended version of the... Hang on a second. I'm reading what you. I'm reading. Hold on. I'm going to send you a screen capture of what I'm reading. I, I believe you. I'm just saying. Because I'm that... an honest man. I, yes. Well, we've already established that. Well, uh, hang on a second. Some, but, uh, I thought you were still playing with me. <laughs> I was I like, "Why? He's really dragging this out." <laughs> I don't. I don't play during Passover. Hold on. Let me. Uh... Uh, you'll 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 think that's hilarious then, because I do have us going back and forth, but not that long. And I was like, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to stick to the script or anything. But... Hold on. Go go to your Facebook. Are you going to suck it, asshole? I don't. I don't. <laughs> no, I'm just going to look. I was like, what the fuck is he doing?
I'm still, I mean, I'm still recording. I think the uh, I think we're dragging the joke out a little bit long here. Let's see. You wrote the joke. How could you? <laughs> well, no, I I thought I sent you. There should be two pages to that opening. Go look at what I'm reading. All right, all right. Hang on a second. I just sent you the picture. Okay. Now you see. Did you have a? Do I have what? I just sent you another email. I'm not opening that email until you open Facebook and look at what I sent you. I believe it. God. I need, I I believe isn't enough. That's weird. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, all right. All right. So uh, I'm going to get rid of this. Is everything, uh, I mean, well, I'll see you in a second. Let me. uh, I think, I think, yeah, we were going along swimmingly until, but, but. (laughs) Until that moment. (laughs) Until I read the script. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Let me open this. Open with. And then the bottom, that's the outro. Okay. Hold on one second. My computer's acting like an asshole. Here we go. I got to tell you, I start to look forward to these sessions with me and you so much because I have such a good time. <laughs> but, they, but they take forever. They take forever, but it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I like that. Um, now that's the spirit. Funny you should. Oh, so see, I didn't have. Yeah, okay. So now it makes sense. Yeah, um, <laughs> Bimbo, what? <laughs> and I thought you were still doing the thing. I was like, Bimbo. Now, now, now that I see this, it's fucking. <laughs> and then it just kind of kept going. I went, Wait a minute. What's it? <laughs> now that I see this, this is fucking hysterical. <laughs> I I didn't see any of that, so I didn't know that I was supposed to react the way I actually reacted. Yes. <laughs> so I think you could leave most of that. <laughs> this is some Roy London shit here. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> deep, deep stuff. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, you said bimbo, and I said, "Did I?" Say, well, I'll respond to that, I guess. <laughs> well, you did. I think. I seriously, I think if you went back and listened to a lot of it, I think you got you have me covered up until bimbo, the admiral bimbo, not bimbo. Then <laughs> you could just kind of pick up. Oh, I think you're wrong okay, on that. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Hold on. Or you could say, I was I was thinking of like how Kramer I think once responded to something on time. Oh, I think you're dead wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I can't I can't do exactly that, but I got to do my own spin on it. All right, all right. <laughs> you may want to check your sources on that. Uh Okay. Uh, you know what? Besides, that's my line. You know, the part about cutting to a break? Jesus. I can't believe this. Okay, let's just regroup here and go to a break right now. And then I was thinking that you would cut me off, like, as I'm going, we'll go to a break, right, and then cut it, and then the commercial starts. Okay. You know, like, you have control of the editing. Yeah. And then at the end, I was going to say, well, I think there was something for everyone in the on, in the entire family on today's show. Just a quick note, the Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production at Arcadia Vanguard. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and don't worry about following Brian, <laughs> as that road can only lead to that. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's do all it. Right? Come out right. whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> well, I think there was something for everyone in the entire family on today's show. Just a quick note that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden and on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And don't worry about following Brian. Is that load? <laughs> Shit. Load. Is that load? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, yo. You've been talking to my dad? What's going on over here? <laughs> All right.
So I'd redo that whole thing or just pick it right just back. Just pick it up from, uh, you know. Um, Following Brian. Yeah. As that road could only lead to the Admiral Bimbo. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. All right. And I'm going to stop the tape. Start right now. Hello again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What what is that? what's going on? Oh my god. That that music can only mean one thing. Jim Cornette? No! Loverboy Dennis and beautiful Bobby? Don't be ridiculous. I mean you know what I'm talking about. Wait a second. Is that a mysterious black Hummer pulling up to the studio? Are you serious? Wait, that looks more like a beat-up van. Aha! It's gotta be sweet Stan! Oh, that's just fabulous, dude. Nice! Look, you know damn well what that music means. Good grief. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to go. <laughs> Dude, and by the way, you're horrible. All right, let me stop this. Hold on. <laughs> Dude, you're, 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 yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not getting the vibe. I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> it's like Jim Cornette. <laughs> Loverboy Dennis and Beautiful Bobby? <laughs> Wait a second. Wait a second. Is that a mysterious black cover pulling up in the studio? <laughs> See, I don't play it the way you think I do. I look at the way you're writing for me like kind of like a script for Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> so that's kind of how I'm playing it. Like the audience uh, is in on it. <laughs> okay, De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this, I'm doing this in the Rocky and Bullwinkle style. Yes, that's it. Oh, so that makes me Bullwinkle. If you want, I could do it in a more Dudley Do Right kind of. Right. Jump in whenever you want. We can start again. All right. Stop banging the mic. All right. All right. Yellow again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried. Uh oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. That, Brian, that, that music can only mean one thing Jim Cornette? No. <laughs> oh. I could listen to you react to the music all day. And it was the funniest fucking thing. Oh. All right. I'm sorry. <clears throat> you could uh, you could jump in and start oh, whatever you want. All right. Here we go. Here we go. This is the one. <laughs> right. This is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got it. All right. Come on. All right. All right. Jim Cornette? <laughs> All right, you can start whenever you want. All right. Yellow again, everybody. Scott Mountain and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. Brian, that, that music can only mean one thing. 
Jim Cornette? No. <laughs> It's just, I don't know, the ridiculousness of it is just getting so funny. Your, your reactions to the music, it's just, like, this one was the most subdued. Like, it's just like, oh, oh, oh what is that? You know what that is? Like, it's just, it's well, like, I- Remember how to, remember how remember how Tony Tony Schiavone and all them with the the NWO music would hit like oh no oh my god oh my god you're reacting kind of like Orson Welles in War of the Worlds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. <clears throat> oh brother. All right, I'll try. I'm I'm doing my best. I'm so sorry. Let's uh, give this another try. You know, again, everybody, Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fresh. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That, that music can only mean one thing. Jim Cornette? No. Lover boy Dennis and beautiful Bobby? But don't be ridiculous. Wait a second. Is that a mysterious black Hummer I see pulling up to the studio? <laughs> It looks more like a beat-up van, and that music is so loud! Aha! The van! It must be Sweet Stan! That's just fabulous. What? I can't hear you! I said that's just fabulous! What? God, Jesus! The music is driving me mad! Macho Madness is running wild here in the studio! Holy cow! Suddenly it got quieter. Strange. Look, you know damn well what that music means. The Midnight Express. You stop. It's hey, hey, dude, the van doors are opening, and oh man, that's that's Rip Rogers, the hustler. Well, it sure as hell ain't Larry Flint. But he doesn't even work here. Oh man, think he's still mad about those ICW T-shirts? You mean the gold, red, and white 100% cotton tees we're selling over at Kentucky Fried Wrestling? <laughs> you really need to shorten that URL. <laughs> Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Let's, let's do the... <laughs> let's... <laughs> Cut the music for a second. <laughs> oh, God. Oh... Uh... Um, wait, wait. <laughs> there's one. Anyway. Okay, but he doesn't even work. I'm sorry. That's that's right there. That's Rocky and Bullwinkle. The hustler. Well, sure as hell ain't Larry Flint. Like that. That's right out of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> oh, this reads like a script for Rocky and Bullwinkle. It's so funny. <laughs> well, I did watch it a lot growing up. Oh, man, think he's still mad about the ICW t-shirts? <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get through this. It's a van. It must be Sweet Stan. <laughs> if, the, if the van is rocking, Christine Jarrett better not come a knocking. <laughs> okay. What did you just type? Uh, I, was, 
I'm just making a, a distance revisions to the script. That's because... to your script, but not my script. Yeah, yeah, you're stuck with the same lame material. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh, oh, I just have one request. A little, like a little. You know how like you know Cornette would say, "Lover boy, Dennis, a beautiful Bobby, the Midnight Express." <laughs> That's not what's in the script. Yeah, but you already say. But you say you do say it earlier. You say, lover boy, Dennis, and beautiful Bobby. Right. And I say, don't be ridiculous. And then, got to be sweet Stan, da, 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 da. And then you go, the midnight. But you kind of went, the midnight express. Did I, did I, did I, I, don't, I was so thrown off by everything happening. I was trying so hard not to laugh. It was so stupid. All right, let's challenge ourselves to get through this one. This has to be a one-take thing because of the music. Yeah, I know. All right. Make sure the music's rewound. It is. Okay, you can jump in whenever you want. Yellow again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried... Uh-oh. Oh, my God, Brian. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all right. You are killing me, dude. You're killing me. You're so funny tonight. Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. And even like you began, you didn't do your usual yellow, everybody. It was just like yellow, everybody. It was very quick, very brief. What? It was like a very uh, terse <laughs> yellow, everybody. Yeah. You could tell we were on take four or five. All right. Uh, let okay. me rewind the music and we can give it another <laughs> shot. <laughs> all right we can't laugh before we start though. all right all right and give it another start another uh <laughs> just go for it right now hello again everybody scott bound and brian last right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of kentucky front uh-oh Oh my God, Brian! That music can only mean one thing. Jim Cornette? No. Lover boy Dennis and beautiful Bobby, the Midnight oh, Express. Don't be ridiculous! Wait a second. Is that a mysterious black Hummer pulling up to the studio? It looks more like a beat-up van. Aha! Beat-up van. It must be Sweet Stan. Oh, that's just fabulous. What? I said that's just fabulous. Oh my God, the music is driving me crazy. Watch out, man! This is running wild here in the KFR studio. Oh, well, it got a little quieter. Look, you know damn well what that music means. Beautiful Bobby and Loverboy Dennis, the Midnight Express. Oh, you stop it! It's another ICW invasion. Hey, dude! Hey, dude! Hey, the van doors are opening, and oh man, that's Rip Rogers. Hustler? Well, it sure as hell ain't Larry Flint. He doesn't even work here. Uh-oh. You think he's still mad about those ICW t-shirts? You mean the 100% comb cotton tees available in gold, red, and white for selling over at KentuckyFodWrestling.BigCartel.com? You really need to think about shortening that URL. I'm aware. Seriously, though, does Rip look pissed? Uh, forget about it. He always looks pissed. It's like, kind of like Ole Anderson. That's very reassuring. I, you know what? Let's just go to a break. That really is a sweet van. <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back, I hope, with another big day of the KFR podcast after this important macho message. 
Wow, Rip really does look pissed off. Wonderful. We'll be right back. Okay. Again, everybody, Scott Bound and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. Come on. What? <laughs> that wasn't the transition to me, was it? <laughs> All right, there you go. You want to do the whole thing over? Yeah, actually, um, is your mic hooked up correctly and everything? Uh-oh. Oh, you know what? I had to unhook it momentarily. Did you, uh, is your microphone, you got it hooked up? Yeah, is it, how's that? I didn't notice any difference. That's why I'm... Oh. Tap, uh, tap on it. Let me let me uh, make sure my Skype preferences are straight. Yeah, because I, I didn't hear like this, which would... Ah, there we go. How's this? There we go. Now you're hooked up. Bingo. Let me hear you talk. Yellow again, everybody. Yeah, ha! that's more like it. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's try this once again. Or I'm gonna get Cerrito on the line. But uh, all right, let's uh, let's give this a shot. I'll re- I'll, re- I'll replace you with Dustin Starr. Oh, that's so <laughs> awful. How could you even For... say that? I'll quit. What? That's why. Well, his wife. Well, that's a good point. All right, it's acceptable now. All right, let's. Uh, by the way, I love you whispering. I can't take you seriously <laughs> when I know you're afraid of who will hear you. But uh, let's uh, let's give this a shot once again. You can uh, do a countdown beginning right now. Hello again, everybody. Scott Bound and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And today we are going to be discussing. A building that is near and dear to my heart. I'm talking about the home of Memphis wrestling for so many years, the Mid South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. That's right, Scott. Today on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, Marvin Stockwell, co founder of the Coliseum Coalition, an organization that helped make the save for the Mid South Coliseum when it seemed like the famed roundhouse was on the ropes and ready to be down for the count, will be joining you on the show to discuss what's going on today with the Mid-South Coliseum. That's right. <laughs> You've already, you already, you did, that's right. <laughs> you did, that's right anyway. Well, okay. I, mean, I didn't realize that you're right. You're, you're, you, you literally are right. <laughs> I didn't realize it. All right, here we go. Hang on. <laughs> and you know me, I always love to... <laughs> I sure do know you. <laughs> You just don't like to admit it. <laughs> right. I was about to say how, like, you know, I love to kick off a new segment. We may not ever do it again. But, yeah. <clears throat> oh, I really wanted to go. That's right. That's right, Brian. No one. No, no, one no, 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 no. Hang on. Oh, and I think you stumbled over Coliseum. Which time? The, the first time you go. Hold on. I'll do it again. Hold on. Today on the program, Scott, Marvin Stockwell, co-founder of the Coliseum Coalition, an organization that helped make the save for the Mid-South Coliseum when it seemed like the famed roundhouse was on the ropes and ready to be down for the count, 
will be with us to discuss everything that is happening today with the Mid-South Coliseum. That's right, Brian. And what better way than to kick off a new segment on the KFR podcast? <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, there's something about the way you say it. Maybe it's just the way you say it. I guess I'm just, just saying Coliseum. What did I say? I you said say- Coliseum. Coliseum. That's, I, I grew up with the Nassau Coliseum down the down the road. That's the yeah. We said we say Coliseum. You said well, it's all right. It's cool. I also stick up my middle finger without my thumb out. Uh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know where your fingers or thumbs are. Um, so, <laughs> so that time you didn't use. That's right. So that's why I took it there. Yeah. Yeah. That's so why I appreciate. Did, that's why I, I didn't use it. Yeah, and I still fucked it up. So. <laughs> That's right, Scott. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Brian. And we are also going to kick off our countdown of the 10 most memorable Monday nights in Memphis wrestling history with number 10, a look at the empty arena match with Terry Funk with special guest Chris Zellner. Well, if we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back after this message. All right. Hello again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the KFR podcast. And Brian, when it comes to memorable episodes, I have a feeling this is going to be a fabulous one, Pally. That's right, Scott. Today, your tag team partner, Howard, you dropped a bomb on me. I'm reading, that's why. That's right, Scott. Today, your tag team partner, Howard Atomic Bomb returns to discuss the abrupt the abrupt departure of the original Fabulous Ones, Steve Kern and Stan whoa, Lane. Whoa, whoa, whoa there, Pally. Kern and Lane weren't the originals, technically. That would be Jackie, Donnie, and Roughhouse Fargo. The hard way bleeding, hard living, hard drinking, and high hat wearing do. <laughs> 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 By the way, you named three people, and now you're calling them a duo. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, 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 trio, 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 trio. That's, that's a good point. Mm. Look at the big brain on Brian. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa there, Pally. Kurt and Lane weren't the originals, technically. That would be Jackie, Donnie, and Roughhouse. The hard way bleeding, hard living, hard drinking, and high hat wearing trio that strutted their way into Memphis wrestling immortality by kicking ass and looking fabulous doing it. For simplicity's sake, I just thought I'd refer to Kern and Lane as the originals because you're going to discuss one of the rare miscues of your booking hero, Jerry Jarrett. You stink, last! You stinky, stinky stink! I'm just saying. You stink! <laughs> so I guess Kern and Lane were what? The new fabulous ones? By your no standards? Sti- I, I, no stink face. They were the new originals. Talk about an oxymoron. Or maybe just a moron. You stink, last. You stink! And if I ever ever catch you wearing sequins and some $25 tuxedo you got down at the five of dime jimmy dean they'll be hell to pay pally right and no hi-hats <laughs> no hi-hats for you okay no hi-hats jeez you memphis fans just love some jackie fargo don't Let me you tell you something pal <laughs> jackie's got the heart the size of a watermelon a watermelon and he smells fabulous pal i'd like you stinky uh-huh 
<laughs> take a shower, slap on some cheap cologne, hose down, and we'll be right back with a look at the debut of the new and unimproved Fabulous Ones. That's Rich and Gilbert, right? Stink! You stink! Or pork chop cash in the dream machine, that's it. Boy, let me tell you something, that burned me up when those two punks wore the high hats. Yeah, you seem pretty upset about the high hats. Oh, damn straight, Pally! It looked good on the New York Dolls, though. The showers, punk. Don't wear the high hat! We'll be right back with more KFR right after this. I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but it's great. <laughs> what is the voice you're doing? <laughs> all right. Well, you also, that's the first time we've nailed the whole thing all the way through. Oh, actually, there, there's one thing I wanted to say about the dolls. I forgot. <laughs> Let, try the, let's try that last part again. All right. Look good on a do- New York dolls, though. Oh, those synthetic New York dolls. Hit the showers, punk. We'll be right back with more KFR right after this. Pally. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me, I did add this at the end. And no hi-hats. <laughs> or do that, do that one more time without laughing right away. And no hi-hats. The, one of the funniest parts of that interview where he's talking about, you know, how the, the dolls have ripped off their gimmick is that it, I think three times he's like, and no hats. You should make that your next shirt. No hi hats. I showed, I showed that to a buddy of mine uh, who had never really seen much Memphis. And he goes, boy, he seems really upset about the hi hats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a next, next shirt you do should just be no hi hats. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> All right. You ready to wrap it up? Uh yeah, this is all yeah. I don't know why I never take the time to actually write the outro. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> and we are back on KFR. I want to thank my tag team partner, Howard Atomic Baum. We'll see if that sticks. Uh, some people have called us the most unlikely duo since Rich and Gilbert, but I think our teamwork has become quite fluid. We're a well-oiled machine, much like Ricky and Robert when they hit the double drop kick. <laughs> I was just going to let you stew in that. <laughs> no hard hats! Actually, actually, (laughs) uh, I thought it might be. Oh yeah, why don't you? Why don't you chime in with the no hi hats there? Okay, I'll just do that and keep going because I already have you up to double drop kick. No hi hats. No hi hats. Absolutely no hi hats. Honoring the legendary Jackie Fargo. Really upset about those hi-hats, wasn't he? 
Hello again, everybody. This is Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And that's because it's Jerry Lawler Day here at the KFR Podcast. Oh, come on. And Isn't every episode Jerry Lawler Day at the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast? Hey, not every week, thanks to those ICW invaders who came in here uninvited. Okay. Really? Dude, that, dude. Okay, that I that is so disrespectful. I Why are you yelling? Why are you, are you yelling? Are you, are you done yet? Are you done? Okay, I don't know what happened. I man, that is I I can't that's really really disrespectful and on Jerry Lawler day no less. I'm very sorry. I apologize on Jerry Lawler day. No less. <clears throat> As I was saying, on this week's episode, we'll <laughs> We will be examining the crowning of the king on May 9th, 1988, as Lawler turned in a perfect performance to defeat Kurt Hennig. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very, very cute. Do, do you mind? Not at all. Do you mind? Not okay. at all. Not at all. Thank you. Yes, we'll be honoring that magical moment in Memphis sports history as the... <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> the weird dynamic you and I portray to the audience is just so fucking funny. All right. Oh, you know what? Yeah, you know what you could do, dude. Uh, just you know, uh, when I say you could even interrupt me again if you wanted to. Like when I say, we'll, we'll we'll be honoring that magical moment in Memphis sports history. You go, what man? What sports history? <laughs> all right, all right. If you want, I don't know. Yeah, jump in again uh, whenever you want from the beginning of that sentence. Okay, thank you. Yes, we will. We <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, we will be honoring that magical moment in Memphis sports history. Memphis, what, what Memphis sports history? All right, settle down over there, Mets boy. I, okay, you know what? I, I'm leaving. And without oh, me, and without, and without me, there is no show. There certainly would be no show without you. That was an accident. I accidentally clicked the button. I was moving the mouse away, so I wouldn't click it, and I accidentally clicked it. But back to you. Thank you, Davey. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we will be looking as the king slingshot his way into immortality, winning the AWA World Championship in front of more than 9,000 fans at the Mid-South Coliseum nearly 30 years ago to the day. I was there along with several of the city's dignitaries, including Memphis Mayor Dick Hackett, who unfortunately was caught in the crossfire of an argument between two rednecks prior to the introductions of the big main event and was ushered out as beers flashed over his Lansky brother's suits. He did make it back in time for the finish, though, and a photo op with the king. Hold on, I wasn't ready. Hold on. <laughs> That's right, Scott. Today, longtime Memphis wrestling fan and loyal listener of the 605 Super Podcast. What mothership! Not bad. Not bad. You could do better, but not bad. Uh, I, I've, I've been working on it. Well, it really shows you've been working on it, really. As I was saying, David Delahousse will be joining Scott as part of our stinking redneck segment to discuss how Jerry Lawler really was the equivalent of the home sports team whose popularity transcended beyond Memphis 
in towns big and small across the Mid-South. And Kevin Lawler also returns for part one of a revealing look at what it was like growing up as the son of one of the most controversial figures in wrestling and really the best-known sports celebrity in town for decades. Ah, sounds like a good one. We better get going. We'll be right back after this royal proclamation. All right. I hit you with, I hit you with this a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. The yeah. timing seemed all right. I noticed that. <laughs> just the weird dynamic. It went from you and I just being so nice to each other, like David Lance. Now it's like this weird, like, what is going on? Yeah, it's, it's almost like Jesse and uh, and Vince now. <laughs> yeah, but we rotate who's who. That's the problem. Oh, gosh.